You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. This is the story of The Empire Strikes Back. You can read along with me in your book. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear R2-D2 beep like this. Let's begin now. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Turn it off. Luke Skywalker and Han Solo rescued the princess, destroyed the Death Star, but their story didn't end there. Creators of the biggest smash hit of all time bring you the next episode in the Star Wars saga, The Empire Strikes Back. The continuing story of our band of heroes, Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, Han Solo, C-3PO, R2-D2, and Chewbacca. And introducing Lando Calrissian. It's an epic of romance. Of heroes and villains. They cross trackless voids to unknown worlds. Galactic Odyssey against oppression. A big, new, sprawling space adventure in the Star Wars saga, The Empire Strikes Back. Coming to your galaxy next summer. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Chris Bricklemeyer. Hello. Good to be on. 
Also back in the booth is Mr. Jamie Benning. Honored to join you. We are kicking off Sci-Fi Month with a look at possibly the best sequel of all times, The Empire Strikes Back. It's the second or fifth chapter of the Star Wars saga, which truly tests our heroes. Luke Skywalker gets mangled, Han Solo gets tortured, and Leia Organa gets a good kiss from her brother. We will be spoiling this 41-year-old film, so if you haven't seen The Empire Strikes Back, what are you waiting for? Jamie, when was the first time you saw The Empire Strikes Back, and what did you think? I told people for many years that it was the first film I ever saw. In fact, the first film that I ever saw was The Rescuers, but Empire Strikes Back was the second one I ever saw in the cinema, and I only have memories of feelings. I don't have memories of specifics. I just have memories of just being in this dark room, this huge screen, and having you know some, some candy or sweets, as we say here in the UK, in, in my lap. And just this kind of tension building to this moment coming up when the curtains opened and the trailers had gone. And I just remember being blown away. I I totally fell in love with the characters, the worlds, the ships. I was born in 76, so I don't remember a time without Star Wars. You know, even before I saw Empire aged four and a half, there was Star Wars bedspreads and curtains and posters and magazines and comics and everything. So it just felt like a natural continuation for me. I don't even know if I'd seen Star Wars before I saw The Empire Strikes Back. My parents can't confirm this to me, but I just feel like I was so immersed back then in that world, you know, in the playground, in, in even in nursery. I remember playing Star Wars. And Chris, how about you? Before I saw the movie, I have to actually say that I remember the commercials for it. I remember one vividly. I was watching Prices Right because I was probably homesick, which is what we all did here. When you're sick, you watch Prices Right. And there was a commercial for Empire, and the scene you find out later is where Han puts his hand over 3PO's mouth to just shut him up. I kind of freaked a little bit as a little kid because I'm like, oh no, 3PO gets kidnapped. And I just couldn't handle that, right? And then when he gets shot by stormtroopers, I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's about right. So it was a completely weird reaction to the trailer but it, i think it was just too much for for my brain to handle because i was eight at the time and i didn't know how anything how how anything worked how hollywood worked I, I don't think i even knew what a sequel was at eight years old so for them to make another one it was it was going to be like that was the, the most amazing thing in the world and it just even as a little kid it just looked better all around like just visually. So I was, I was all new ships, everything. I think if I remember right, we went and saw it opening day. I don't remember much about the actual theater experience, but I do remember coming out having new favorite characters. So, so like you, I was eight at the time. I had no idea that the movie was even coming out. I didn't see commercials. I just was completely clueless. And it was my neighbors from down the street were just like, oh, we just got back from seeing a new Star Wars movie. And I flipped my wig. I was like, what? There's a new Star Wars movie? What? You know, because Star Wars was like my life at that time. I'm just like, how can you tell me that there's a new Star Wars movie? I just went nuts. So I had, you know, ran home and I was just like, mom, dad, there's a new Star Wars film. We have to go see it. <laughs> So it could have been out for a day. It could have been out for weeks. I have no idea. Oh. <laughs> but they were, you know, they probably were just like, oh shit, the kid found out. <laughs> <laughs> but 
they knew, and they were nice enough that that afternoon we went to see Empire Strikes Back, and I loved it. And I was aware of Boba Fett before I went in, because I had watched the holiday special and watched that cartoon that was part of the holiday special. I went back just before we started recording and rewatched that cartoon, and man, that null animation style of the loopy drawn characters, fucking Han Solo's head is just like, what is going on with his head? <laughs> yeah. It's kind of shaped like a foot. And strangely looks like Adam Driver. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can see that. I can see that. I still don't understand this, the, the cartoon because of the whole way it begins with Chewbacca firing on the rebel ships. I'm just like, what are you doing? What is going on here? <laughs> Really doesn't make much sense. But yeah, I knew Boba Fett. I remembered commercials, I think maybe during the holiday special, where it was like, send in proofs of purchase and you can get a Boba Fett action figure. From Kenner's Star Wars collection comes the Stormtrooper, the Sand People, and all 20 action figures, including new Hammerhead, Snaggletooth, and more, each sold separately. And now Boba Fett, Star Wars villain with his laser rifle. Boba Fett is not yet available in stores, but you can get him free with four proofs of purchase from any Star Wars action figures. Details on specially marked packs at participating stores. Offer ends May 31st. Star Wars action figures sold separately from Kenner. So I had probably many Boba Fett action figures because I was just like, I kept all of that shit. I was just like, oh yeah, yeah. And I've had all these proofs of purchase and got the Boba Fett. And unfortunately it was the one where you couldn't shoot the rocket. It had already, you know, that kid had already died on the Battlestar Galactica ship. So they fixed that thing. And I do remember when I bought a Boba Fett at the store that they had a sticker over the back of it where you could peel it up and see the instructions on how to shoot that missile out of his back. And I was just like, oh, damn that kid. Damn that kid's useless death. I remember getting a sheet of composition paper from school, cutting out just the circle of the proof of purchase, taping it to the paper, and then writing one, two, three over each one. I don't know what I was thinking. Was it going to be somebody my age looking at this and I had to spell out that there were five of them? No. Here in the UK, we had to cut out the names on the card back, which completely mullered your card back. So, I, you know, I've grown up with this collection of card backs with all of the names missing because I sent off for Boba Fett and I sent off for the Emperor and for Nine Num and for Admiral Akbar. And yeah, so that was a shame. But I remember um, I didn't see the holiday special until I think 1990 or 91. I was at a toy fair here. A friend of mine. And I had found out that Star Wars figures were kind of gaining a bit of traction in terms of their value. And we started going to, you know, garage sales and boot fairs and things here. And there was this particular dealer who was selling stuff. And he said, guys, have you ever seen this? And he kind of slid over this wonky looking VHS tape with a black and white photocopied um, cover. And we were like, what's this? And he said, this is the adventure between Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back. And you find out like what goes on in between. And we're like, what? What is this? So we handed over our 20 pounds. I think we paid for it between us. That was my budget for the day, probably. And we raced home to my friend Mark's house and we put it on. And within seconds, we knew that we'd been done. Just an absolute abortion of a piece of TV. I mean, how it ended up being made. Even though the cartoon is the best bit, it makes about the same amount of sense as the rest of it does. But luckily, it looks fun, and you don't have to wince at your favorite actors, you know, trying to deliver these lines. 
poor Carrie Fisher. She just, she looks like she is three sheets to the wind and just, I don't think she's wearing a bra under her outfit and she's just flopping around. I'm just like, what is going on with this? And then trying to sing her way through that Star Wars themed song. I was like, oh man. And the Mark Hamill with more mascara on than anyone else in a movie ever. Oh yeah, he's one step away from a kabuki stage actor. So when I saw Empire and I saw Boba Fett show up, I was just like, oh, thank goodness, good. This is the guy. And it's funny, you know, because I thought I was the only one who really liked Boba Fett. Boba sure fooled the rest of us. That There was that march they did, wasn't there, in San Anselmo as well, where somebody, it was Kermit Ella dressed up as Vader, and I can't remember who it was, somebody in the publicity department dressed up as Boba Fett, and they kind of march them around in this you know parade that was happening and there's some great sort of 16 mil film of it um and you can just see kids faces kind of like oh my god it's Darth. hang on who's this you know <laughs> and what a great uh piece of marketing that was just for word of mouth i can imagine that spread like wildfire i like the whole idea of him originally being like a, a super stormtrooper and that you can even see like Bits of him showing up in like the Ralph McQuarrie drawings or sketches, and then Joe Johnston kind of took it over and really built it out. And they put a lot of thought into that. I love the whole idea of him having Wookiee scalps on his shoulder. I can't remember if it was the comic books, but pretty soon after you find find out that he's a Mandalorian and all of that kind of stuff way before the Mandalorian TV show showed up. So when people are like, what is the Mandalorian? What does that mean? I'm just like, well... Go back to your eight-year-old brain, yeah, and dig out all that info. That's the great thing about that character, though, isn't it? That nothing was explicitly explained to us. So we got to make this stuff up in our minds and play with the action figures. Did you ever have the 12-inch action figure where you could look through his sight and, you know, you'd saw his, like, murky, magnified view of the world oh it's like uh steve austin's Mag- yeah. Yes. Eye. yeah yeah similar to that yeah. yeah yeah i didn't have any i think i only had the jawa and the vader didn't have the boba fett but i remember my friend down the road did and i spent a lot of my time trying to swap my jawa for his boba fett. <laughs> 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 if, if you had five jawas i wouldn't swap it i think was his line i was so into jawas for whatever reason that that was like my favorite of the the 12 inch which wasn't 12 inch it was a lot shorter figures but yeah i I loved jawas but i did have uh, a bunch of boba smaller figures and i remember losing one in a park in wyandotte and i was just like oh my god i was so upset because like he dropped down between these like big poles that they had and I, I just thought to myself every night i was just like how could i get him back how can i like, <laughs> <laughs> like string or fishing line what's how can i save this boba fett character i remember having a, a, a few different ones and the color of the chest armor were just different shades of green so there's like eight, nine year old me, like which one's the real one and it just bothers it bothers me to this day that there was that much difference that, you know, a little kid could notice the difference in color. It's like, come on, can't you get that accurate? And now I'm sitting here with, like, the most accurate stuff that can be made. And I'm like, yeah, it's all right. I remember having a couple of them as well. And I, I had one that I would kind of save and one that I even chipped off a bit of his armor on his breastplate so that it kind of matched the screen version. Because I wanted like a beat up Boba Fett, but I also wanted my pristine one. You know, I wasn't going to spoil it. Are they different colored because they're all clones? Different batches of them? I I do have to say that I like the Nelvanimation stuff better 
than that style of animation they use for the Clone Wars and the Bad Batch. Yes, me too. Yeah, I've not really watched much of those, I'll be honest with you. They feel like, you know, they... I don't, I'm not invested in them, you know, and I don't like that animation style. I do kind of like the gloopy nature of that animation, though, in the holiday special, where everyone just looks... I don't know, they look high. <laughs> they, don't, they don't move properly. They're really sluggish. Even to the point where, like, R2-D2 kind of, like, morphs his shape at times. I'm like, what is happening? And 3PO's neck. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> it's very elastic. Comes off of his head and has a cable holding it down. It's like, what? They mimicked a bit of that look in the droids cartoon years later, didn't they? R2 would bulge out and, yeah, kind of have gestures and things. Yeah, I don't know if that was the same animation company or not. I want to say it was. Yeah, I th- I've got a feeling it was, but I'm not sure. Mm. If it is, somebody said to them, hey, guys, come on. Raiding in a little bit. These kids aren't dropping acid before watching your cartoons. <laughs> I don't know what it is about Empire, but it is the favorite of all the Star Wars films. And it's almost like it shouldn't be just because our heroes are separated through so much of it. It is a really much darker film. I don't know what it is, but I just love this one more than any of the other ones. It just feels like the most mature, I suppose, the most human-centric. Well, not even human-centric, because I have to say that this also shows the level of depths of Chewbacca more than any of the other films. I mean, you can really feel his pain when that blast door shuts and he thinks that he might be losing Han Solo forever. I mean, there are some really touching moments with Chewbacca in here. Not to mention the fact that 3PO only talks about Luke. I'm sure Luke will be fine. And Chewie's like, what the hell, dude? Really? And that's that's why in the in the last sequel, where 3PO says, um, you know, you've always been my best friend, and it's like, you've been a jerk to everybody, all right? Like, the whole time. You've kicked R2. You've j- just, come on, give it up. You're not the best. When I revisited Empire, like in my teens, I hadn't seen it for a few years, and I think I got it on a pan and scan 4x3 VHS. And I remember being quite shocked at how much dialogue there was in comparison to Star Wars and Return of the Jedi. I think there's like twice as much compared to Return of the Jedi. It really is. As you say, it's a lot darker film. I mean, it looks so much better than the original Star Wars film. You know, the cinematography by uh, Peter Sushitsky. You know, he really went to town to the point where I think Lucas was worried about them not finishing on time because of his elaborate lighting schemes and things. But thank goodness he did because it really does hold up today. It looks gorgeous now as well. All right, we're going to take a little bit of a break and we are going to play an interview. We're going to hear from cinematographer Peter Shushitsky all about the making of The Empire Strikes Back as well as a few other things. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. 
Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Before you did Empire Strikes Back, I believe you worked with Ken Russell a few times. And I was very curious, what was that relationship like? And how was it shooting something? Valentino and Listomania are really wild movies. Yes, we had had met him a few years, two or three years before I shot with him. Maybe even more, maybe five or six years because he interviewed me for an earlier film uh, whose title I cannot remember. It's about a a Polish sculptor who was active in Britain, Gaudia Brzezka was his name, but I can't remember the name of the film. Anyway, in the event, he worked with another DOP, and then he came back to me for Listomania. He was somebody very good for me to work with at the time. He was not an easy easy man to get on with, but he was good to work with in that his main interest was the visual side of, of a film. He want, always wanted to make uh, scenes that that had a, that struck would strike the viewer in some way, often quite violently. I don't mean that the scenes were violent, but he wanted to make a strong effect with everything he did. So we talked first, and he he said, "Why don't we meet for lunch?" And he come down to meet me at the studio, Shepherd Studio, and we'll go to the nearest uh, village that has a pub in it near the river. And uh, he was a man who was somewhat tight-fisted with money, and he, he uh, I ended up paying for his lunch and his wife's lunch and my lunch. Yes, he was not known for his fiscal generosity. <laughs> And I think it was with Russell that I, I had to learn how to shout back because he, his idea, I think, of relations with other people, relationships with other people was one of trying to dominate them and bully them. So I had to learn to shout back at him. It wasn't in my nature to do that at all. It proved perhaps good to have done that. But I was lucky to be working on these films because they looked good. Inevitably, they they were going to look good because he spent a large proportion of the the budget on on the sets. So there was always something great to to photograph. However, the scripts weren't always wonderful. You had just done the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is a musical. Listomania ostensibly is a musical, and Valentino has a lot of musical elements to it as well. Is there a difference for you shooting, say, a narrative versus something that is is so dominated by musical sequences? No, and I think as a person in, in charge of what goes through the camera, the job is the same, really. You want to, one wants, I want to make the best of the material. I want, in some ways, I was not able to do so on Rocky Horror Picture Show because the shoot was such a fast one. Short, as far as a musical goes, we had six weeks in which to shoot a musical. We should have had probably 10 or 12. Um, but um, we had to simplify our scenes. I don't think... It demanded anything really special, and I, I'm sure people tell me I varied my, my the look of my work uh, from film to film, but I'm not conscious of doing so. I'm not at all aware of what I what I do really. It comes from it comes from the from the inside, and although I didn't understand 
the universe of the Rocky Horror Picture Show when I started work on it is quite far from my universe. So I was always very much a classical music person. So to do this was um, not, I wasn't quite in tune with it to start with, but I, I, I could quickly, I quickly understood that, that it had something special going for it. It had its own, own universe. I can't think of a more fascinating universe than Listomania with the, you know, it's, it's almost like Rocky Horror as far as the way that you have this kind of rock star persona in there and then the world of classical music and so many wonderfully bizarre images in that film. Yes, but the Rocky Horror Picture Show has not aged at all. It's quite, it's quite extraordinary. And it is, in fact, probably one of the very best movies I've worked on. Whereas I think Listerine is quite ridiculous. <laughs> it's quite a, a really silly film. It's silly, but it has a charm to it. I, I remember being very amused watching it. Everything is so exaggerated in it. And uh, Russell wasn't always especially preoccupied with the quality of the acting in, in general. He just wanted to make a strong impression and cast people who were very much in the news or in the media. Noria, for instance, a fantastic dancer, had a great physical presence in, in front of the camera, but he, he couldn't act. He couldn't speak the dialogue as if it was coming from inside. He had learned it parrot, parrot fashion and... Yeah, it was, uh, very, was somewhat unfortunate, I think. He was a lovely man. I had a friendship with him. I liked him a lot. And he, as I say, he had this physical presence, which was extraordinary. But uh, he was out of his depth being, being an actor. How did you come to be on The Empire Strikes Back? I didn't know for many years what, what the reason, probable reason was. But later, after I'd worked with Lucas... Some some years later, I learned that he had in fact been a pupil of a Kirshner film school, and he he'd seen an early film of mine called Privilege, which I made with Peter Watkins, and he'd been impressed with one one scene in a stadium which had really lit with sodium torches. At least that's the story I heard. So he asked me to shoot the first Star Wars movie. And I went up for the interview and I was very frank with him. And I said, look, I have no visual effects experience. And you should perhaps be working with Jeffrey Unsworth, who shot 2001. And uh, the, the answer came back straight away. Yes, you're probably right, but he's not available. <laughs> so we're talking with you. And I said, well, that, that's great. I'd, I'd love to work with you on this, on this movie, but 20th Century Fox were producing it. I met in their office in Soho Square in London, and they said to him, well, I don't know if they said to him, but they obviously looked upon him as somebody with rather little experience. He uh, made, as, as you know, one science fiction film and not much else. So they thought he should be paired with somebody with more experience than myself. And I was only 28, 29 at the time, very young for that sort of movie. So they went towards Seal Taylor, who was a, a, a wonderful DOP with great credits and very interesting credits. The fact is that they didn't get on together. And Gil, Gil Taylor didn't think, said quite, ver quite uh, without hesitation several times apparently that he's working with a bunch of amateurs and that the film would never be successful. 
he was proved very wrong. <laughs> yes. So they never worked together again. And I got a call about the second film, The Empire Strikes Back. And I was interested to introduce Irvin Kirshner. And we sympathized with each other straight away. He was a man with a lovely sense of humor and very quick-witted, quick mind. And he took a week or two to think about it. And I got a letter back from him. This was before emails. A letter, yes, posted with a postage stamp from Los Angeles saying, I was what, I was having dinner with Haskell Wexler last night at home and we watched, we, we, we watched Valentino and I loved your work in it. And I'd love you to work with me. So there I was. I had I had the job, which was fantastic, very exciting. I still had no experience with visual effects, but uh, they said, but don't worry, we'll take you to the ranch over to San Francisco and you'll, you'll be introduced to all the, the, the technical people at the ranch. And they did that. I flew out to San Francisco and we all sat around the table and maybe 15, 20 people looking at a few storyboards for one of the, one or two of the more complex scenes. And it was then that I just, I realized that nobody really knew what they were going to do. And since then, I've <laughs> firmly believed that most people don't know what they're doing in their lives. And the only time that you really hope that the person who's in charge of things around you really knows what they're doing is when you're a passenger on a flight <laughs> or when you're about to go under the anesthetic on the operating table. You really hope that the surgeon or the pilot knows what they're doing, but most people are not sure about what they're doing. So there were 15, 20 people looking at each other and they're still looking at each other that they, after they looked at the concept boards for the scenes in question and was kind of scratching their heads about how they were going to achieve what was hoped for by the producer and director. And I also um, learned that there's always a visual effects supervisor who's on the set and you can communicate with them. Uh, I All the things I was anxious and afraid of were technical terms such as Rear projection, front projection, matte painting, etc. They, they intimidated me, these expressions, because I hadn't used these techniques. But in fact, they're quite simple. And if you use your eye and your, your mind and your feelings, you can navigate through it quite, quite easily and successfully. So I learned a lot, yes, about visual effects. And it was fun to do so. I've always been curious about how you work with the special effects people as far as keeping the look and feel of things so similar, you know, to be able to integrate the live action with the stop motion, say like in the ATAT Walker scene to just to be able to make sure that the skies look the same, that things integrate so well. Of course, I didn't shoot the stop motion scenes. They were shot by George Lou under the supervision of George Lucas back in San Francisco whilst we were shooting the live action material. But a visual effects person has to, who, who takes the material and goes away with it and works on it has to replicate the light and the feeling that the DOP gives to the scene. And that's, that's why he's there on set. If he, he or she has particular requirements such as interactive lights at certain Moments, if there are explosions or if light effects, they they will remind the me or whoever's the DOP on 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 the, on the movie of these things. But 
play they have to they have to make sure that their work is seamless and will have the same feel as the material shot by the director of photography on the live action side of the movie. How long was the shoot? The shoot was unusually long. It wasn't that the budget was so high, but uh, the actors were paid a relatively, in today's terms, modest fee. I think they got $100,000 each, which was a fortune from my standpoint in those days. But um, they got handsome percentage uh, points, and they could see that the first one had been immensely successful, so they were pretty confident that they'd make a lot of money. So all that is to say that, that the production values in the film were, had a good percentage of the budget available for them, and we were able to shoot for about 24 weeks, which is unheard of, more or less unheard of today. Today, the, the actors take such a large percentage of the budget that is quite grotesque. It makes me cross a lot of the time because they take sometimes 70% of the budget of a movie and there's not, not, generally not enough left over to make the movie. I was approached about a movie recently and it had a, I'm not going to say what it was, but it had a $25 million budget but only four weeks assigned to shoot it because presumably the actors were going to get so much. I didn't realize until recently watching a behind-the-scenes documentary just to look at things like the Hoth base and to realize that that's all or so much of it is a set. And just to have that actual Millennium Falcon recreated you know, to scale inside of that, that, that must have been such a huge set. It was a very, very big set, yes. And I, I have, of course, since then shot movies where some scenes are shot against a blue screen background, but it is a bit depressing to work like that. I can do it. I don't I have the skills with which to do it, but it's wonderful to be able to have a, a physical set or at least a good part of a set to react to, to, both for the actors and for the director and for the director of photography. It's amazing, too, to think of all the different looks of the film, to have those three major things, plus all of the stuff that's happening on the Imperial Star Destroyers. What kind of challenge is that for you to be able to say, this is going to have this type of look? Because parts of the movie just don't look like anything else that I've ever seen before. Well, I don't have an explanation for that, except that I can... I'm never sure exactly what I'm going to do. I had enough time in pre-production to spend quite a lot of time with the production designer and to talk about how he could help me by providing self-lighting, not self-lighting sets, but elements in the set that would, practical elements, practical lighting elements that would help with the, with my lighting of the set. And, the sets are different, so they're going to look different, inevitably. The Dagobah set is just incredible, just to have those huge trees and the swamp and all that. Had you ever been on a set like that before? No, I think that was the first for me to do an exterior set inside a studio. I know it's, it's often done, but I, I hadn't done it myself. And it was a very big lighting job. I had a lot of lights in that stage, which were, and it was a stage that had been built especially for the, for that scene. It was pretty big and I had many arcs and many 10Ks up there. Things have changed. Uh, the equipment's changed a lot since then and we don't use arc lights. 
we use HMIs instead. But yeah, they, things are things are a lot easier in many ways now. What was it like shooting all of the scenes having a puppet as a main character? It was slow, first of all. And underneath the character, below the character, were quite a number of people, uh, animators, pulling pulling strings to make him move. And the first problem was, the first difficulty was that he's in in a house with very little space to to hide lights or hardly any space to hide light, hide lights. And the first, the first requirement for <coughs> shooting uh, a miniature set is to have it built as large as possible so that your depth of focus is, so you don't have to go too very close with the camera. But the challenges are to make the skin look like real skin. That's the first challenge. I have for any DOP has to work into work really carefully and closely with makeup department and the effect the people who build the the character so it was interesting but very demanding to shoot that the the closer shots with with the, the the puppet do you have to run a lot of tests to be able to see how your lighting is going to make yoda look i think in the case of yoda we must have done some testing i to be frank i cannot remember but i i can't believe that we didn't have a few hours in which to run some tests a day or two before we started to shoot with him. I cannot remember that, the occasion of doing the tests. I heard that with some of the things that, and I, I almost said that you shot on Hoth, but I should say that you shot in Norway, that the crew was safely ensconced inside of a hotel room or a hotel lobby while the action was taking place outside. Is that true? No, I'm sure it's true that certain members of the crew who didn't need to be outside because it was very cold and uncomfortable outside were in the lobby, but the shooting crew were outside. In fact, what happened when we first when we first scouted that location, it was November, and it was a clear day, and we were able to walk up the, the glacier and have a look at the, the valley down below. We could see for miles, and when we came to shoot in January or February, in the same place, it was snowing so hard that we couldn't leave the hotel for the first three days and possibly four days. We were holed up by a snowstorm, a severe snowstorm, uh, with 120 crew on tap being paid, naturally, (laughs) and the producers being too happy, but uh, there was nothing that could be done. And as soon as the snow eased up a bit, we did go out and we shot close to the hotel on the first day. But it was still snowing and you couldn't see uh, far at all. It was a little bit uh, like it was a sort of kind of whiteout and we could have been shooting in a studio and got the same effect. And that was a bit uh, of a shame. On no day that the main unit shot was the weather really good enough to see very far. I remember on the first day, uh, with lots of heavy clothing on to keep myself warm, I had a small camera in my pocket. I wanted wanted to take one or two stills in between the shots. At some point, I lost the camera and didn't realize it. It fell out of my pocket, perhaps when I was pulling some gloves out of the pocket. Some minutes later, when I started to look for the camera, it had been covered by the falling snow, and I asked the the manager of the hotel, I said to him, when does the uh, snow start to melt here? And he said, oh, in, in May. He said, I've lost a camera. And he said, well, I'll look for it. I said, it's close to your hotel. And in fact, he found it and posted it back to me. After having a new shutter put into it, because it had rusted, it worked. 
that it's not true to say that we sheltered in the, in the hotel lobby. Some members of the crew who could shelter did so. I'm sure if they were sensible, they did so. Did that extreme weather, did that affect the cameras at all? They were all prepped with heavy oil, heavy-duty oil, special oil, yeah. We didn't have any camera problem. What was that working relationship like with Irvin Kirshner? Well, we became friends. I, I really liked him a lot. He was an enthusiastic always about what, about the scene in front of him and chuckled with, was always brimful of ideas, which made him chuckle more. He was a, char- a charming man to work with. Do you remember, were there a lot of things or any things shot that weren't used in the final film? There are always some things shot that are not used. We had one tech, one technical problem on the film. We were shooting some shots in Vista Vision, but we couldn't project the shots. We didn't have a Vista Vision projector, which would allow us to see the shots. These were visual effects shots. Two months, three, maybe three months into the production, we had a note back from San Francisco to tell us that our 28 millimeter lens wasn't sharp. The shots were not usable, but it was far too late to repeat them. So those shots weren't used because they couldn't be used. That must have presented a little bit of a problem to have so many people working in San Francisco while you're over in Norway or the UK. It never felt like a problem. I know that that Erwin Kirshner would speak with George Lucas at the end of every day. And maybe at the start of the day, let me see what time would it be. No, well, that would be nighttime. He would speak with him at the end of the day. And I think they maintained a good relationship right through the, the movie. It never felt like a problem. It was only that we had this one technical problem because they didn't look at our material on a big screen until it was too late. But they would get the material pretty quickly as we would see it. It would be developed overnight and we'd see it the next morning. And then they, perhaps they struck two prints. I would think they start, struck, yes, they must have stri- struck two prints of, of everything. And one of them went to over to San Francisco for George to have a look at. And he would look at it, I assume, the following day. So there was a two-day gap before they could see the material. It's quite different now. It can all go over by electronically, I'm sure. Was Gary Kurtz much of a presence on the set? He was constantly there. And he was very knowledge, technically very knowledgeable and raised all sorts of questions, which were often very useful and sometimes up for debate. But he was a, a very positive presence on the set. With Kirshner coming up with ideas very often, it sounds like there was a little bit of room for improvisation on the set. Is that accurate? Yes, he changed things on the hoof, and sometimes he thought his thoughts came to him too too quickly, and he would stumble over them. I figure, at least figuratively, he would stumble over them. But yes, not everything was fixed in, in stone, and the story bordered part of the film only covered the visual the scenes which would have visual effects in them. So he wasn't he wasn't locked into a storyboard. For me, the most visually striking part of the film has to be the encounter between Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker in carbon freezing chamber. Just that the use of the lights and shadows is just amazing. Well, I had a lot of freedom there. I remember I spoke with Norman, the production designer, before, again, before we were always speaking, but he he came to me and said... We've run out of money in the construction department of the 
construction set construction part of the budget. And I can only provide you with a foreground here. I can't build a background. So I, I'm suggesting, he said to me, that I have, I organized black graves to be put out. And I said, yeah, that should work fine. If you can't provide a set at the back, I'll do it with shafts of light and steam and smoke. And that's how, how we did it. And I just thought the light, the different colors I used, I just thought of on, on the spot, really. Just seemed to look good and feel good, and Kirsch, Kirshner liked it. And I also remember think, uh, using one trick that I'd used in the Rocky Horror Picture Show um, for the swords, uh, the what are the lightsabers. They they had been they were worked on in post production, but to give them a guide, I said, why don't we stick some 3M material onto the onto these lightsabers. That's a material that was used for front projection. Its equivalent is uh, paint that's used on road signs that pick up if your car headlight picks up because it's close to your line of sight, the light coming from your headlight. So it's a highly reflective screen. And if you shine a flashlight from close to your head at 3M material, it sends back a very bright light. But if you step off to one side and the source of light doesn't move with you, it fades and you, you don't see that uh, bright light anymore coming from the screen. So it's, it's a material with high, highly reflective beads, I suppose, beads, beads of glass on it or coated, uh, coated material on it. And so we, we put the 3M material onto the lightsabers. And I had a, a small and low-powered source of light very close to the side of the lens, uh, low-powered so that it wouldn't affect the look of the actors' faces, but it would give the lightsabers uh, a strong light. It would feel as if light was emanating from them. And in post-production, they reinforced that. The scene in, which, in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which I used which I stole an idea from for the lightsabers was the scene, which was one of the last scenes or perhaps the last scene on, on the stage with the, the symbol of RKO radio pictures, the flashing, the tower with the flashing lightning, flashing bolts of lightning. And I didn't prefer to start with. I didn't quite know how to produce the, that flashing effect. And then I thought, well, there's this material called 3M. Let's stick that on the, use that for the lightning bolts that uh, emanate from, that strike the, the symbol of RKO pictures. And then I'll have flashing light next to the camera. And that's what took me to, to this, that's an idea that I applied to the lightsabers. I also really liked the lighting that you did in the actual Star Destroyers, especially the flexions and the light that would hit Darth Vader's helmet and just how nice that looked. It just looked like such a, a real place. To start with, that gave me a lot of problems because there was a lot of black. Uh, he was all black and hit upon the idea of using sheets of styrofoam or white, could be white card. I hate using styrofoam today because it can't be broken down, can't be recycled. But it, we needed, I needed to have behind the camera some, some white sheets. It was in, in those days we used, with abandon, without thinking of the environmental effects, we used a lot of styrofoam. So we had sheets of styrofoam and I 
hit hit them with lights, and they would reflect in Darth Vader's helmet to give it to bring it to life. But to start with, I I had a certain amount of problem with with his costume, his his helmet, no, notably his helmet. I didn't realize until yesterday just how much of the interiors of the Star Destroyers were matte paintings. I, I would have thought for sure those were all sets. I cannot recall them being matte paintings. Is this some, something you read somewhere? I actually saw some effect shots, and I was just kind of okay. blown away. I, I think especially the, the things outside seem to be a lot of paintings. It seems like it it stretched the set to either side a little bit more. It, it may be that they were used, paintings were used to, to extend the sets. It's very likely that that happened because that was uh, something that was done quite often. So a corridor could be uh, lengthened with a matte painting. Apart from Darth Vader and him being so black, what were some of the other biggest challenges for you on that shoot? I would have trouble replying to that because I just took them one by one and nothing felt like too much of a, a demand. I, I can just remember going to the, to the studio every day and feeling, in a way, I was like a child going to a nursery school with big toys to play with every day. There's always something different to use. But the challenge is always, is always the same to, to shoot a scene and to give it the, a look that will be interesting for the, the spectator to, to see and that has the right feel to it. Everything was a lot harder then than it is now to actually do because the, cat, the, the film was not at all, wasn't as sensitive as the digital camera is today and the lights were much heavier and produced more heat. So there have been a lot of technological technical advances, which helps the, the work of the director of photography, but doesn't change the, the, the conceptual demand. Kind of speaking to that as well, the interior cockpit of the Millennium Falcon, so many little lights in there. It's not like I can really see the light source on the actors. It just blends so well. Yes, well, today you might well see the light source on the actors, and that would be welcome. But then, in those days, because the film stock was not uh, very, uh, not not really very sensitive at all, it was rare to be able to feel the light coming from little little di- dials and bulbs on an actor's face. So long as you could see them in the shot, we were happy. The DOP was happy, and everybody else was happy. And, but we didn't expect that these little light sources to do the lighting for us, as one can today. Does a character like a C-3PO or R2-D2, do they have the opposite problem of a Darth Vader since they are bright and shiny? Being too reflective, you mean? <laughs> yes, you, perhaps from time to time I, I had to ask for the surfaces of these two characters to be dulled down a bit. It's more than likely that that happened. But these are not very demanding problems. The most demanding problem is really just to conceive of a look for each scene that's going to be harmonious with the whole and interesting to look at. When I speak to some actors, they don't really like to go to the movies and see themselves. You know, even going to the premiere, sometimes it's a little bit painful for them to see their work up on screen. How is that for you, though? And especially with a movie like this, where you are seeing part of it, but then at the premiere, you're seeing the whole thing with all the effects. 
Well, I don't think it's as painful for me as it is for an actor. I've never met an actor who's who's not who who isn't unhappy with certain aspects of their faces. That's what they're most worried about from the performance. You know, the most beautiful actresses will always feel that they're not beautiful enough or there's something wrong with the nose or the chin. With me, when I see my work, I just want to do it all over again. Because I think, especially sort of four, five, six, ten, or ten years later, I'm, I'm sure that I could have done it better. And I wish, you know, I always wish I had done it, had the chance to go over it again and do it better. But I'm, but at least I'm not seeing myself or my persona directly on the screen the way that, that an actress is uh, forced to do. I know a lot of people were kind of shanghaied to be imperial officers or maybe not necessarily stormtroopers or, or rebel fighters. Have you ever been press ganged into being in front of the camera as well? I don't think so because my, my, the DOP's job is so all absorbing that there's nobody else on the film crew who has to work all the time the way the DOP has to. I watch a rehearsal of a scene. I talk about it with the director and we decide how many shots we have would be good to do in the scene and where to place the camera and um, this choice of lenses. So then I prepare the first shot and we shoot the first shot. Then I prepare the next shot and we shoot the next shot. And it goes like that all day. And the only moment when I'm not working is the brief lunch break, meal break. Everybody else has to wait for the DOP, so I never have time to be an actor, and I think I'd be a bad one anyway. What is it like to see the effects integrated in there with the work that you had done? It's it's always thrilling, usually thrilling. I can remember when, one occasion, more recent years, when it was slightly less than thrilling because the movie had been shot in 4K, and the effects were still being done in 2K, so there was a lower quality in in the effects uh, um, than in the shots which were, didn't involve visual effects. But as or at least 50% of the shots in that particular film were involved effects, there was a constant changing of quality, which I was aware of. The average viewer would not be aware of. I'm hoping now that most films needing effects all shot seamlessly in 4K, even the effects, I'm hoping. It requires a lot of computer time to do effects in 4K. That, that's the, the problem that they were having. But otherwise, it's always thrilling to see the effects, the shot, the, the film come together with all the, the effects integrated into it. When did you make the transition to digital or have you? I have, yes. I made it some years ago. I was waiting for the cameras to be adequately developed because the early digital cameras often looked had a digital look to them, which I didn't like. But as soon as, let's say, Aeroflex brought out the Alexa, which had a film-like quality to it, I jumped at the opportunity to shoot a film. It was a film I made with David Cronenberg. And in the first half hour of shooting that film digitally, I said to myself, I don't want to go back to film anymore. This is so much better. There are some drawbacks, but just generally, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful tool. Which one was that? Because you've shot so many with Mr. Cronenberg. Cosmopolis. It was, I knew it would be probably the most difficult film of my career just just because the whole most of the film takes place in a car and it's a nightmare 
to shoot in a car. I don't look forward to shooting in a car. And when I read a script with lots of car scenes, I often have found myself saying, well, if the script is not all that good and it's what, a lot of it's in the car, I don't want to do it. It's too painful. It takes a long time to set up each shot. There's no room to move. Very little um, flexibility in camera position and no, nowhere to put lights. So I knew it would be very difficult and I was helped by the fact that uh, the digital camera is so sensitive and you can have very, very small lighting sources uh, and I can still do my work. So I managed to do that, do that movie digitally because the camera was very sensitive or is very sensitive, light sensitive. What have you been up to lately and how has COVID affected you? Well, COVID's came, come at a time for me when I knew, didn't expect to be shooting very much anymore because of my age. I was approached about a film just before the, the outbreak and I was hoping that it would come to fruition, but it, like many, like all the other productions, it was closed down. And I don't know if it's come to life again. I have been offered movies in the meantime, but I don't really want to shoot a movie in a pandemic because you will we all, all necessarily work quite close in close proximity to each other and the risks are much higher and in my age group I'm afraid I'm more vulnerable than young people. So I'm I'm waiting to see if it dies down next year. I've I've been approached about a couple of other movies and maybe one of them will work for me. But I got I've not at a loss for what to do. So I've been reading and I've also been writing for my children, my memoirs, my family history. That's t- and I've also been doing, always done a lot of photography, still photography. So that's taken up enough of my time. Have you experienced any of the updated versions of Empire Strikes Back where it's things that you didn't shoot necessarily in the movie? I haven't looked at it for years, so I must look at it. <laughs> I'll buy myself the latest copy. It might make you mad. It might, it might. But I'd like to see it nonetheless. Well, thank you so much for your time. This was such a pleasure talking with you again. I really appreciate this. You're very welcome, Mike. Yeah, the scene in the carbon freezing chamber, that, oh my God, so good. Yeah, both the actual time when Han gets frozen, later when we see the fight, the lightsaber duel in there. I mean, it's similar lighting schemes, but shot and lit so differently to see those, uh, the, the, especially the orange on Leia's face when she's uh, being held by Chewbacca, those kind of things. It's just like, wow. And then, yeah, the red and the blue of the chamber during the lightsaber battle to kind of mimic the red and the blue of the lightsabers. Oh, man. And, and just that Darth Vader is in silhouette throughout so much of that. I love the story that Norman Reynolds, the, uh, you know, the production designer, art director that he tells about how Kirshner saw the set on a Friday night and says, and said, I can't shoot in this, this it's, it's not finished. And then Norman Reynolds was kind of crapping himself all weekend, trying to tweak things and didn't really change anything. But before 
Kirshner arrived back on the set on the Monday morning, he filled the room full of smoke. And he said, perfect, thank you for your work. <laughs> that really went a long way, too, for one of the best shots of Vader in any of the movies. As as Han's getting frozen, and he does that, that slow look up toward the camera with the smoke curling around the helmet. Uh, that was like him at his at, at his height. As far as we knew at the time, that was the most evil he was right before he started to go soft. But I mean, he definitely he looks like he looks like the devil coming straight out of hell. And that that's that's perfect. And I don't think Lucas, as a filmmaker, as a director, has that kind that same kind of eye. I think that's why if you compare them, Star Wars is pretty straightforward shooting. And this is this is very dynamic. And Mike, like you were saying, it is weird that it is a lot of people's favorites because it's it's an unfinished story on top of everything else. And by all you know, all measures, <laughs> no one should like it because it tells a third of a story, which is strange. But it's it's done so well, you don't even care. Yeah, and that the good guys are really defeated at the end of it. No one is happy. I mean, Luke's got the new hand. They're chasing after Han Solo, and it's like, yeah, the Empire has really <laughs> striked back, as it were. There is one good guy, though, that's that's pretty happy. Lando has his ship back for a little while, so I think he's okay with that. Do you think he fucks that ship? Well, it's L3 now, right? So, yeah. You would think he'd be really upset about losing that ship, even more upset because the ghost of his girlfriend lives inside of it. Yeah. Don't don't let this stuff cloud my memories of The Empire Strikes Back. I'm having work done at the moment. I'm paying for this. It's one of those things where the sequels and the other movies, luckily, I don't think about them very often. Because, like, if I watch, say, The Matrix, the movie is now pretty much ruined for me because I can't stop thinking about those horrible sequels. But with this one, it's like I can put the other stuff out of my mind other than maybe the kiss between Luke and Leia. And then it's just like, ugh, I really wish he hadn't gone down that path. And that's just one of those real... And it's not the cringe because of them kissing. It's the cringe because of where you know he took the story. Yeah, I don't think he's ever really answered that directly. And, you know, we all know the reason why it was there is because he wasn't really sure what he was doing with the characters at that point. Because, as we know, the creative process is an ongoing one and one that changes minute by minute. And, you know, despite what he tells now... Um, it wasn't completely planned out. Um, it's very clear that it wasn't, because otherwise, ugh. In the um, Splinter of the Mind's Eye, weren't they even closer than they were in, in A New Hope, yeah. if I remember yeah, right? Yeah, so, yeah. so yeah, well, all right. And she kisses him again at the end of Empire, a little quick one, when um, when she's hooking his hand up to the, the machinery. Hmm. But it's more of a, uh, glad you're okay. Uh, I'm going to tell myself. Well, and then people retroactively are like, oh, well, she talks with Luke when he's hanging upside down from Cloud City, so she has to have the Force. And I'm like, does she? Does she really have to? We see Han Solo use a lightsaber. Does that mean he's proficient in the Force? <laughs> <laughs> he's the only, yeah, the only non-Jedi character to use one in the original trilogy, I guess. Yeah. I still don't know how that little orange creature from the third trilogy, how she got a hold of Luke's lightsaber, because isn't it the one that he dropped when his arm got cut off? Well, there's a whole thing there, isn't there, about how they were going to make that the kind of MacGuffin of the, the sequel trilogy, and then they kind of copped out with the second movie and then didn't have time to sort of rein it back in by the third movie. It's a shame, because that whole first movie 
was pointing to something special there about that. And then, yeah, as we know, in the second one, he just tosses it over his shoulder. I remember just thinking at that point, my, everybody in the cinema I was in was about my age in their 40s. And we all just looked at each other and there were multiple people saying out loud, what the fuck? <laughs> Honestly, multiple people. Um, but we won't. That's another podcast, Mike. Right. Well, the thing I think that makes The Empire Strikes Back so special is the writing and the characters and just the way that we have things being echoed throughout so much of it. And, you know, Jamie, when I was rewatching your filmumentary about Empire Strikes Back, I really never realized how much Luke is upside down. But we have this kind of echo from one planet to another to another where we've got him on Hoth doing it uh, in the ice cave. We've got him on Dagobah with Yoda standing on his foot. And then we've got him again uh, hanging from that antenna at the bottom of uh, Cloud City. So it's just, yeah, it's nice that we have this, even to the idea of Luke almost freezing to death on Hoth and then Han being frozen in carbonite at the end. So like these nice... Again, it's like poetry, sort of, they rhyme. Oh, yeah, and Luke almost was frozen as well on Cloud City. And there's one other time where he was hanging upside down, and that was in my house in the Star Destroyer playset. <laughs> Remember that? You could hang the yeah. figures upside down. I was like, where's this scene? Where, where's this scene? Was that because he had uh, the sleeping disease from that medallion from the holiday special? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some of these ideas just shouldn't have been greenlit. Wow. But yeah, I mean, Luke really does go through it in this movie, doesn't he? As you say, I mean, it kind of shows his struggle. You know, it's not an easy path for him. He really has to fight for what he needs to do. And he doesn't, you know, you don't know at points as as a first time viewer whether he's being carried along by the force, if it's going to come and help him, if he's on his own, like his friends have left him, even his droid has left him. You know, the door closes on R2 and he really is out on his own. And I love that stuff. I think it's so well written. And Lawrence Kasdan was um, clearly a very canny uh member of uh of the you know the script writing team obviously lee brackett coming up with some of the earlier ideas the broader ideas but kasdan wow i mean did you hear the story where lucas uh he was right that's right kasdan was writing the raiders of the lost ark script and he had it ready to deliver to lucas he went over to lucas and he put it down on the table and george said let's go to lunch and lawrence said well don't you want to read the, the 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 script first and he said no no i want you to write the empire strikes back well i want you to write the star wars sequel for me and he said, well, don't you want to read Raiders first to see if it's good or bad? And he said, I'll tell you what, let's go to lunch. I'll read it tonight. And if it's not good, I'll give you a call. And <laughs> he said they went for lunch. They chatted about The Empire Strikes Back. That night, he is at home kind of, you know, worried about the call. He gets this call saying, yep, yeah, great. Uh, really good. Really thought uh, Raiders, Raiders was good. And you're employed for The Empire Strikes Back. That's how much confidence Lucas had in his ability, presumably having seen some of those early drafts of, of Raiders. But... Yeah, he's he's a great writer of character. And all of this, of course, is about character development, isn't it? This movie, Kirshner was very big on that. He didn't care that it was science fiction, fantasy, whatever. It was for, for him, it was about the characters moving forward. And I think that's why, you know, Harrison Ford was so engaged by the movie. And in turn, Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill as well. You know, there's those stories of Harrison kind of rewriting scenes with Kirshner and kind of leaving Carrie out of it and then her getting really pissed off at them and threatening to kind of walk off the set and stuff but it was just it really felt like so many amazing creative minds just came together for this perfect storm and I think it benefits in a way from not having a proper ending I get kind of pissed off sometimes where you get to 20 minutes out from the end of a movie and 
everybody's desperately trying, you know, the writers are trying to tidy up everything and tie everything up in a neat bow. I think it was to their advantage that they didn't have to do that. I love that openness, and I love the idea that the story could go in so many different ways afterwards. I don't like the direction that it went in afterwards, so I try not to think about Return of the Jedi, but I like the idea that it could go any place. I also like the idea that apparently you have to wear the same outfit as Han Solo if you're driving the Millennium Falcon. That whole idea of Lando with the uh, black vest and the white shirt, I'm just like, okay, I guess that's like the, the captain's outfit. I I imagine, since now we've seen Lando's cape closet in the Falcon, that Han emptied that out, and it just looks like a Zuckerberg closet of just the same outfit over and over and over again. The only difference is, like, you'll have a couple of brown pants, and some will have a yellow stripe, and some will have a red stripe, and that's it. So Lando had no choice. He's like, I I can't wear this outfit two days in a row. I got to change. And I think solos, you know, like some people travel around in their car, you always have a spare set of clothes just in case, you know, you never know what's going to happen. You know, they're roughly the same size, I guess. And maybe, you know, maybe in the world before Solo, maybe uh, Han Solo stole that look from Lando. You know, maybe that's what Lando wore originally. She's like, oh, yeah, this guy's very stylish. I think I'll uh, start copping his style. I dig it. You only earn a cape once you own a a Cloud City, right? Lando is more proper, though. He did button the shirt all the way up to the top. And it was smart, too, that this film takes us to so many different locations. You know, in the in Star Wars, we start off on the desert planet. We go to the Death Star. Then we go to, you know, what is it? The fourth moon of Yavin. Okay, pretty different looking places. But here with, like, the ice planet, the swamp planet, the uh, asteroids, the uh, Cloud City, you know, the keep that idea of these different locations and it really makes a lot of sense. And it is kind of this, like you're saying, this journey and to have Darth Vader, this emissary from hell, you know, in cloud city where it's like, you know, you need to come up here and live amongst the clouds, Leia, like an angel. And here's Darth Vader just, you know, coming in and ruining the whole experience. Color wise, the, the, the huge differences between all of the locations with the stark white and then all the greens and browns. And then even you have your cityscape with the star destroyers and those are blue and gray. Until you think about it, you don't notice that every section of the movie is just basically broken up into different color palettes. And my God, the editing in the film to be able to take us from location to location to location and the cross cutting of Vader and what he's doing versus Han and Leia and Chewbacca and C-3PO versus Luke and R2-D2 and Yoda. That idea of cross-cutting between those three stories, because the Darth Vader and the Solo stuff, it's kind of like its own thing, but still cross-cutting between those two ships. And then you've got the Luke thing over to the side, but they integrate it in. I love the way that this film is paced and that you never are left wondering, well, I wonder what Luke is up to. Because as soon as you start to even think that, he's back on screen. So it's really very smart as far as that goes. The thing that always really strikes me is how the stuff on Dagobah feels like it could be weeks. And the stuff on Cloud City feels like they've had maybe an overnight stay and they're waking up or freshening up after a shower, you know, and they're there a short time. But it doesn't matter. We don't even think that doesn't cross our minds until like the 50th, 100th time we've seen it and we go on the internet and discuss it with other nerds. It doesn't matter because, as you say, the pacing is perfect. You know, Paul Hirsch 
I interviewed him for my podcast and he's just a master of being able to to tell stories, you know, worked with Brian De Palma for many years and was always aware that there has to be this kind of ticking clock in the background. Now in Star Wars, of course, that's the Death Star approaching the fourth moon of Yavin. In The Empire Strikes Back, it's is Luke going into a trap? Is Vader going to get there before Han and Leia do? You know, who's going to save the day? And all of this stuff, that's the ticking clock. And he it's absolutely masterful the way he cuts between those because you understand the geography of each location every time he goes from one to the other and how they're interacting. And, you know, Luke's on Dagobah, as I said, what feels like it could be weeks, yet he's, you know, seeing these visions of his friends that we've just seen, you know, moments ago. And it, But it doesn't matter. It just works. It just works somehow. Yeah, it could have been a disaster cutting between those we've seen we've all seen movies where it's broken up like like how empire was and it just feels like you're spending too much time with one character not enough with another and the locations aren't so different and they have to pull establishing shots for each one but with empire it's like oh trees i know where i am all right let's go ahead and take another break up next you're going to hear from paul hirsch the editor of Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back, as well as many, many other things. Definitely check out his book, A Long Time Ago in a Cutting Room Far, Far Away, My 50 Years Editing Hollywood Hits, Star Wars, Carrie, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Mission Impossible, and more. You were only just a few years into your editing career when you end up winning an Oscar for Best Editing for Star Wars. What was that like for you? Well, you know, you can imagine it was very exciting. Uh, I recently watched on YouTube, I watched uh, myself giving my thank you speech. And uh, I was, you know, it was as bad as I remembered it being. I hadn't even formulated a dream about winning yet. I was was so early in my career that the notion of winning was so uh, far-fetched that it never occurred to me yet. I was just hoping to get another job, never mind the awards. What prompted you to write the book? Well, I was on location in Vancouver uh, by myself. My wife hadn't accompanied me because being on location for her was very difficult. She has, you know, she finds herself in a strange city with no friends, no job, nothing to do, and days upon days to amuse herself. So at that point, uh, we had decided that she would just stay back in LA, and I was on my own on the weekend. and faced with what she would be facing during the week uh, if she were up there. Namely, I had to figure out what to do with myself. And I've been telling these stories on the set. You know, when I wanted to take a break from the editing room, I'd wander down to the studio and, you know, on the set and you're chatting with people who are sort of watching the action. There's a lot of waiting around on on set. and There's a lot of opportunities for uh, chewing the fat and sharing war stories and this kind of thing. And uh, I've been telling some stories to to good effect, I thought, and I thought I should really write these stories down. And uh, I thought well, that'll, that'll be something to do. I think the first chapter I wrote was about I love trouble, a picture I did with the Schmeyers, because I had intended not to write the the book in in chronological order. I thought that would be boring, you know. And so I started in the middle, and then I went back, I jumped back, and then I found myself constantly having to explain. Well, I knew him from when I had met earlier on another, and then it got so complicated. I thought, well, this is silly. I should just write it in chronological order and, you know, it'd be like a story where it logically follows. So um, so that's how it started. And at the time that I started, this was in the, in the fall of 1999. I was working on Mission to Mars, 
uh, after I wrote the first chapter, I thought I should make a list of notes for myself, little things to jog my memory, a couple of words or whatever to to remind myself of incidents that happened uh, in the course of my career. And I went sort of picture by picture and made a little notes to myself. And when I got around to writing that particular chapter, if I covered a note in my writing, I'd I would change the font to bold, and that would be my cue to myself that I that I'd written about it. So it's a good thing I did that because uh, at that point, that was twenty years ago or more, twenty two years ago. You know, your memory it doesn't get better as you age. So if I tried to write the book starting today, I don't know how much I'd remember at all. But uh, at that point, uh, I was only thirty years into my career, not fifty. Of course, in the ensuing twenty years, I would keep notes on the pictures I was actually working on at the time. So I chipped away at the book for about 18 years. I didn't finish the first draft until 2017. Now, I wasn't working on it all that time. I mean, I would put it away for two or three years at a time sometimes because, you know, I got busy or wasn't interested in it or whatever. And then in the course of my career, the the periods of employment got shorter and the periods of unemployment got longer. Why they call it an arc, a career arc, you know, whatever goes up must come down. Finally, I finished the first draft in 2017. The stories are so rich with detail. Did you have to research yourself or talk to other people that were there to kind of get their take on things? No, I mean, I was, it was intended to be a very personal book. I mean, it wasn't researched or anything. Uh, you know, it was just my memory of events as they occurred. You know, some of these things were so memorable that had you experienced them, you'd remember them too. I mean. My encounters with Bernard Herrmann were engraved into my memory and will never leave, you know. He was a very forceful man. And, uh, and my first contact really with, with uh, the old Hollywood, you know, and, and, and true professional filmmaking. I was so happy to hear the story about how the opening of Sisters came about, how the title sequence happened. Oh, yeah. I mean, Benny saw the picture and he says, what are you going to do for the main title? And Brian said, well, we weren't thinking of having a main title. He says, you got to have a main title. Your murder doesn't happen until half an hour into the picture. The audience isn't going to wait for you. And Brian said, well, Hitchcock, he says, for for Hitchcock, they'll wait. They're not going to wait for you. You have to have a main title. And that was that. The movie is about conjoined twins who are separated and there's a murder and so forth. He said, I have a great idea for a conjoined twins theme. What he wrote was two lines of music, sort of a mirror image of each other. One was chromatically descending and one was chromatically ascending. So if he wrote the, the music out on a, on a line of, you know, on lined music, the sheet music as they have it, five lines, you would see one line going up this way and another line going down this way and they would cross in the middle. So it was like the perfect representation of Conjoined twins, the mirror image uh, lines of music extending each way. So I thought that was rather brilliant. Thinking about Brian De Palma's films, which you worked on so many of, I was always curious about the title sequence of Mission Impossible, because I just find that such a tour de force. Was that you or did that get shopped out to somebody? Yeah, no, that was farmed out to uh, uh, Cooper. His name was Cooper. I can't remember his first name. Anyway, he was he's brilliant. He did the, he had done the titles to seven, which were, you know, probably the best part of that movie. <laughs> the titles are often the best part of the movie. Somebody said that about Footloose. They said, 
if only the people who did the main titles had done the rest of the movie, but they had, you know, but, but they didn't know that, but, uh, no, they did a brilliant job and they had a, uh, an editor who worked uh, this, uh, Mr. Cooper, I'll say was the designer. He had an editor working under him named, uh, named for Sam Goodman or something good. They had professional title makers do the main title. Yeah. The title sequence of Footloose is just phenomenal. I'd love to hear the story about that. That was great. Yeah, the, the the title designer on that, Wayne Fitzgerald, was, you know, if you look up his credits, he's done hundreds of pictures and, and very memorable sequences. And I think it was his idea or Herbert's Herbert Ross's idea, the director, to shoot feet dancing to the title song. They shot about 150 different pairs of feet wearing different shoes and pants or skirts, uh, socks, all sorts of different footwear and the dancers were just told to improvise whatever moved them a lot of people were invited to participate i did a few steps and everybody in the cutting room did and i wound up using my assistant my and my sister had these big feet and and these really beat up sneakers and i used them under he did a sort of a faux ballet step and i used that under herbert's credit because herbert had come from the ballet wayne presented a cut where he used all 150 it was a, just a jumble it was just a, it didn't have any kind of uh, shape or or uh, f- feeling about it and herbert rejected it and turned to, and gave the job to me and this was at the 11th hour cuz it was delivered quite late and we were already mixing the picture so i sort of uh, uh, went into a room and closed the door for 3 days and went through all these different dancers and my my approach was to find the steps that would match the particular moment in the music that i was using i wound up using about 20 some odd 24 i forget exactly the number of the 150 my approach was to to treat it like a dance number so that the, the step matched the music not only the beat of the music but the the phrasing and the feeling as the song builds and so forth so I uh, started out very simply with just the foot tapping, and then the, the steps get more elaborate. Your book really shines a light on just how much an editor can do. When you talk about being in ADR and sometimes directing the people that are re-delivering their lines, I mean, all of the, the, the stuff that you mess with with sound and music and what sessions you're in, I mean, it's so much more than just cutting pictures. I pointed out that editing is sort of like uh, uh, iPhones, you know, or uh, smartphones. They might also be called cameras that can make phone calls. They can be called text machines that have cameras and phones in them. Or, you know, internet browsers that, you know, have cameras and phones. So an editor does a lot more than just edit. Even when we're editing picture, we're spending a lot of our time not editing, but building during the course of the production we're building the picture from the pieces that are delivered each day. So in a sense, it's editing, but it's, it's editing, but it's in the function of what we're doing, it's really building. So we're building, building, building until we get the whole thing up and on its feet and we can look at it and then make decision about what should be in and what should be out. Michelangelo said, beauty is to be found in the purgation of the superfluous. The trick in editing is, you know, people think it's just taking out the bad parts. Well, it's true. Except how do you identify the bad parts? That's the trick. You know, you look at it and you study it and you, you try to find 
in all that material the best version of what the picture wants to be. So how soon after Star Wars comes out do you get the call to do Empire Strikes Back? The picture came out in May, and the following year I was... I had gone back to New York, which was my base at the time. The first picture I did after Star Wars was The Fury with Brian De Palma. And then I went from that to King of the Gypsies, which is a picture directed by Frank Pearson and produced by Dino De Laurentiis. who's another memorable character. While I was working on King of the Gypsies, I got nominated and came out to L.A. for the ceremony. The day after we won, Gary Kurtz, the producer of the first of both pictures invited me to lunch he said how'd you like to work on the next picture and i said yeah absolutely so it came about a year after the first one where did they start shooting first was that the norwegian uh location yeah the the uh the second unit went to norway to shoot the uh exteriors of the ice battle and the the at-ats and and how long after they start shooting do you come along well i was brought in at the start of principal photography, was, which was maybe two weeks after the, I guess the second unit shot for about two weeks before they assembled the first unit. And that's when I was brought over to London. So you have to pick up the whole thing and move over to London for a few months. That's got to be quite a, an ordeal for you. Um, it was exciting. You know, It was uh, my first opportunity to uh, live and work in London and... Uh, discovered what you know was meant by two countries separated by a common language it was an adjustment it was very again it was very hard on my wife because she was alone with it our child was two years old at the time she didn't have any friends there and uh you know it was tough but uh, we got through it we were supposed to be there for 16 weeks but uh the production went over schedule and after a couple of weeks we were told that we'd probably be leaving Instead of the beginning of June, we'd be leaving the end of June. And then two weeks later, we were told, well, probably be the middle of July. A week after that, it was, well, it might not be till the end of July. Ultimately, our 16-week schedule turned into 29 weeks of shooting. So we lost 13 weeks out of our post schedule, but it wasn't extended. So, But we made it up. We locked the picture one month after the end of principal photography. I wasn't getting a whole a lot of film every day. In fact, I'd usually be able to finish the dailies by, by lunchtime. So I'd wander over to the set in the afternoon. They'd say, what are you doing here? And I'd say, I'm out of film. You know, you got to shoot faster. I'd come on the set. I'd say, what's taking so long? Which would, of course, endear me to everyone. I left after 26 weeks because there's a, there are tax laws that kick in after you, you have to get out of the country for 182 days, 183 days, I guess. We went back to the States and they were still shooting the last two, three weeks, I guess. We went straight to uh, San Anselmo where, where we cut the picture. And I know you talked about in editing Star Wars how you'd have placeholders, especially for the final battle. Were you doing that as well or did you have another method of here's where the special effects are going to be? Well, by the time we got to uh, Empire, they had developed a, a way of putting storyboards. They had sort of crude, talking about over 40 years ago, my memory is a little hazy on this point, but uh, I believe that they filmed the storyboards and put some kind of uh, rudimentary animation to them. So uh, in place of the effect shots, we actually had sort of moving storyboards to, to cut in. 
Whereas on Star Wars, we had nothing. Did you have any troubles with the special effects on Empire as far as ending too soon, not coming in late enough, those kind of things? Effect shots are very expensive to produce, so they always try to give you as few frames as possible. But they also recognize that trying to get the exact number on Star Wars, they try to give the exact number, and sometimes they fell short. That mean that meant that they had to go back and reshoot the, the shot. So I guess they learned from that, and they, they put what they call handles on the shot, where they give you an extra couple of frames at each end. Over the years, the, the handles got longer because... One of the things that we realized about effects is when you actually see the shot, it's a lot more interesting than a blank piece of leader. And you find that you, you, you find yourself using every frame they give you. Over the years, the handles got longer. But again, they had to limit the length of the handles because it, it's, a, it's a money factor. You know, the, Each frame costs X dollars. I think for me, one of the most dynamic parts of Empire is the chase through the asteroids. That just... It feels so well put together. and you- I can't take credit for that. George took pride in his editing. It's the thing he loved doing most at USC. And he told me the only reason he became a director was uh, to have footage to cut. And the only reason he became a direct uh, a writer was be to, to have something to direct. So he wrote in order to direct, in order to have stuff to cut. And... Uh, like I say, he's a very good editor, and uh, he cut that sequence. That was done before the picture was started, even started shooting. The sequence was that was finished. That was already done. What were some of your favorite sequences from the film? I like the Cloud City stuff. You know, it's a mixture of uh, tension and comedy and and drama. I mean, I, I think it's really some of the best stuff in the movie. C three PO being blasted to pieces and carrying, you know, Chewbacca carrying him around on his back and carrying on the dialogue with, with his torso and his head, you know, there's some great stuff in there. And, uh, and the look of it was very uh, uh, fresh and different from anything that we'd done before. When you get the really brightly lit sequences with say Leia and Han, and then you get the really dark stuff with Luke and Vader later on, I love the contrast of those. Yeah, the carbon freezing chamber. Kirshner made a mistake. He shot Luke getting rescued by Lando. Lando flies the Millennium Falcon under where Luke is hanging from the bottom of Cloud City. And they open a hatch and, and Luke drops in. When Kirsch shot the angle shooting up from the Millennium Falcon, he shot it in daylight. And it's meant to be a dark scene. So they couldn't reshoot the scene. They were stuck with the bright light. So ILM redesigned the port of entry so that there was sort of like an airlock with a bright light in it. When the ship arrives under Luke, your hatch opens up and your bright light comes out. You cut to the reverse and Luke drops in with this bright light around him. That was ILM bailing out a mistake that had been made. It feels like so much of your... A career was problem solving and trying to figure out things to make it work. That's exactly what we do is uh, we look at the cut, you know, and the, this thing that we've built and you say, well, what's wrong with this? You know, and you open yourself up to this is taking too long or this is going by too quickly or this is, this is in the wrong place. This should come after this or whatever the problems are, you sort of open yourself up and watch the picture and let yourself be bothered by things. 
and, and you catch the things that bother you and you address them and you fix them and try to figure out what it is that the problem is and you address the problem by you know coming up with a solution. I have a saying though, but you know, which is useful, which is that problems have solutions. If there's no solution, there's no problem. If there's nothing you can do about something, then it's not a problem. It's just a condition that you have to learn to love it. You know, it's terribly absorbing work and and uh, you're not aware of time passing and it's it was it was a joy. It's funny with Star Wars there's a few scenes that I can think of like the opening with uh, Luke and Biggs and Tashi Station and all of this other stuff that's going on. But with Empire other than like the wampas that are at the station at Hoth, I can't really think of anything else that was really cut out from the film. Yeah, Larry Kasdan did a great job and the picture really worked. And I think that's one of the reasons why we were able to lock it so soon after the end of production that uh, there were no problems that, that needed to be, no big problems that needed to be addressed. Sometimes the, the writer, you know, gets you there. You know, I move on to the next, I'm not... When you get to the end of a picture, an editor can't stand to look at it anymore. We've seen it a thousand times. You know, you'd rather do anything but watch it one, even one more time. So, Well, how is it for you when it comes to like revival screenings? As I know you've attended some of those. Do you sit and watch with the audience or do you head out to the lobby? Well, there was a 40th anniversary cast and crew screening for Phantom of the Paradise. And that was absolutely a total fun fest for me because... I hadn't seen the picture in so long. I, you know, it was no longer painful to watch. The crowd, uh, we filled the Cinerama Dome in Hollywood, which is a big theater here, and uh, the place was packed. And the audience knew and loved the picture already. And every musical number got applause, and every character got applause when he appeared. And um, it was just uh you know a love fest was the kind of reaction that we had hoped for when the picture was released but had to wait 40 years to get the uh reaction but it was it was really truly enjoyable and then i had this similar experience at a screening of planes trains and automobiles about 18 months ago uh immediately after the book came out again packed house they loved the picture already and uh with a comedy you know it, it Watching it in the theater, there's nothing like it. I, I know there's whole generations of viewers out there who've never seen playing Strange and Automobiles in a theater with an audience. And to me, that's really the only way to see it. It's a totally different experience when uh, the laughs are covering up the lines and then people are suppressing their laughs so they can hear the lines and then the, the, the laughs after that become even more explosive because they've been suppressed, you know, and uh, it was just a fantastic, fun uh, screening. I haven't done that with Star- with the Star Wars movies. Speaking of problem solving, I love the story about planes, trains, and automobiles, and that moment of Steve Martin thinking that you saw in the dailies and managed to turn that into like a whole other thing. Yeah, we had this problem with the end of the picture where, uh, in the original script, Candy had sort of thrown himself. At Martin, Steve Martin's feet sort of abased himself and, you know, sort of the self-pitying kind of way it sort of was appealing for help. And it was just, uh, he gave this speech that was starting to get bad laughs. And he was telling this speech about his wife had 
passed away and, and people laughed and I thought, oh, this is not good. <laughs> These are bad laughs. We have to do something about this. And then we figured out a way so that uh, using that shot from the very first day of dailies that I'd seen, uh, which meant nothing to me at the time, uh, we had this take of Steve that we used to suggest that he was remembering hints that Candy had dropped about his being homeless. And uh, we play, we put it together so that it seems like Steve figured it out on his own and goes back and rescues Candy and brings him home as opposed to Candy throwing himself at Steve Martin's feet and asking for, for kindness. But uh, it was a much better uh, solution. It was better for the Candy character's dignity and it was better for uh, Steve Martin's uh, empathy, you know, so it accomplished both things. And uh, there's some really funny stuff in playing strays and automobiles that we cut out. I mean, there was a whole sequence where they're in the first motel. They realize that they're going to have to share a bed, you know, and uh, Candy goes into the bathroom. We, of course, we cut it way down. But uh, while he's in there, there's a knock on the door and they had ordered pizza which is alluded to later in the scene, but in the stuff that this bit that we cut out is a knock on the door and saying, he says, come in. And you cut to the pizza kid in the character in the corridor and he's holding the box of pizza and the beers, you know, and he tries the doorknob and it won't open. He says, it's locked. He says, no, it isn't. Come in. So he tries it again and it's locked. He says, no, it's locked. He says, put your muscle, you know, put, use a little muscle, put your shoulder into it, you know. The kid is like trying to open the door and he can't. So finally, Candy's off for Pete's sake. And he goes to the door and he opens it. And the kid is standing at the door on the opposite side of the corridor trying to get into the room across the hall. So that was a really funny piece of business that we had to take out. Then he says, uh, How much is the piece? He pays for the pizza. How much is the pizza? He says, It's $19. So Candy says, Here's the 20. Keep the change. Put it toward your college fund. So then later, the kid breaks into the hotel and steals candy's money so that was that had been the setup for the theft but we had to have the theft because he has to find the money missing in the morning the next day but we didn't have time for all the the, the build-up with the pizza kid you know so uh that was sort of a shame because it was all good stuff you know but the original cut of the movie the, i think they were in that first motel room for 40 minutes candy was standing in front of the mirror flossing and like a, a 50 yard piece of floss he was pulling between his teeth like this you know and he had the hair dryer he was using as a microphone and he was he was doing elvis he had sort of got his hair in a pompadour and he was doing elvis you know and, i mean it was just crazy stuff it was funny it was all funny but you know after a while especially in a, a road picture you got to keep them moving and especially at the beginning of the movie you don't want to get stuck for 40 minutes in one location I seem to remember some of those shots being in the trailer. How do things get into the trailers that aren't in the movies? Well, they have to make the trailer before the picture's locked, you know, so they get a long cut of the picture and they start using things that are eventually cut out. That's how that happens. Yeah, I remember uh, a trailer for Help that had scenes in it that weren't in the in the movie. And I was, this is before I got in the movie business, I was very disappointed. You make a real distinction in the book between you say a New York editor, like get me a New York editor. What what to you is the difference between a New York editor and an any place else editor? That was a notion that John Hughes had. He had worked with Dee Dee Allen, who was originally from New York, and he had a good, it had been a successful film. And I guess he 
he thought she was a really terrific editor. And he decided, uh, I think also that John had had a background in advertising and in Chicago, and he had come across uh, editors from New York, I suppose, in the advertising business. And he just developed this kind of prejudice for New York editors. He, he decided they were better than non-New York editors, which is fine with me, you know, got me, got me the job. So I was happy about that. But I always took pride in being invited back. And that was always my, my goal was to make a sufficient contribution that the, the director would want to ha- have me cut his next picture as well. So what's next for you and for the book? The book is coming out in a uh, paperback version on May the 4th. So that's what's next for the book. And then I have a French version of the book that will be published. Uh, it was originally supposed to be published this fall, but the pandemic may have upended those plans. I'm not really sure what's going on with it. And I was told recently that the Chinese rights have been sold. Uh, I hope it's not a catch and kill kind of thing where they plan to uh, buy it and not publish it. But that's about it. And then. Uh, I'm doing a lot of um, promotion for the book and doing a lot of interviews. And Mr. Hirsch, thank you so much for your time. This was a real pleasure talking with you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. Darth Vader sat alone in his meditation chamber aboard the Imperial Destroyer Avenger when an urgent message from the Emperor arrived. There is a grave disturbance in the Force. Should young Skywalker become a Jedi, he will be a terrible threat to us. An evil plan began to form in Vader's mind. He will join us or die, my master. Each of these stories is really progressing, that we're learning things about each of these characters as we're going through. We're seeing that romance bloom even more in the solo part of it, we're seeing Darth Vader without his helmet for the first time. We're seeing him interact with the Emperor. And so we're getting more information about that. We're also seeing him force choke and kill so many of his own guys. All of that, my God, when I saw the back of Darth Vader's head when I was a kid, I, again, was just like, holy shit, that's what it looks like? Because you had no idea like what was underneath that mask. And they play it so well to just like give that little glimpse. Okay, you're done. It's like, wow, what could his face look like? That it just blew my mind. As a kid, we, my sister and I used to joke that it looked like raspberry ripple ice cream. <laughs> uh, and it really does. It looks like a scoop of raspberry ripple ice cream. But yeah, it's just tantalizing all those little things. It's like the Boba Fett thing we were saying, you know, we're not explicitly told who he is, where he comes from, where's he going. We're just like, who is this guy? I want to know more, you know. And it's the same with the Vader, just getting that tantalizing glimpse. I think now you'd probably have him turn around and some dramatic music and he'd have this big scarred face and... Yeah, it just wouldn't be done with that lightness of touch. And he'd hiss at the camera. Yeah, in that we have Luke being trained and just hearing. I mean, we have to talk about Yoda and just how good Yoda looks. It's just amazing because I've seen so many behind-the-scenes things and production stills and all this. And when you see those behind-the-scenes or you you don't see Yoda moving, He's dead. He's just a thing. But the way that they move him in the movie, it actually looks like he has light behind his eyes. It looks like he is a living, breathing creature. 
so much of the time and you don't think to yourself, oh, this is just a puppet. You don't think, you know, Frank Oz has his hand up this guy's back. It's just remarkable to see that and to see all the different ways that they show Yoda. I think for me, my favorite thing is when he's on his hands and knees and he's digging through Luke's stuff and throwing things over his shoulders. Oh my God, he looks fantastic. Yeah. It's, I've, you know, I've spoken to uh, Dave Barkley, who's a friend of mine, who's one of the puppeteers. I've spoken to him multiple times. He also was one of the guys in Jabba. And he talks about some of the key things that kind of contribute to why Yoda looks so effective. And there was a particular kind of mixture of whatever the material was, the latex they were using, that allowed like a certain translucency like skin and had the same sort of reflective qualities as skin. And so, therefore, he just as even as a you know an un, sort of unpuppeteered object, he he looks real. He looks like a dead thing. <laughs> but when he comes alive, of course, is when the eyes are moving and when you see those little movements in the brow and in the ears. Because other than that, he can't really express. But Dave was telling me that Frank Oz was just so amazing at kind of commanding his troops. You know, there was there was um, Frank and there was two other puppeteers and there was Dave doing the eyes. And they would walk around an empty room with Frank, just with his hand up in the air, no puppet on there. And he would do the lines and he would say blink and they would all say blink. And they knew that when he blinked, it wasn't just the eyes, the brow would have to come down as well. And the ears might drop or something like that. And they rehearsed it and rehearsed it and rehearsed it until it was just second nature. So when they got to those lines on set, and they knew there was a blink here and there was a blink after this line and there was a raise of the eyebrow after this line they would just do it by rote you know they would they would be so um so trained that it would just become as i say second nature and that's this kind of stuff we just don't i don't know we don't understand what puppeteers are going through i mean there's a there's a scene where you can actually see his brow synchronizing with his mouth because frank's hand has gone dead and he can't feel the difference between his thumb and his fingers because his thumb is in the jaw and his his forefinger and his middle finger are in the top part by um and it's just because he's shot to pieces and he's, he's just tired and he, his blood has drained out of his hand. So all of this, um, you know, this sweat and blood and tears went into that performance. And boy, does it show. I, I think it's got to be one of the most effective puppets ever put on screen. You just buy it, don't you? You just completely buy it. And he looks so much, and I'm sorry to be this guy, but he looks so much better as a puppet than he does as a digital creation. He looks alive as a puppet and he just looks like a computer graphic as a computer animated thing. So when I saw him in the prequels, I was just like, what is going on? He just doesn't look right. And he, he just has that life to him in empire. And then in the, the, which one was it? There's in the middle of the sequels, there's the puppet again. And he just doesn't, it just doesn't look right. He's got his chins wrong. They've not done his top lip because his whole top lip, fleshed out that was the first job dave barkley had when he was employed age 19 by Stuart freeborn the the makeup genius and the idea of fleshing out that top lip was to make him look more like einstein with einstein's um mustache so you'll see a couple of promotional shots i think there's like a pepsi advert or something uh i think it's just a still and it's a yoda cast that of the puppet before that lip was done and he looks completely wrong the one in the in the sequels, the puppet just doesn't look right to me. It just doesn't move right. It doesn't. I mean, it sounds different, obviously, because Frank is older now. That's kind of excusable, but it just it doesn't work. It really it doesn't feel like Yoda to me. You look at how 
beautiful and graceful Yoda looks in, in The Empire Strikes Back. And then you look in that sequel and it's just kind of, that's a puppet wobbling around on someone's arm. It also feels like the way they painted him in Empire was more subtle than in The Last Jedi. Was it The Last Jedi or the other one? I think it's The Last Jedi, you're right, yeah. Yeah, where he shows up as a force ghost, right? Yeah, and in uh, Phantom Menace, before he was CG, he was he was very dark green, and it just didn't feel right. What sold Yoda for me as a, as a little kid was um, his emotional state through the position of his ears. And that's just not something that you as a little kid would think of but when it happens you're like okay i've been around cats and dogs and i've seen their ears and i know what the positions mean and you can tell when yoda is very disappointed that luke gives up raising the x-wing out of the swamp his ears just droop all the way and he's like oh come on guy this is what we're here for let's, let's come on but then when when he when it when it starts to come out his whole face just changes and it feels like there's like there's way more muscle control in there than there really is because the whole face changes i mean his eyes start to bug out you can see him getting happy even with the limited movement of the mouth the ears go up and yeah it just didn't feel like that any other time i see him there's there's just nothing compares to the original well, there's two performances that he's doing as well. There's Yoda, the guy who shows up. Well, there's the thing that shows up that you don't know is Yoda, who's there fucking around with Luke's stuff, trying to eat his little breadstick, those kind of things. And then there's the Yoda who suddenly says, I can't train this boy. And just like suddenly becomes so serious and starts speaking to that disembodied Ben it's like, wow. And like, oh, so this was the guy. And I like that Lucas is like, okay, yeah, we've seen this character before. We've seen the guy who you think is a joke, but actually turns out to be the master. And, you know, only the hero is the one who treated him with any sort of respect. I don't know if Luke necessarily treats him with respect. He's just kind of done with him. And I think that's one of the reasons why Yoda's just like, I can't train this kid. This kid is just reckless, just angry. Answer me this. Did you not think that that's what Yoda was doing in that scene? Because it always felt like that to me, that he was testing Luke. He yes. was trying to piss him off as much oh, as yeah. possible to see if he flew off the handle. Then why in these sequels, uh, what was it, The Last Jedi, we said, is he back to this kind of crazy, eccentric, you know, laughing, legs-kicking character? That's not Yoda, as far as I'm concerned. The Yoda that I kind of read in The Empire Strikes Back, he's testing Luke. He's pushing him as far as he can. Uh, you know, he's, he's trapped on this swamp planet. He's crashed into the water. Is that Yoda's doing? Maybe. You know, he's, he's, um, yeah, he's just trying to piss him off to see if he can see where his buttons are, you know, <laughs> see where his limit is. And then, then he says, as you say, he turns and says, I cannot train him. And that's exactly what he was doing there. Maybe he's acting like that with Luke because Luke just gave up and he's like, Hey, you dummy, what are you doing? Come on. And he's, and he, and he, and he can mess around with him because he knows, you know, that Luke is fully trained and he's competent. And I don't know. I, I haven't thought much about it. One of the smartest things, too, when it comes to empires, now we are starting to get more into musical themes. So Yoda has a theme, and we hear that full bore when he's bringing the X Wing out of the swamp. That moment of him, just this 
fucking puppet with his eyes closed and his arm up and then the, the ship moving across, but that music going, my goodness, that just, it gives you chills. And Dave Barkley under a pile of leaves operating him in that shot as well. <laughs> Frank had had to leave to go and do Sesame Street Live and Dave said, I got, I got treated a little bit differently. They just laid me on the ground, cover me in leaves and said, okay, rolling. <laughs> 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 but yeah, that, that music is fantastic. Cause you think back to, um, Star Wars and I guess Princess Leia had a theme. I guess the droids have that kind of plinky plunky kind of theme. But yeah, you're right. In, when we get to the Empire Strikes Back, you've got Vader's theme, you've got Yoda's theme, you've got the love theme. That score is amazing. I, I've not stopped listening to it since I was a, a kid. I think I've listened to it probably 20 times a year for the last 40 years. I don't know what it was about my family, but they were always like buying the off-brand stuff, you know, like that, that, <laughs> like when you go into Farmer Jackson, there's the, like the two red stripes kind of thing, or like, you know, the, the store branded version of things, the Kirkland brand, right? But <laughs> they bought me the Empire Strikes Back soundtrack, but they bought me the Miko version. <laughs> <laughs> they knew that I was a Star Wars fan. So my grandmother sent me the sheets and they were for the black hole. And somebody oh. else sent me uh, a blanket and it was for space 1999. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> it's like, you're, you're close. You know that I like science fiction stuff, but what the fuck are you doing sending me this? And then, yeah, so I, I'm very familiar with the disco versions of, you know, Leia's theme and Yoda's theme and all that. There should be a version of the movie with that soundtrack on that would. I had that same problem with family as well. I remember that following Christmas, I wanted all the figures, you know, and obviously we had the Palatoy figures here as well as the Kenner ones that used to come over from the States. And I remember feeling my Christmas presents thinking, oh, this is an action figure. This is an action figure. I opened it up and it was uh, Spock. Oh, God. <laughs> I just, oh. And I know that look that I must have given my parents then because it's the same look my girls give me now if I haven't quite bought them the right thing. <laughs> it's, the, it's the four-year-old, five-year-old version of what the hell did I just get? <laughs> One of my best, it was either birthday or Christmas. I think it was birthday. Like, again, completely clueless. So, like, I don't know things about, like, when action figures are coming out and when lines of action figures are happening because, you know, they would introduce them as, like, a set of whatever. So it's like, here's the first 12 figures from Empire Strikes Back. Here's the next 12 figures, let's say. I feel safe here. Thanks to Lando Calrissian. Welcome to Cloud City. From Kenner's Star Wars, the Empire Strikes Back collection, action figures R2-D2, New Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia, each sold separately. And here's action figures Boba Fett, Darth Vader, and new IG-88. They can't escape us. I'll get the bounty. No, Bob, I will. You've got your mission, man. Now move out. IG-88, Bosk, Lando Calrissian, and other action figures each sold separately. From Star Wars, the Empire Strikes Back collection, new from Kenner. My grandparents were watching me and I went over, we went over to Toys R Us and RIP Toys R Us. And <laughs> there was, there were new figures up on the, 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 the area where you keep the figures. And I was just like, Oh my God, this is great. And they're just like, yeah, you can have one of each, whatever you want. And then I look at the back and I go, Oh, yeah, Hey, there's all these other figures. And they were nice enough to actually get somebody from Toys R Us to go in the back and bring uh -huh. out a big old box and open it up. And I'm just like, yep, that one's new. That one's new. That one's new. And then pretty soon all these kids realized what was going on and just started swarming this box. And I'm just like, no, no, it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> 
But that was great to get all those brand new figures. And I was just so thrilled to see. And, and the thing I like about Empire too is that there's the whole idea of these people that you don't know. Like we're talking about Boba Fett. Like you don't know Boba Fett's story, but he's super interesting. And you get things like, Lobot. I fucking love Lobot. Like, what a badass he is. But I'm like, I have no idea who this guy is. This is great, though. He's right there, you know, gets that little signal, opens up his eyes, and he goes and saves everybody. There's all the other bounty hunters that are on Vader's ship, and you're just like, who is this? Look at this guy. You know, this is fantastic. And apparently, I never knew that 4LOM and Zuckus changed names, that they were Labeled wrong, around, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> they're still that way round for me. I can't get it out of my head. I remember when I was a kid arguing with 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 my friends, and I'm like, "There is no character in this movie that is organic that has letters and numbers in his name." Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, "Yeah, but the package says." I'm like, "I know, I know, but I got the last laugh." So, do you call them up and remind them? Those two are, have 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 become my favorite two characters. I don't know why. Probably because you know I loved Boba Fett, and now he is everywhere. And I'm like, I got to find somebody else. I'll take these two guys. <laughs> That's fine. They're neat looking. I like the fact that Lobot kind of represents something for me because, you know, we all grew up wanting to be Han or Luke. I've grown up, I look more like Lobot than he <laughs> I'm fat Lobot. <laughs> I love the uh, the cape that, well, I'll call him 4LOM, uh, but, but really Zuckus, I suppose, that he wore. And I love the little cloth cape that Yoda had and the little orange snake that he came with as well. Did you ever take the cloak off of Zuckus, Forlom, whoever, and see underneath his billowy, like, Princess Leia-looking outfit underneath yes. that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, yeah, that, yeah. I'm like, oh, he's got to look like right? some kind of bug or something underneath here. What, what, what is this silk outfit he has? Right. He's got, <laughs> he's got Jerry Seinfeld's puffy shirt. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm putting his gear back on him. All right. <laughs> I love that. Kirshner sometimes sounds like Yoda in his, uh, what he's doing, like commentaries and stuff. He's got such a distinct voice. There's even, uh, I listened to the audiobook again of, uh, uh, Kaminsky's, what is it? Secrets of Star Wars or not how Star Wars conquered the universe. I think that's the other guy, but yeah, the secret history of Star Wars, I think is the Kaminsky book. And, on the audio version of it, they have guys that do – it's either the the guy who's doing the reading or it might be – It is, a, yeah. Okay. It's, yeah, it's he, the one guy, yeah. He can flip into like a George Lucas voice. He's got a voice for Kirshner, a voice for uh, Kurtz, a voice for Kasdan. So it's uh, really neat to listen to that. Yeah, I listened to that recently as well. And I, it's really – he's Lucas. He's slightly wrong pitch, but it's, it's bang on otherwise. It's really good. It? It's, yeah. it's really good. And yeah, that Kirshner has got the kind of swallowed the throat, the kind of yeah, <laughs> yeah. And he's got a little bit of like a New York accent as well when he talks. That's so. pretty good, yeah. yeah. But then you can take that you can take that voice and then kind of pitch it down and, and yeah, uh. yeah. <laughs> I would spend hours as a kid being Yoda. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Once you realize you can close your throat in like that, this. Uh... And that, again, that performance, like when he'll get into those moments where it's like, you will be, you know, it's like, oh man, terrifying, fucking serious. <laughs> yeah. 
And yeah, you're right. It does feel like months pass when they're on Dagobah. Maybe it's one of those planets like in Interstellar where like, you know, if you go on it, like years pass when you're on there. Would have just been one line of dialogue on the Falcon. Settle in, princess. It's going to take us a couple weeks to get there. Because they have no hyperdrive, so of course it'll take a little longer, and then Fett would figure out where they are, jet ahead, and uh, yeah. But that's, you know, it's it's the, the omission of that one line that then causes everybody to argue about it. We don't need the explanation because it works so well. I think when, when people start to pull apart, like, the later movies, the, the minute they've seen them, it's because they don't work. We we can forgive these little oversights, if we want to call them that, because everything else works so well. The characters are strong, the story's strong, the sets are amazing, you know. You just want to, I wanted to live in those films. I mean, I still, I'm 45 in a couple of weeks. I still want to live in these movies. <laughs> I suppose, too, if you really pick apart, you could be like, oh, well, when Han Solo is back at the base on Hoth, you know, like Luke should have already been here and blah, blah, blah. But I don't even think about that stuff. It's just like, nope, this is happening. Or it, you know, a lot of it is that editing convention of like, okay, now we're going to go back with just a few minutes and show you what happened. And then we'll catch up with the story kind of thing. Cause yeah, it, it works for me. I do too, like in the cave on Hoth. And I like too that there are multiple caves in this movie, that there's the cave on Hoth. There's, you could kind of call being inside of a giant slug a cave in the asteroid oh, yeah. field. Well, they then, did. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, it is, it is a cave, isn't it? Until they're in the slug that was in the cave, right? Yeah. They don't just fly into its arsehole. That's what I wondered. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what I wondered if what happened. <laughs> and then, of well, course, know, the cave on Dagobah, you know? Yeah. And, the the interesting thing about the tree cave is that if you look at the walls, it's it's a structure at some point, but it's mm-hmm. but it's kind of hidden, and it kind of hints towards the the lower darker levels of Cloud City. It does, yeah. It's got that kind of tapered, um, yeah. It's wider at the bottom and tapered at the top, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Just so so brilliantly understated, just subtle foreshadowing. As kids, uh, we were all like, oh, that means Luke will be the next Darth Vader. Uh, does it, though? Or does it mean that, you know, are we are we looking at foreshadowing of him being his father? Are we looking at his fall, just his fall to the dark side? Or It could mean so many things, but basically it means fuck around and find out. You're your own worst enemy kind of thing, yeah. That entrance to the cave that's one of the first times where luke just openly disobeys yoda where he's like hey you don't need your weapons he's like fuck you guy i'm gonna put on these weapons anyway and then it really kind of presages his downfall because like oh yeah now i gotta go save my friends it's like well you can do that and ruin everything that they've been fighting for or you can finish your training it's just like yep i'm out of here bye i don't know if i necessarily catch the idea of him potentially embracing the dark side as much as I think I'm supposed to. I think that Luke has good intentions and of course those paved the way to hell, but it feels like he maybe should have been tempted a little bit more to use the dark side, but I'm fine with how everything plays out. That's interesting. You say, you know, good intentions pave the way to hell because that's what the freezing chamber is supposed to be. So he literally ends up there. He paves his own way. I think I always think um, that bit when he walks into the cave and he takes his, you know, weapons with him. And then we see him holding his gun as well, don't we, in Cloud City. Like he sort of checks his gun 
And I just think about that line, you know, hokey religions and ancient weapons are no match for a good blaster at your side, kid. Um, that Hans says in the, in the first movie. Um, it does feel like he's not quite ready to accept the way of the Jedi, that he's still kind of connected to the, the more basic world at that point. You know, he's, he feels like he just needs to tap his little blaster at his side to make sure it's there. The prequels definitely sent a mixed message on that because Obi-Wan couldn't kill Grievous without a blaster. So, you know, is it just, is it just pride in their, you know, being defensive and not attacking? Because obviously a blaster isn't a defensive weapon, but you know, Luke is going ahead without the Jedi order being a thing. And maybe Yoda's decided, yeah, maybe a gun's fine every now and then. Cause even in Jedi, when he's supposed to be a master, you know, in theory, cause he's wearing black, that's, you know, black belts, black outfits. Um, he pulls a gun on Jabba, but you know, is that part of the plan to get thrown downstairs and captured? And there's more questions there. So very elaborate plan. He doesn't use a blaster for the rest of the movie after the one time he pulls it on Jabba. Hmm. If I remember right. Oh, well, the one on the speeder bike, but that's different. You can't throw your lightsaber that fast. Ben says that he wants Luke to go see Yoda and that Yoda was the one that trained him. Did they just throw that out for the prequels? Because I don't remember Yoda training Ben at all. It was just all Qui-Gon Jinn. I figured since they showed Yoda training all the little kids, that's Yoda's roundabout way of, uh, I mean, Ben's roundabout way of saying things. I think it was an oversight in the writing. It's true from a certain point of view. <laughs> yeah, Ben's a liar. That's really what it is. I just, in this Obi-Wan series, I just want him to just make stuff up the whole time. <laughs> That'd be nice. Just, just bullshit his way around. Yeah, <laughs> just lie about everything. I didn't always lie. No, when I was a kid, I, I told the truth. Yeah, that's what happened. Yeah, I was there when they slaughtered all those kids in the Jedi Temple. I helped. I helped. He helped by not being there. So there you go. All right, let's go ahead and take another break. Up next, you're going to hear from author Rebecca Harrison, who wrote the BFI book of The Empire Strikes Back. You are a huge Star Wars fan. I am a huge Star Wars fan. To a point, I always, even now, I still feel slightly like I'm trespassing on territory I'm not meant to for some strange reason. But yeah, yeah, I've been a Star Wars fan since I was a kid, and mostly through the films. And then more recently, I've started to get into some of the novelizations and tentative steps into the comics. Um, but I'm, I'm aware that there are other people out there with so much knowledge of all of those things that I don't have. I've always been more more into the films than anything else. No, me as well. I've never stepped foot really into the expanded universe. Yeah, I think it's, it's quite overwhelming because there's just so much stuff out there that I think it's difficult to know what to what to start with. What was the first Star Wars film you saw? The first one I remember seeing is Return of the Jedi, which was on TV in my dad's lounge, I think. So it must have been like a tiny, tiny TV, probably in the late 80s. I was really tiny, maybe three or four years old. I just happened to have quite a good memory of from quite an early age. And I remember being mostly disinterested in it, disinterested in it until it got to the point where Everyone's on Endor, and Luke and Leia are on the the speeders going through the trees. And I think it was the sound of it, probably, that actually drew me into into the film. But those moments where Leia is on screen, and then, of course, she's Ewoks, 
and then you get some sequences with R2 and 3PO. And I think it was a combination of maybe a woman's voice and the cuddly teddy bears and, and droids that really, really drew me into it. Um, I mean, I joke about the Ewoks. But I'm not ashamed to say that they were a really formative part of my Star Wars fandom. And I was absolutely obsessed with the Ewok cartoons that were kind of circulating and broadcast on British TV in the 80s and my, I made my parents tape them. I would just watch them on a loop over and over again to the point where even now there are certain episodes that I tell you exactly what happens and who says what and I know both of the different theme tunes. How did you get into actually writing about films? I'm not sure how I got into writing about films. It just seemed to happen organically almost. studied film at uni from the age of about 16 onwards, I think. As soon as I could, I was learning about it, trying to make very bad films, but found that I definitely had more of a talent writing about them than making them at that age. And then, and then yeah, just had a kind of passion for cinema and, and moving images in general that meant that I just kind of kept going with it. And every opportunity that I had to study them more and to write about them more, I took it. I ended up spending the best part of 10 years at uni studying cinema and then have been researching them, writing about them as an academic and a critic ever since. So I'm incredibly privileged to have a position like this where I get to, to spend all my time thinking about something that I that I just love. Was there any resistance as far as writing about things so, I'm using air quotes, frivolous as science fiction or Star Wars when you initially started doing it? Were you more encouraged to write about, say, Citizen Kane? Like 100%. And it's that's an interesting question because even today, just following the news about the, the state of stuff, the content that Disney are producing, the TV shows and films, you can see this, of course, and these kinds of arguments playing out all over social media among film critics. And I think it's very much the case that to enjoy and to write about franchise films, blockbusters, Star Wars, certain genres, science fiction and action films, is still really, really in the mind in certain parts of film criticism and definitely in academia. The first book that I wrote about film was all about British films from 1895 to 1948, and it deals with ideas about modernity and empire and the intersections between film and railways and other technologies. And it's actually, in many ways, it's not a million miles away from what I do with Star Wars. There's a lot of overlap. But whereas that is kind of appreciated and seen as being kind of serious scholarly work, which all of 10 people have ever read... The stuff that I write about Star Wars, I find gets kind of marginalized and, and definitely undermined. And I think people just assume that I'm doing something fun and lightweight and it's not really that important. But I mean, to my mind, something that so many people have seen that underpins kind of cultural memory and understanding of so many different things. And it's such a huge global phenomenon to my mind. I'm like, surely it's really important that we're trying to understand how that's happened and what all these films and TV shows mean. What were some of your first pieces that you wrote about Star Wars? I started out writing a couple of articles that looked at the film's politics 
and representation, which are two things which still fascinate me and are kind of central to a lot of my writing. Um, so I did kind of write a, sh- a couple of short pieces around the rise of the time that the rise of Skywalker came out. But I was planning a much longer form piece of work, which will eventually be a book, which I'm hoping should be out in maybe the next three or four years time. From there, I've written lots of, of reviews. I've also done some research on how much screen time all of the different women characters get in each of the films, which has been fascinating to to see how these different patterns play out and which of the trilogies is better for representation and, and which aren't. So I've written quite a bit about that as well. And then more recently, I've been discussing The Empire Strikes Back in a lot more depth and really looking into its history more. Tell me, how did the uh, the book come about? So the book came about because I was talking quite a bit about the, the research that was going into this bigger Star Wars book that I'm writing. And I had been discussing that online. And I think by that point, some of my research had been picked up by different media outlets. And I'd been talking about it on the radio and, and various other places. So a... An editor at Bloomsbury who ran the, the BFI Film Classics series got in touch with me and said, would I consider submitting a proposal to write about The Empire Strikes Back for that series? Partly because they wanted to start trying to invite new voices into that series. And so much of what has been said about Star Wars has been dominated by white voices. So in some ways, I'm kind of a continuation of that. It's not that exciting to have me do it. But it's overwhelmingly dominated by men's voices. So they were looking for a way of kind of shaking that up and having some new perspectives on Star Wars and Empire in particular. Yeah, I put together a proposal for that and it was accepted. um, And then I was just kind of left to my own devices to, within the framework of how those books operate like they ask you to do certain things within them but otherwise I was just given complete license to go away and research and write about whatever happened to interest me in response to the film I can tell by reading the book that you spent a lot of time doing research and it just feels like such a rich tapestry looking at previous writings on things and then bringing your own vision to it I have to ask how long did it take you to research the book so I was probably researching it for 18 months, I think. Maybe a bit less than that in terms of like dedicated time looking at Empire. But I had been, probably prior to writing it, I had been thinking about and researching Star Wars in some capacity for about three years. So it was I was kind of familiar with where the resources were that I needed to then go and find them. I would say reasonably easy but it, to find things. But then actually so much of the historical material related to Star Wars is not accessible and it's held by Lucasfilm or by George Lucas and it's really, really difficult to get to or unfortunately it just hasn't been kept. It's quite challenging. You'd think that, you know, it's Star Wars, everyone knows it, this stuff should be easy to find but it's it's quite tricky. You do have to know where to look. And it sounds like you did a lot of interviews for this as well. Can you tell me about some of those? Yeah, this was the probably the most fun elements of doing this research was actually meeting people and talking to them about their experiences in relation to the film. Sadly, just because the book is so short and because of the 
how much you have to include. I actually didn't get to write anywhere near as much about the the interviews as I would like. Um, but they will, I think, be coming out in different forms and in other places in future. Uh, so one of them was an interview with Ferry Hardin, who was one of the original Star Wars superfans. So back in 1980, she was camping out outside the Egyptian theater in L.A. Uh, for three days, queuing to see the film, and got loads of press attention and gave loads of media interviews. But a kind of really well-known figure on the scene, and she used to win kind of cosplay competitions with her Yoda puppet. So she was so much fun to talk to and had such great stories. And it was just really interesting to talk to someone who was there at the time who could say, women have always been there. Women of colour have always been there. People were cross-dressing in the queue. People who were queer were always there. So different to the narrative in the contemporary news media and in certain sections of Star Wars fandom that have been built up and mythologized to suggest that it was always the boys, it was always just men. It was really great to uncover more of that story and to include some of Terry's um, interview in the book. Um, And the other ones, I I only get actually managed to get interviews maybe about a month before the manuscript had to, you know, it was like in the absolute final stages of going to press. I had to like beg the editor to let me include even tiny fragments of them. And I was so lucky. I got to go to Finza in Norway in March of this year, just before lockdown started, and which is the location that they used to film Hoth in the film. So uh, I got to go and climb up the side of the glacier uh, where all of the Atat battles happened, which was possibly, I mean, it was absolutely amazing, possibly as someone who is not a natural skier. And this is somewhere that they use for Antarctic winter training. It was also one of the most stupid things I've ever done. It was very hard. <laughs> I did. There were a couple of moments where I did think to myself, I'm going to die. Um, but, but here I am. I made it. They looked after me. And I got to interview uh, Peter McDonald, who was the second assistant director, who was kind of basically in charge of all of the location shooting or the hot scenes, alongside Mike Brewster, who was one of the, the camera operators out in Norway, and also Madeline Most, who was the only woman in the camera department in the studio Elstree, and she worked on the first two films. So listening to to their stories and what they had to say, I mean, the, the Norway shoot, I think it's kind of reasonably well known among Star Wars fans that it was challenging environment to work in. Some of the stories about what they had to endure for weeks at a time with, I think they had the worst winter on record. So by the time they started shooting, it should have been starting to to heat up and it was actually springtime. But somehow like the winter just went on and on and on to the point where some days all they could do was open the back door of the, the hotel and chew out of the door um, to say that when you get there, and everyone told me this in advance. Oh, when you get there, it's just a railway station and a hotel and a shop and there's nothing else there. And they, they genuinely mean it. Like there is nothing else. And you are, it's so remote. You're just surrounded by snow on all sides. There's, there's nothing else there. 
I think Harrison Ford got stranded on his way up there by an avalanche. The scene where Luke gets struck down by the Wampa, that's, that was literally him throwing himself on the ground outside of the hotel door because they couldn't go out any further than that. They lost equipment that fell down the side of the mountain that they had to go and recover. The trenches where the rebels have, have dug out for the, the battle against the Atats, of course, they couldn't film that in a day. So every day they would go out and the snow would have filled the trenches in again. So they had to dig them all the time over and over. So it sounds like a real, it was a real team effort because, you know, everyone had to muck in and do everyone else's jobs. Otherwise, they just wouldn't have been able to get that footage. I have to tell you, I really appreciate that you are concentrating so much in the book the voices of the people who have been underrepresented and it is it's it's such a refreshing take i've never read anything like it before oh thank you i mean that was what i wanted to achieve when i went into it because i mean, i was was actually a bit terrified of taking this project on because you know you feel like so many people have seen these films everyone has an opinion and they mean so much to people that there's you know, there's a lot of books out there about Star Wars already. So I was so nervous about having something new and original to say. And in the end, I kind of went with the advice I would give to my students when they're writing, which is actually often the most interesting that you have to say, thing you have to say is what you feel about something. Um, so, I mean, obviously I wanted to get as much research in there as possible and to include as many different voices as I could. But it did really strike me when I was doing the kind of surveys of what's out there about Star Wars and what have people said about Empire. So much of it is about George Lucas. And that's not to say that that isn't interesting, because I think it is. And there's a lot of really fascinating and informative work out there, which I like, which focuses on, on his contributions and creation of the franchise. But it does mean that there are all of these hidden histories and stories. More recently, that's become more common among Star Wars fans to histories, or certainly they're more visible because they're on social media. So Amy Rochot, who runs the 365 Days of Star Wars Women Project, for example, she's been interviewing so many different women that work behind the scenes across the franchise in the films and the TV shows and the comics and so on. And that's such a brilliant resource. And so I would recommend everyone has a look at that. But yeah, just to, to be able to speak to people involved in the film, even in general. I mean, this isn't just about Star Wars. This is a problem in the film industry more generally. It's like, you know, how many people who are interested in film know what a second assistant director does? I mean, I didn't even really know before kind of starting this project. So it's been great to be able to share all these stories. But I mean, I feel like I've learned so much from doing it as well. I also very much appreciated that you were giving different readings to the film than stuff I had read before. All of us have probably heard about, you know, Vietnam analogies to the first Star Wars film. There's definitely a lot of racial tension, especially in the second film. You know, there were no black characters in the first film. So it's just, it was really nice to read that. And especially also the queer narrative that you, you pulled out of that. These things are always really difficult to talk about because you don't want to, I mean, I've kind of offered some quite positive readings of the film, which I think people might not expect in relation to, certainly to race and gender. And that's always tricky because you don't want to sort of overstate those readings at the expense of being able to recognise actually still this is the 
of representation is crap in these films in so many different ways. But yeah, but I also do feel like it's important where where I do take something away that's positive to to hold on to those moments because Star Wars has so many different fans who cross so many different identities and demographics. But, you know, we have to have space to like things within these films, even when we don't see ourselves on screen. Being able to think about why that is feels really like a, a useful thing to do. With the queer reading, I actually, most of what I had to say about that didn't make it into the book because, again, just because of the amount of space that there there is. So while I was in the book focusing on kind of queer readings of different characters, which I just find endlessly fascinating in these films. There's actually a, a kind of whole hidden history of queer kind of filmmaking and aesthetics, which I wrote about in a in a subsequent article. Because actually when I started looking at who was involved in the production and what productions they had been involved with before working on Empire, there are loads of people involved in these films who have been working on these kind of cult British and Hollywood queer cinema classics. So the director of Empire, Irving Kirshner, he had his previous film was The Eyes of Laura Mars, which I think he kind of tended to distance himself from a bit because he didn't like what the studio did with the film. But that nevertheless is this incredibly camp fashion film. Billy Dee Williams similarly had been involved in Mahogany, which again is like the campest of camp aesthetics that you could possibly imagine. Peter Shositsky, who was the cinematographer, had worked on the Rocky Horror Picture Show and the Ken Russell film Listomania. And then when I started to think back through British and Hollywood film history to what other films look like Empire, and they were all kind of, you know, like the Powell and Pressburger film The Red Shoes, which is the kind of famous dance movie. And there were just so many others. And I was like, this film is like, it's absolutely rooted in this kind of camp aesthetic and actually maybe it has or maybe it offers and speaks to LGBTQI communities and histories of film in a way that we haven't really talked about before um, I think because again we're like we all buy into the idea that it's, it's kind of quite masculinized because of the genre because of the, the filmmakers because of the fandom around it there's actually quite a lot of scope to, to read these films in these kind of more subversive ways, which I really hope other people see kind of things like this in other Star Wars films and pick out more of these kinds of histories, because I, I think there's loads of stories like this to tell. And other people's voices, particularly people you know more marginalized than me, will have really exciting things to say about them in future. When you look at these films, do you see yourself represented on screen at all? Yes and no. <laughs> I mean, there's parts of some of the characters where I feel like, yep, that speaks to me and I get that. I think possibly Leia's power and authority and being a princess is slightly different from my own background. But I mean, I'm quite lucky because I am a white woman. I even have dark hair, which I mean, even if you're a weirdly, even if you're a blonde woman, you're kind of not really well represented in Star Wars. They do have a particular type. Leia is the kind of archetype of pretty much all of the women that come afterwards uh, until we get to the, the way more recent um, sequels and spin-offs. I was actually always found myself, and I, maybe it's one of the reasons why I like Rogue One so much, 
feeling like I had a, an association or a connection with Jin Erso's character. I think that's because she effectively spends most of the film trying to find things in an archive. Uh, so from a, from a personal point of view, I'm like, yeah, I can, I can identify that. I can really get on board with what she's trying to do there. And the, what often feels like quite a futile endeavor when you're, when you're trying to find things in an archive as well. I have to say, I'm quite glad that none of my, none of my research has had quite that level of galactic importance attached to it. One of the big areas for me that I feel like, you know, I, I know that, for example, even black women get such a terrible time in Star Wars films, black characters in general, people of color more generally do not have good representation. And one of the things that bothers me as a, a bi woman, a bi cis woman, is that there are no queer characters in Star Wars on screen, or at least not with speaking parts where their sexuality is kind of a part of their character and who they are in a way that makes any sense within the narrative. And like that, I I think is a huge shame. I, I'm longing for trans and gay and lesbian representation in these films and in some of the upcoming TV shows in a more explicit way. Yeah, I really think they missed the boat by not exploring the relationship between Finn and Poe Dameron. It is an absolute mystery. Not a mystery. I mean, I kind of know why they didn't see that, but it will forever be one of my big frustrations with those films is that each of the films has a moment where it alludes to that and it acknowledges that part of the relationship could be there, but does absolutely nothing with it. That kind of queer baiting that we see across big franchises. And yeah, I just find so incredibly frustrating. The representation of people of color is just so lacking. And if there are queer characters other than C-3PO, I don't know who they would be. So nobody's up front with anything. And to have a, a queer robot is basically disenfranchising them because there are no other queer robots. 3PO is so kind of conforming to a very anti-queer kind of homophobic stereotype of a fussy camp effeminate useless and easy to ignore kind of character that i mean and, and in empire he is literally dismantled and disabled he's taken apart so yeah there's not much that that character can do um i mean the interestingly the emperor in the original version of empire was played by a woman whose name I think off the top of my head was Marjorie Eaton. So it was actually a woman underneath the, the hood and they have transposed, I think it's like a, a chimpanzee's eyes over the top of her face to make her look more terrifying. And there's actually, there's a kind of history in these films of kind of cross-dressing and women playing men's characters. So I think there's a, a woman playing... Greedo in some of those shots in in the first version of A New Hope and also one of the bounty hunters, Zuckus, as well. Um, I think the actress's name is Stephanie English, I think. Um, so there is a kind of queering of gender in relation to kind of who's playing the role and the gender of the character that we're seeing on screen. But that obviously isn't really enough in terms of terms of representation unless you know that those things exist with characters kind of hidden by masks and prosthetics it doesn't really exactly further uh queer representation at all 
Yeah, as soon as you say that, I think of Princess Leia as a bouche in Return of the Jedi. Again, she's cross-dressing in there. Yes, yeah, and we see that a few times. I mean, that's a trope that they kind of keep coming back to is kind of moments where you think it's a man on screen and then a woman takes off off the helmet. I think even they do that with, with Rey in The Force Awakens right at the beginning. I remain, I would like to say optimistic but that's maybe not true i remain hopeful that that will that will change with these uh new additions to the star wars universe that it's about to get what has been the reaction to the book so far actually it has been broadly speaking really positive i was kind of overwhelmed actually it went to a reprint on the day that it, it launched which was really overwhelming i was not anticipating that at all and i mean i've had emails from people around the world. I had someone write to me from Hong Kong and someone else write from Brazil and across the UK and the US. And I always because I mean I've had I've had some negative responses, shall we say, to my Star Wars book in Lust, which have been quite high in volume and unpleasant to deal with. So every time I ever see Star Wars in the subject line for someone's address I don't know in my in my inbox. I always have a moment where I kind of tense up and think, oh no, what's this going to be? And yeah, this time every single person has written in this like really lovely capacity to say I really enjoyed it. To have also, I mean, this was just the thing that was like, okay, I don't care what what the reviews look like or what anyone else says. I've had a number of queer Star Wars fans write me to say like, thank you because I feel included. I feel like you need to read this and this has helped me to to see another way of thinking about scores or I mean I, what I really hope is it then inspires those people to write about it themselves and to kind of carry this forward and to kind of galvanize and use the momentum to change the conversations that people are having which I mean people have been doing in journalism and online for a long time um, I'm not doing anything new in that capacity, but I think I'm able to say something, to say something different and to be more inclusive in this really, really mainstream space is important. But yes, generally, I've just been thrilled that people have been enjoying it and that it means something to them. I know you said that you're working on a larger Star Wars book, which I imagine will kind of cover a lot more than just Empire and, and more of a the, what, 11 films that we're at now? That's in a few years. Hopefully we'll see that. What else are you working on these days? Alongside that, I'm actually doing a totally different project, which, I mean, it's been really impacted by the, the pandemic alongside the kind of research that I've been doing, which is with or kind of finding ways to support indigenous communities in Mexico who struggling with archiving all of their video content and the kinds of moving image materials that they've created, documenting their history over the last 30 years or so. And that has implications for some of the other people I'm working with and some of the organizations there, because a lot of that video footage is documenting the kind of extremes of climate change that they're experiencing. So I'm just kind of involved in the project in my capacity as someone who thinks about technology and archiving and inequality kind of comes through in these kinds of documentations on, um, yeah, just trying to kind of help out with that 
as and where I can. But that has, yeah, that has stalled, unfortunately, at the moment. But hopefully we'll get to, to pick that up in the near future. Is there a good place online for people to keep up with you and your work? Yes. So I have a, a website, which is writingonreels.uk, which is where I collate all of the different writing that I'm doing about Star Wars and the film criticism and some of the broadcasting work that I do. But the most easy way to kind of find me and engage with me and chat, if anyone wants to, to talk more about Star Wars, is my Twitter page, which is at Rebecca E. Harrison. Well, Rebecca Harrison, thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful. Well, thank you so much for, for having me on. It's been lovely to, to answer all your questions and to, to talk about Star Wars some more. Till I ran into Ben Kenobi and Luke Skywalker, I had myself a pretty good little operation. They wanted a ride to Alderaan, and they're willing to pay enough so I didn't have to ask any questions. Now I'm in the middle of a rebellion. I'm spending half my time dodging Imperial ships and the other half avoiding Her Holiness. Not only that, but Jabba the Hutt's got a price on my head, and he's put Boba Fett on my trail. Something tells me it's not going to get any better when the Empire Strikes Back. The Empire Strikes Back comes to a theater near you on May the 21st, 1980. This one introduces a lot of things that they'll use and abuse later on. So like the idea of Force Ghosts, having Alec Guinness come back as a ghost. The idea of that conversation that Luke has with Darth Vader via the Force. And then we'll get like whole scenes of that in the sequels and we'll get, you know, so many fucking force ghosts that it doesn't even make sense after a while. It's like, we have to end every movie now with like, and here's all of our dead friends. Stop it. Would you please quit it? I would love it if all of the admirals and captains showed up next to Darth Vader at the end of every movie, you know, and here are the four people that he murdered in this film. Yeah. They all just give him disgusted looks and flip them off. What are you going to do? Double choke me. Mm. There is something quite alarming about the fact, I think it's when he kills Captain Nida, that we even stay, you know, on the shot for long enough to see them carry his dead yes. body out off screen. <laughs> it's, it's pretty heavy stuff for a kid's movie. But there's something about Veers. Is it Veers, the one that, that makes it all the way through to Jedi? Yes. Yep. There's something. Vader likes him for some reason. Or is it Piet? Veers is the guy on the at-at. Oh, that's right. The only guy, the only guy in, the, in all of the movies that, that succeeded in his mission. Yeah, that's him. Yeah, Kenneth Col Coley, his name is, isn't it? Yeah, the actor. The one guy on The Executor. <laughs> He's just like, hey, I guess you did your best. And then he just leaves. That amazing double take that Vader does at the end when he sees the ship go and then he like looks back, then he looks back at the window and he's just like, oh, fuck. I always thought when I was a kid, it's like, okay, well, if they disabled the hyperdrive, if, I mean, it would have been better if they removed it. I mean, just take a whole piece out. Instead, it was just a switch. There is a chance that they'll be able to figure it out. And he knows R2 is with them. So with all of these movies in your head, you're like, yeah, R2. He, Vader looks out the window, he's like, yeah, R2 probably did that. Can't blame anybody else for it, right? So that's probably why he didn't get choked to death. It's like, I know R2's there. Ugh. And that fucking droid I built for my mom is there. Too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that bully. Oh, God. <laughs> I still, I'm still not over it. Stop it. There's that moment when... 
uh, C-3PO is on Chewbacca's back and they're trying to get into the Falcon and Chewbacca hits his head, uh, C-3PO's head and he's just like, ow, ow, that hurts. You know, and it's like, you feel pain. And then there's that, I don't know if you guys know the oral knots. They redid the Phantom Menace and they have this amazing voice for C-3PO and he's just like, why do you awaken me without skin? What of a bargain? You promised me flesh, broad nerves, exposed to the world. Every step is a new nightmare. All I feel is pain. You, why would they do this to me? You want me to feel the pain. Yes, you want me to understand it so that I may show others. Huzzah! I always figured, though, with 3PO, that because he has to convey emotion in his translation, he's programmed with emotions, and therefore, would you not give him some pain receptors as well to understand? Yeah, we got Eve 99 torturing droids in Jabba's palace, so... Yeah, you're right. Well, good pull on the name, by the way. Very nice. Dude, I, you know, it's a droid. I know it. And we do have the little... uh pinpricks going on on Luke's uh, new hand, so I suppose that we do have that technology around where he can feel pain through a robotic uh, uh, piece of him. Yeah, because then, you know, if he if he forgets, you know, <laughs> in a later movie... Wrong hand! Oh, no! We gotta do that whole stunt over again. And, Luke, Luke, and Luke's saying, what else can you replace? I'm just... This whole idea of chopping off arms, chopping off hands, I mean... As I got older, I was just like, and started, you know, to read more Freud. I was just like, boy, oh boy, there is a lot of castration anxiety in these films. This is, and especially that the father cuts off the son's hand. I'm just like, man, oh man, this is really up there. This is like a huge Oedipal battle in the middle of this film. <laughs> I don't, I wonder if it would, because I think it was a, a U here, a U certificate, like universal here. I think it stayed that certificate for some time. I just wonder if it, you know, if it was re- if it was released now with all of that chopping off of limbs, whether it would be a PG. I remember lending it to a, a friend of my daughter's, this kid in her class, another Jamie. He he suddenly got into Star Wars, hadn't seen the films though, and I said, "Oh, I'll lend you the original films," and I gave them to his mum. And <laughs> the following day, she came. She said, "We watched The Empire Strikes Back. There's a lot of limbs flying around in that movie," I, and I was like. Oh, yeah, there is. <laughs> I kind of, I think because it's, having seen it at four and a half, you just kind of accept it. And all these years have gone by without me really sitting down and thinking and counting them, you know? <laughs> For sure, I think that the Wampa arm, it feels so much like that's an homage to Walrus Ban. And then, yeah, when it comes to, I do like that Luke gets a good hit on Darth Vader during that final battle when he, yeah, the shoulder there. Yeah, and that's what finally sends Vader over the edge. He's like, enough of this. <laughs> he makes that great noise, doesn't he, Vader? That to <laughs> like, But then that's he immediately cuts Luke's hand off, doesn't he? He's like, all right, it was all fun and games, but now we're going to talk. Did you guys believe that Darth Vader was telling the truth about him being Luke's father? Yeah, sure, I did. I, I, a hundred percent. I thought well, he's got no reason to lie. I can see now why people wouldn't have thought that maybe when they were a bit older watching it for the first time. Cause you know, he's this, he's the enemy. He's, he's trying to like, like Yoda, he's trying to push Luke's buttons and see what he can make him do. I can't remember. 
if I did or not. I remember we talked about it a lot. You know, why would you trust a bad guy? But it was Luke's face in the helmet. What does that mean? All kinds of stuff. And then I think I believed it. Listening to some of these audiobooks and reading some of these other books that they were saying like, oh, there's an age breakdown where it was like kids this age and younger tended to think that he was lying and kids this age and older seemed to think that he was telling the truth. I was of the age where I thought he was telling the truth. And then, yeah, having the Luke's face and the helmet in the cave definitely helped cement it. My, I came down on the side of whichever side was opposite what everybody else was thinking. Oh, so you're contrarian. Yes. Uh, have you met me? Whereas I thought adults tell the truth. and <laughs> you know that. Well, and then that also does cast, you know, immediately you're like, wait, but why would Ben lie to him? And so that was another good piece of like counter evidence that took a lot out of you when you realized that Ben lied to Luke. And so the whole thing of him going on the adventure was kind of uh, based on a lie. Yeah, I don't I don't go in for that certain point of view thing. No, no, no he's a liar. No. He's a fucking yeah. liar. Yeah. That 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 moment in the first film when he says, you know, how did my father die? And Alec Guinness gives that look kind of to the left. It's like, oh shit, here we go. What am I going to say? What what lie shall I tell now? And that that was just Guinness just, you know, I think he's there's an interview with him somewhere where he says kind of, you know, I've always said that acting is in the eyes and I just did a little thing there where I thought, you know, he's He's thinking back to to his previous times and his early earlier life, and it was never to be kind of deceptive, but it works so well now with that extra information that Vader's just given Luke. I can't remember if it was Kirsch that said this or somebody was talking about Alec Guinness in that when he would read a line and get feedback, it probably was Kirsch, like, hey, could you read this a little differently, that Guinness was like, okay, you know, excuse me for a minute. And he had a book where he had all of his lines written down and he had like little marks above each of the words to have the accent properly, you know, where to, to stress or not stress things. And so that was one of his methods of how he learned his lines was that particular stress on which word. And I was like, Oh, that's really fascinating. That's very meticulous. He actually rewrote a lot of his lines for the first film with uh script supervisor Ann Skinner. She said she went up to Lucas and said, look, there's a few lines that Alec doesn't they don't really come out of his mouth in the right way. He wants to change them a little bit. Can we adapt them? And she's got a, I think the BFI have it here uh, in their archives. She's got this wonderful annotated script where her and Alec Guinness kind of worked on it and just changed a few lines without affecting the the message of the line. But um, just making it fit more for his you know, way of speaking. We were talking about whether we believed Darth Vader was telling the truth or not. One thing that I kept debating with my friends about when I was younger was when Lando goes and checks Han and to make sure that he's still alive in the carbon freeze, I kept thinking he's setting that to unfreeze in like an hour or two. And there's the shot of them pushing Han Solo down the corridor. And I know it's actually from like the, the carbonite and just the way that it was around his mouth. But I swear, I, I kept thinking it looks like it's melting. And I was just like, Oh yeah, he's going to be in the back of slave one and he's going to get up and murder Boba Fett or somehow disable him and then get back and, and be able to join the adventure again. I had no idea that, you know, what was going to happen in Return of the Jedi, of course, but I'm just like, oh yeah, that's a, that, that's a really cool thing. Lando really helped him out. That's a great idea. 
What a shame you were only 11, you know, when Jedi came out. We could have had you on the on the story team. Sometimes it feels like there were a lot of 11-year-olds on the story team. <laughs> or maybe like horny 13-year-olds. And then we'll put <laughs> Carrie Fisher in this metal bikini. <laughs> well, I spoke to Nilo Rodis Jamiro, who designed that costume. I interviewed him for my podcast. He was a great guest. He's just such a great guy. And he was telling me about the, the layer thing. And he said... When he designed that and he showed it to George, he said George was mortified. Uh. He said he just kept saying, no, we're not doing it. We're not doing it. He said, and every time I'd refine the costume and refine it and refine it. And eventually he gave in. But the deal was that they would never produce an action figure of it. And they didn't. Not for the vintage line. They didn't anyway for the original line. Yeah, I mean, that that's pretty out there, that costume. I mean, it's a bit of a leap from what we've seen before. I mean, she's covered like chin to toe in Empire Strikes Back. For the duration, and then all of a sudden... You have Ula, who's attached to Jabba, and she's just wearing a mesh outfit, with and her boob pops out in some scenes. That didn't matter, because she was a, a background character, basically, that had one scene. All three of our main actors, they have never looked as good as they do in this film. I think a lot of it because of Shushitsky's cinematography and, and Kirshner's direction, because, man, I mean... The first time you see Leia in the uh, the Hoth battle station, just the lighting on her, she looks beautiful. Her her features are porcelain, and then yeah, fucking Harrison Ford, it's just like wow, you look great. And he does some of his best finger acting in this film. Practicing for all those years of movies where his finger is a big part of his yeah character, Jack Ryan raging at the camera with his finger pointing. There's a great cut of that on uh, on YouTube somewhere, isn't there? All of Harrison Ford's finger acting. Yes. Yeah, them in the corridor, that back and forth. I mean, that to me, it was probably majorly rewritten, but that to me feels the most the bracket. That feels like the big sleep. That feels like those, that, those kind of hawks points of like the man and woman going back and forth you know that feels like the whole you know the, those quippy lines like uh, that bogart would give or Cary grant would give that tension between those two characters i think really was probably helped by the the bracket script and then of course refined by Kasdan and even refined by lucas you know i i do enjoy the story that after bracket turned in her draft and then subsequently unfortunately passed away that Lucas wrote a couple drafts and that they actually came easy to him because he always talks about how difficult the writing process is. I think though that those scenes in the ice corridors I think there was there are outtakes in fact I put one up on Twitter earlier this afternoon where Harrison and Carrie are kind of ranting at each other and he just picks her up and sort of throws her out the way. And she she goes storming off after him and says, "And what and what precisely am I supposed to know?" It's a completely different staging of of that those lines that we now know. So it feels to me like there really was the opportunity for the actors to kind of you know come up with their own way of doing things and and try different things, you know, under the direction of Irving Kirshner, who was as we said, you know, was really adamant that he wanted to progress the characters. It was about the relationships. So yeah, I've seen multiple outtakes from from that scene and they all feel completely different that's the thing about this film actually when you see some of the deleted scenes we talked about the stuff that's been left in and we know and love but some of the stuff they took out is pretty bad yeah it's really a testament to the editing and just the understanding of 
you know, the character arcs and the staging and everything else that, um, that it ended up to be the movie that we love because some of that stuff is pretty ropey. My favorite part of that whole ice corridor argument isn't between Han and Leia. It's how over it that one dude carrying the box is, <laughs> which just shows that they're doing it all the time. And it's like, it's like on community. It's like Britta and Jeff. Everybody's like, Oh, would you guys just shut up and come on? I got work to do. Let me through. And that just, that tells so much story with nothing. With just with just movement through the through the screen and and even as a kid I'm like that dude doesn't care. <laughs> yeah, as far as deleted scenes, I mean that whole subplot of the wampas that they're keeping at the base. I mean that was fascinating to me as a kid, but then to watch it now to see the outtakes and see how bad the wampas looked and I was just like, yeah, I'm really glad that they cut all this stuff out. And plus. It didn't really make a lot of sense that they were keeping Wampas at the base. I'm like, why would you do that? That seems like a very dangerous thing to do. In the novelization, didn't they like bust through an outer wall or something? And that was the only thing keeping them out of the base? Was that one door? I can't remember. They end up locking them up as they arrive, don't they? I think. And they're in that room. And then 3PO rips the sticker off that says Wampas do not enter. And then the stormtroopers get taken out. It, it feels to me sometimes like. It was one of those things like, you know, listen, we've employed this seven foot two actor. We've taken him to Norway. We've got him in this giant suit. We've got him to walk. We've got him through real snow. We've got him to drag Mark Hamill along. This has to stay in, you know. But luckily, just by removing all mentions of it other than the one that Luke meets, it all worked perfectly fine, doesn't it? Adding a comedy element to the Empire basically winning, being the most effective it kind of diminishes their effectiveness, doesn't it? If they're, if they're doofuses in front of a door. And Vader never looked better than walking through that base with his cape all flared out just with purpose. I, I love some of those shots. Really strutting. Yeah. 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 All right. Let's go ahead and take another break. Up next, you're going to hear from the associate producer, Jim Bloom. What can I talk to you about Empire? I'm very curious what it was like, because you said that you did most of the your work between Norway and San Francisco, and I'm, I'm curious what was that like, and, and especially working. I, I seem to remember hearing that the weather in Norway was just horrific. It's never like this until the movie company shows up. It was just you know typically one of those scenes. We just had awful, awful weather. And when we got there, it was bad that the first unit couldn't go out to any of the locations that we plan to get to. And it was like, well, what are we going to shoot? And so we, we started to, you know, th we were we were literally the scene, Luke riding on his tauntaun and getting knocked off. You know, that whole sequence was done to accommodate the car accident that Mark got into right before we started photography on Corvette Summer. Mark, he was this great looking young guy. He got in a bad car accident and just completely mauled up his face. And so in order to sort of cover that up between Star Wars and Empire, George came up with this idea that we'll have the, the, the snow monster whack him across the face, you know, and completely scar him up, you know, which is which, which is sort of a great, you know, great plan. So all that stuff was shot like the weather was so bad and the visibility was zero. We sort of shot that like 10 feet away from the hotel. Over, overlooking the, the lake in, in FEMSA. And then we were sort of running out of stuff to shoot, and it was getting too expensive. And I remember saying to 
I said to Gary, let's get Harrison out here. You know, Harrison was in London at the time, and I knew that we could get Harrison there within a day, and at least we could shoot some of the scenes of Harrison cutting the tauntaun open and stuffing Luke inside. And so, you know, that's what we did. We, you know, the funny story is that we, you know, got a hold of Harrison and got him on a plane and flew him to Oslo and put him on a train. And I don't know if you know this about Finsa, but Finsa is the highest point along the Oslo-Bergen rain line, tra- train line. And it was from that point that the, the, the snow plows, the train snow plows, would push the snow downhill in both directions to keep the tracks clean. And they got... Harrison from Oslo to the next town to the east, and they we had to send a snow train down to pick him up. And the location manager, who was a guy named Phil Kohler, went down to pick up Harrison on the snow train. They could the only place to sit on the snow train was to like sit or stand in the in the the engine compartment. And before he got on, I gave him a bottle of vodka and I said, "Here, take this with you." I said, at least you can have something to drink on your way back. And uh, when Harrison finally showed up in Phoenix at like 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night, you know, after all, they, they like fell out off the train. They were all so drunk. You know, it was, it was hysterical. They just like, you know, wandered off the train, bumped into people. They were completely pissed. You know, I later I later learned that the custom in Norway is that when you open a bottle, you never put the top back on. You open it, you finish it. You know, and like true to form, that's what they did. These three guys, the engineer, the, you know, Phil and Harrison finished this bottle of vodka. But anyway, we were able to work for two or three more days and uh, and and do some more work. So that uh, that that worked out fine. You know, and then the, the, the first unit eventually went back over schedule back to London. And I stayed on with the second unit. And the key to the second unit was doing all the second unit battle scenes which is what we did, but we had trouble as well because we couldn't get out to the locations because it was the visibility was, you know, it was blizzarding all the time, very little that we could do. So there were days that we would go out, you know, we'd wake up and we'd wait and nothing would happen. You know, we would just, you know, that was it. We couldn't do anything. We try to find stuff to shoot locally around the, uh, you know, the hotel where there was a little bit better visibility as opposed to up on the glacier. And then we began to notice, oddly enough, that every day, like between 12 and 1 o'clock, the sky would clear. And then it would cloud over at 1 o'clock. But 12, you know, and I said, well, let's let's try and go out and get the shot. We went up to do this great sequence where you've got the snow walker, you know, approaching the retreating rebel troopers. And the snow walker is firing laser cannons into the snow. And at a particular point, they it steps on a charge or something and the snow walker explodes. So we, we it, it was one of the key sequences in the story that we had to get. And so we went up to the location and we set up, you know, we got up there early. We set up all morning and we waited, you know, we set the explosions and the charges and of course, there were no snow walkers. All we had were, you know, running, retreating Norwegian extras dressed up as rebel troopers fleeing from the, you know, the snow walker that would be added later. And and here comes the sun, and you could see it crossing the glacier, you know, through this hole in the sky above, you know, the way like a, a big circle of sunlight will do that, you know, and you, you could just see it coming and coming, and we get ready and. Everybody in position and everybody ready, and here it comes. And 
roll cameras. You know, it was it was the classic Ben Hur, which is you know okay, rolling. All right, background action. You know, explosions one, two, three, and ready for the big explosion. Like, you know, to cue this. You know, the special effects guy. His name was uh, Bryce. I can't remember. He's a lovely guy, but you know, he had a walkie-talkie, and it's like okay, big explosion. Nothing happens. No explosion. Big, you know, big, you know, Bryce. Nothing happens. And all of a sudden, there goes the sun, blah, 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 passing by overhead, and we're back in the soup again. And afterwards, we finally reached him on the radio, and it was like, Bryce. And he replies, ready. <laughs> you know, he, he completely missed it. You know, there was a, an old Hollywood story about the chariot race on Ben-Hur. They've got all the cameras set up. You know, and it's like the big wide shot of the chariot race and they finally get to it and they get to the final camera and they get to the guy and they go, you know, camera five. And the guy goes, ready, ready when you are, CB. You know, that's that's where that that expression comes from. It was it happened exactly to us up on the glacier. It was just uh, just amazing. So we had to go back up and, you know, another day and redo the explosion and, you know, which we did. But. You know, those things happen with walkie-talkies, and who knows why. Maybe, you know, he left it in the, you know, forgot to turn. Who knows? It was just, it was just, you know, what can you do? You just laugh about that stuff. It's, you know, you send somebody over with him next time to make sure he's got the walkie-talkie working. But we finally, you know, toward the end, after we were there for a while, we, we got the work that we needed. And what was really critical for that particular sequence was to make sure that we got the visual effects work, because that that's really what was important. You know, was to get the pl- the plate work that we needed to add the the big, you know, miniature pieces in later, and to get the helicopter work done to provide the plates for the snow speeder stuff. You know, I knew how I knew how important all that was, and uh, we finally got it. You know, but it took us weeks and weeks and weeks. You know, the other funny story is that we we had these telex machines. Every all the communication was by telex couldn't talk by phone back to London and stuff. So we were always typing away on these old telex machines to communicate back to London about what was happening. And uh, the last day after we had left, I'd been, you know, the last person in the office in Norway was Phil Kohler. I think when Scott was in Antarctica, before he died, the last phrase of his diary that he left behind was it's cold and it's still snowing. And the last message that that was the last message that Phil Kohler wrote on the telex machine that he sent back to London. It was very funny. It's cold and it's still snowing, you know, before he unplugged the telex machine and, you know, brought himself back to London again. So, because that was our life. It's cold and it, and I, it was really cold up there. Just, you know, you used to, you know, take a pee and your pee would freeze before it hit the ground it was that cold and you would you know get lunch and they would you know serve stews and pastas and spaghettis you know like really hearty thick warm food that they used to used to bring up in these snow cats up to the location to feed people and put it on your plate and by the time you got somewhere to sit down and eat it parts of it were frozen it was just outrageously cold 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 you know, there's a guy named Michel Parbeau who made a documentary on The Empire Strikes Back, which is very interesting. And he was, uh, I think he was up there with us at the time. 
And uh, there's some great, great footage of, uh, you know, what it was like to work up in Norway. It was just, it was just freezing, just freezing. We're all, and we're all bundled up in these, you know, our empire uniforms. Have you seen those jackets before? And after, and was like, how do you tell people apart? Everybody looks, you know, and it was funny. After a while, you get used to seeing people and you know who's who. At first, we, were, we all had supposedly had armbands for what department you were in. You know, production was one color and electric is another and props and grip and camera. They all had their own colored armbands and whatnot. But after a while, it's like people would lose their armbands. You got to recognize people by their postures. You'd know somebody by how they stood and how tall they were and what they're, how they slumped or didn't. Sl- you know what I mean? You kind of recognize people by their, their physical characteristics just by the, you know, the, the outfits that they were wearing. So it was, it was a really hard, hard shoot. And I, I kind of remember that I hadn't seen anything green in eight weeks other than the Brussels sprouts we would have for dinner, you know. And when I finally left Norway and took the train, to Bergen from Finsa, which was to the west, to like fly back to Oslo and then go home. I remember that the first time I saw a tree as we sort of descended from the glacier into the lower elevations, I started crying. It was just like, it was just overwhelming to me just to see. This was like being on another planet. There was nothing there except rock and snow. Nothing at all for like eight weeks. That's all you saw. It was pretty wild. Back at ILM, it was really quite an effort. We sort of built a, a facility from scratch, built new cameras, built new optical printers to do stuff that had never been done before, built new motion control setups and whatnot. And uh, there was an overall ethic to the movie was that this was going to be better than Star Wars. And that was sort of the, the spirit at ILM in making the movie was that it wasn't just going to be another sequel that was going to be better than the first movie was. And I think in many ways it, it, it sort of was. It was, a, you know, you know, it was the next movie. We all knew it would sort of end on a down note, you know, as it would as the second piece in a trilogy. And But nevertheless, the visual effects are incredibly exciting because we were, you know, doing things that hadn't really been, you know, done to that degree before. You know, particularly with the new printers and the new cameras and the new motion control stuff. And, you know, at times we were running a, you know, a six, seven day a week operation, 24 hours a day. As you reach a point where you've got to get this amount of work done and, you know, you, you don't let the equipment sit idle. You kind of bring in night crews to do work and day crews. So the shop was running all the time. And, but it was it was, a, it was just a great collection of young, talented, really artistic people. You know, everybody, you know, really young group of people, everybody mostly in their 20s and 30s doing all this work and making all these miniatures. And it was it was it was quite, quite remarkable, you know, the amount of work that we had to do and the amount of time that we had. But we finished it and it wasn't, uh, you know, because the picture had to come out. You sort of had a deadline to hit. And uh it was it was quite something, all of that work. And then on top of it, then you've got you know you've got this great group of post production sound people, you know, led by Ben Burt, who you know who you know sort of truly appreciated how important you know sound is to a movie, you know, and how it totally fills out what you're looking at on the screen. So it was uh, it was it was you know it was really quite a time. 
you know, hard, hard, hard work, long hours, you know, difficult. And, but, you know, it, we, you know, it's, it's a great, I love Empire. It's my favorite movie. You know, Peter Susichki did a wonderful job. It's just a beautiful looking movie. You know, Ralph, Ralph McQuarrie designed some great stuff. Norman Reynolds, the production designer, did absolutely beautiful work. And as a director, Kirsch did great, great work with, with, you know, Mark and Harrison and Carrie. You know, it's like their, their best performances, you know, I think in any of the movies. And maybe they sort of had the range to do it, do what they wanted to do at that point in time. But it was the, you know, it was the second movie and it was just at that time before, you know, Star Wars became this big, you know, merchandising vehicle, you know, where the, you know, the toys and everything else sort of took over the movie in a way. It was still, it was still a movie at that point. And, uh, you know, and, and Larry Kasdan and Lee Brackett just wrote a wonderful screenplay. And I think everybody really cared about what they were, you know, doing. I think they cared on Jedi as well. Jedi was just a different, different film. It was a way you had to kind of wrap up, wrap up the story. So, so very different. You were there when they were shooting the the stuff in Norway. When you get back to ILM, are they still working on those effects? And how is that seeing those two pieces integrate together, the live action and the special effects? Well, you know, the, the thing about the visual effects is that they're really always waiting on the live action, pretty much, except if, you, if you're only in a visual effects sequence. So when you come back from Norway and you bring the material back and you begin to kind of cut it and piece it together, you get a sense of how it is that you want to shoot the visual effects because you're actually seeing what the background plates look like. You know, the the, the, the key to this seamless marriage foreground and background and visual effects when you're working with live action plates is that you have to light your foreground to match your background so that that there's you know you you never cut that you know umbilical cord of belief between the, the audience and what you're watching on the screen that's really critical that's the only way you you know when you when you go to crappy movies and you look at the screen and the visual effects look shitty something's wrong here and as soon as somebody says, oh, something doesn't look good, something doesn't look right, it looks phony, well, you lose your audience and you completely take them out of the, 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 the emotion of the storytelling. And so a lot of the work that we were doing in Norway, the, the stuff that they were doing while we were shooting, where they were sort of building the models and the miniatures and doing test work and doing some initial space work, where it, it wasn't as the thing about the space stuff is that when you're in space and you're like interior Millennium Falcon, interior X-Wing fighter, you know, that stuff is mostly you're just shooting star fields behind the actors who are being photographed on the cockpits against blue screen. So that didn't quite matter as much. And you've got a little bit more leeway to do a lot of that space work. But when you're doing the Norwegian stuff, particularly in environments that you recognize as real, you know, like bog planets, snow planet. I mean, you know what that looks like. And so they, they couldn't do a lot of that work until we came back with those, those plates. And then those sequences need to sort of be cut together with, with what were called animatics, which are little animation pieces, because the stuff is so time consuming. You need to know exactly how many frames you're shooting in a given shot 
or sequence because it's not like live action where you turn the camera on and you let it run. It's like, oh, we're doing stop motion stuff. So you have to know that this particular shot is exactly 38 frames long because it's very time consuming to do that work, particularly when it's going together in, in elements and levels and different work going on. And, you know, or if it's, you know, 24 frames a second, you know, like a three second shot, you're out shooting 72 frames or 96 frames. And every time you're doing a frame or, you know, or two frames, you know, you're like slowly moving whatever it is forward, like, you know, the Tauntauns or the Snow Walkers or that kind of, you know, it's really mind boggling, difficult work that requires intense concentration. If you, you know, if you get to, you know, 96 frame shot and you get to frame 90 and all of a sudden you fuck it. Well, you go back to, you go back to, you start over, you know, there's no like, oh, we can't just like, you know, cut in another frame. You just sort of start over. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. And there's, you know, there are big learning curves going on. And we have all of these different units doing all of this different work. You know, there's the, you know, the star units and every, every sequence was broken down in storyboards and basically laid out in the number of frames it was. So it was, it's, 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 it's kind of very rigorous engineered, you know, work about what you're doing and when you're doing it and the best way to do it and how to, how to make it all work. And, and, you know, a lot of the visual effects work is kind of like shot backwards in the sense that when you want to see the X-wing fighter fly away from you, well, what you're doing is that you're not moving the X-wing fighter, you're moving the camera backwards to give the impression that it's flying away, but it's really the, you know, and so there's a, a big learning curve about how to do all this stuff. And this was back in the analog days of visual effects work before everything went digital in the, you know, back in the 90s and stuff. So it was, uh, you know, it was quite interesting when we were, I'm trying to remember when Pixar, the Pixar guys came in. I think it was, they came in like between Empire and, and Jedi. You know, but they sort of came over when George was still, you know, was working with Ed Catmull and John Lasseter and, you know, the other early Pixar guys in, you know, moving, you know, creating digital storytelling, digital filmmaking, you know, with those guys before Pixar eventually left and Steve Jobs got involved and it became its own, you know, its own entity. But they were, you know, that was a whole other division that was going on at the time, I think, between the two pictures. But it was, you know, it was pretty heady, you know, heady times. Very interesting. We were doing great work and setting, you know, new standards and in movie storytelling that other people weren't doing, you know. And and George was always there pushing us to do better, do greater, do stuff that hadn't done been done before. Find out ways to do all of this, you know. Come up with, you know, techniques and things like that. So it was. Uh, you know, like you can go into a meeting and look at a storyboard and George will say, well, this is what I want to do. And people scratch their heads like, well, how the fuck are we going to do that? People would put their heads together and sit down and, you know, and, and the guys were so great. They would figure out a way to do it and make it look wonderful. You know, Dennis Muren is amazing, talented guy, you know, just incredible. And Richard Edlin, you know, equally talented, did great work on these movies, you know, you know, sort of leading the camera teams. And then, you know, the other guys that they brought up, you know, who later on became, you know, you know, highly regarded themselves. You know, they all, you know, these were young guys who sort of learned from some of the best. They were remarkable. I mean, I remember, I remember going to a screening years later, they showed Empire 
and I think I was sitting on a stage after the movie was on, and it was me and Phil Tippett and Dennis Murin and Joe Johnston and I forget and Ben Burt were with us, and somebody said to me, "Well, how do you make a movie like this?" And it was the question to me. It's like, "Well, how do you do it?" And I said, "You hire these guys sitting next to me." I said, that's how you do it. I said, you find the guys who are as incredibly talented as they are, and that's how you make the movie look so great. And it's true. It's like, you know, that's how you do it. You find these talented, you know, artists and technicians to come in and do the work. And it was, you know, it was absolutely true. You know, hire Joe Johnson to help design it and Phil Tippett to do the stop motion and the dentist to shoot it. And, you know, Ben Burt to create the sound and, you know, like, you know, and if you've got a great story as your, your base to what you're doing with wonderful characters that people care about, that's what, you know, that's how you make a great movie. You know, you've got to bring all of these, these elements together and make sure that they're all working in unison somehow. So it's like, you know, how do you do it? You hire these five guys. You know, I mean, that's kind of like the bottom line. It's like, yeah, get these guys around you and it's, it's bound to look good. You know, the script is good and you got a good director. Chances are you're going to have a great movie. So, you know, I think that's kind of what happened. It's unfortunate that all the other movies weren't as great as Empire. But, you know, I guess that's all part of, the, you know, part of the process. And everybody was excited. You know, after Star Wars, nobody thought Star Wars was going to be what it became. You know, but it did. So... After working on Jedi, did you know that there was going to be such a long period of time between that and whatever came next? I, I didn't know. And I think a lot of that had to do with family stuff with George, because George and Marsha divorced. And I think a, that a lot of that was baked into the delay between the, the, the first trilogy and the later trilogies. I think that that had a lot lot to do with it. I remember sitting with George in my office at ILM and listening to him talk to me about three trilogies and three separate stories. He always said, "Oh yeah, we're going to do this trilogy and then we're going to go back and we're going to do the uh you know, Luke and Darth Vader and everybody is as young, you know, Darth Vader is a young boy trilogy." And then we're going to go back and do the three other trilogies, which is sort of post, you know, this one, you know, it was going to be, this is four, five, and six, then we'll do one, two, and three, and then we'll do seven, eight, and nine. And then 10, 11, and 12 will be the droid story and the Wookiee story and, you know, some other story. You know, so I knew he had these 12 movie ideas laid out, you know, it was really quite a vision. But the fact that it would take so long between them, I, I, you know, what was it from '85? When did that? When did Episode One come out? I don't re- quite quite remember. In the '90, I had no idea it would take 14 years, but it, you know, it probably, you know, from '85 when or when did from '83 when Jedi came out to later on. I, you know, you know, I think George was, you know, off doing the Raiders movies. He was in and you know making unfortunately Howard the Duck and more American Graffiti too and you know, the other specials and the Ewok TV stuff. And then he decided to go do the young indie television show, you know, before he moved into, you know, doing, you know, the next, the next, you know, three movies. And then, you know, after that, it was a while until, you know, he, you know, brought Kathy Kennedy in to come do episodes, you know, seven, eight, and nine. 
you know, and the other the other ones as well. It was, you know, after wasn't it after Disney bought them? I don't, I don't remember the chronology. You know, when he he was getting ready, and then Disney came. Didn't Disney was the last three or four movies? Yeah, for the last three. Yeah, so that was you know part of the, that plan was to bring Kathy Kennedy and to come produce those, and at the same time, you know, sell the company to uh, to Disney. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was always great fun to go see those films. I I liked all the movies. You know, I'm not as you know I'm not as hard on the films as other people are. I mean, I wasn't necessarily crazy about about one, two, and three. I there were I I I kind of thought that. Um, I forget his name, young Sterling or Hayden Christensen. I thought he was miscast. You know, I thought Natalie Portman was was good. And, you know, I enjoyed them. They were, you know, for me, it's always like, you know, going back to high school. It's always like, you know, high school reunion, you know, going back to those places. And that was particularly true about seven, eight, and nine, as well as that I always thought, oh, I'm back home again. I know these characters, I know these environments, I know these people, you know, so it was kind of great fun to watch them without necessarily having to work on them. Huge, you know, huge production efforts. I have some, you know, critiques of them and whatnot, but, uh, you know, it's still, still great, great fun to watch. I still enjoy watching them when I see them on TV. You know, if I'm like flipping through channels and one of them pops on, it's like, oh, that's cool. Great. Let's watch this for a while. You know, isn't that nice? Nice to see all these characters again. We're really unfortunate about Carrie. What a shame that was. I thought that I thought Daisy Ridley was really wonderful. I thought she was great in the last movies. I really thought she she was excellent, really excellent. I don't know if I can, you know, some of the other characters. I was like, oh, I don't know about that, but you know, and some of the, the storylines and stuff. I'd have to like go into each one in particular. But now I'm just a fan. I get to you know, you know, love and bitch and moan. Whatever strikes me, you know, I don't know. I don't have much, much, you know, nothing to say about any of it. So, as things go, thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful talking with you. It was a pleasure to talk to you, and look forward to hearing hearing about it when it's done. If you'd like to gab about any other movies I've worked on, just give me a holler. that we do have these great moments of humor in here. There are some terrific bits. I mean, we've got the joke of the the guys getting choked by Darth Vader. We get the repeating joke of the Millennium Falcon not being able to jump to hyperspace. And then we even get, like, I think there are repeated lines of uh, Han Solo saying, it's not my fault. And then Lando says the same thing later on. <laughs> yeah, I love those. And then, you know, like the laugh line of I know when he's about to be frozen in carbonite. That is probably one of the best moments of the film, if not of the entire series. It's so great. And it's so Han Solo and it just fits it well, perfectly. It. 
all of those lines, all of those comedic moments fit the character. They don't feel like they've needed to put in a funny moment because they've just had a heavy moment or vice versa. Like, I think that's what some of the sequel movies kind of fall into that, that problem. You know, here's a joke because that bit was just a bit serious then. So we're going to lighten things up now. Oh, now it's dark again. So we need one more joke. But no, all of this stuff all fits in with all of the characters perfectly. You don't, you, you completely buy the lines, whoever's saying them, whatever character it is. It, it pushes their character forward. It pushes the story forward. It's not just light relief for the sake of it. It reminds me of um, reading about um, Star Trek The Next Generation when somebody would come in and write an episode. And if an actor had a problem, they'd be like, that's not that's not how my character talks. That's not something they would say. But in A New Hope, it's like everybody kind of spoke this with the same voice. And here, everybody, every character was written to feel as if they were individuals and it, and it does make a huge difference. Yeah. You get a lot of technical gobbledygook and a new hope. And I know like Carrie Fisher, she still can, well, she doesn't complain anymore, but she was complaining for years about the whole speech about the ion cannon. And she's like, Oh, this was, this line was horrible. And I had to memorize this whole thing. And it was just a really bad, but, then the rest of it, I mean, it just does feel much more natural to them. And, you know, even those little, like, verbal ticks, like Han Solo, when he's like, you know, like, does that little tisk of his teeth before he's like, you know, and, you know, of course you don't know what I'm talking about as he goes off in the corridor. Yeah, all of that feels in them together on the Millennium Falcon when she's doing those repairs and he's just macking on her so much and just like... My hands are dirty too. That became a bit of a line amongst the the crew and the special effects guys as well. They just, you know, you'd be out at a restaurant and somebody said, "Oh, could you pass me the napkin?" and and everyone would go, "My hands are dirty too." Like it, it just became a it became a thing for everyone on that movie. Like everyone said it. It just became the the catchphrase of the shoot. Love that scene. I love uh, C three PO constantly being the cock blocker in there. It works well, and it keeps it, you know, keeps it PG. You know, we don't we don't have uh, any sort of weird love thing going on. I mean, there. Yes, he feels a little overbearing at times, but I think she's into it, and so it's not like he's some sort of weird pickup artist. It's not like he's got this sick obsession with her, like Anakin had with Padme, where you're just like, "Oh, run, girl, get away from there." Yeah, yeah. No, it's definitely there's definitely. I guess I guess the word would be consent on both sides of yeah I'm 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 okay with this until I tell you I'm not and that works. Kirshner said like you know he knew he couldn't have you know sex scenes because in in the Star Wars movie a kiss is the equivalent you know and he couldn't have all this smushy stuff either so just that one scene and just the words they speak to each other as he's going into the carbonite is enough you know we know where we stand with those characters you don't need to go any further. Well, and her taking care of him after he's been tortured, too. I really like that. That moment after that torture scene, and and right before it, too, the the whole thing of, like, Chewbacca trying to put together C-3PO, just all of that stuff on Bespin, I think it works really well. And Lando, 
Billy D. Williams really makes you feel like he and Han Solo had been friends for a long time. Just that rapport that they have. And I love that little joke, that little, you know, psych out that he does where it's like, you got a lot of nerve coming back here. It's just like, oh, that's, that's nice. And then how he almost punches him and then hugs him instead. It's like, oh, this is really, really, really works. And you immediately know you can't trust the guy. Just that, just that one line. You're, you're completely by that this guy, there's something not right about this guy. They're not really mates. Something's gone on here. And, uh, yeah, again, just brilliant writing, uh, you know, that pushes the character forward with every line. Cause you see in Han Solo's face, like, fuck, what's he talking about? Cause I did so many bad things to him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which bad oh, thing know, is this? Does he know about the robot? Yeah. But that scene when uh, when Han Solo's tortured and he comes back in and, and she's caring for him, Harrison is great in that scene. He looks absolutely fucked, doesn't he? Like, he looks like he's really been through it. I think Kirshner says on one of the commentaries that he was really impressed with Harrison's acting at that point because he really does look like he's been through the ringer. And Well, in his little line of like, I feel terrible. I just love those line readings that he does and how he's so confused. Like, they didn't even ask me any questions. They just wanted to torture him. Oh, that's such a terrifying line, isn't it? It's like, well, why are you doing this? And then you find out that Luke can actually feel his friend's pain or or have a vision about what's going on. And it's like, oh, Vader's playing a long game. All right. right." He's chumming the water. We talked a little bit about like special editions and stuff. I actually didn't mind the reintroduction of the Wampa that they did where they took the guy who is like a normal sized person and put him in a cave that looked way too small. So now he looks huge. I thought that that looked pretty good because it, well, mostly because it was a guy in a suit rather than a big CG creature. I think the Empire Strikes Back came out the best out of all of the special editions. Actually, I remember, you know, with eagerness waiting for them to come out in 1997 and being a bit concerned about what had happened to Star Wars. And then Empire Strikes Back, it really feels like, you know, they just punched a few holes in the walls to make Cloud City look a bit more expansive. They've added the Wamper in, but it isn't changing any plot elements. It isn't changing any of our kind of imagination because we've seen outside of Cloud City already. So having a window there doesn't really change things. Right, and it follows logically, like, if you have this view, why would every wall be solid? Yeah, and they would have done it had they had they been able to do it at the time. But the Jabba the Hutt scene, you know, in Star Wars, it's just a repetition of the scene we've just seen with Greedo. And I can understand why he made, wanted to make Mos Eisley look a bit more expansive. But then you have the stupid Jawas swinging and the, the robot punching the other robot. And it just... <laughs> I'm so glad there's none of that in The Empire Strikes Back. And I'm, I will happily watch... Apart from the, I think the, the color grade on it was a bit ropey when it first came out. It made all of the Hoss scenes very, very blue. I still find it quite watchable, actually, that special edition. The special edition for me, you know how Rogue One closed that plot hole, that glaring plot hole that everybody talked about for years, mm-hmm, which I mm-hmm. never talked about for years. I never thought there was a plot hole. But, it, but the special edition of Empire closed that plot hole. How did Vader get back to the Star Destroyer? How oh my God. could he have gotten, you know, I mean, cause in, in the one that I grew up with, he says, prepare my ship. And I'm just like, okay, but I don't see him actually leave Cloud City and go to the ship. So I'm completely lost. How did he get there? Was it magic? I don't understand why or how that even came up as a conversation. I mean, that original line, bring my shuttle, you know, it's like 
he's barking at his people. Just bring my shuttle. I want it here. I need to get out of here now. That's it. We're done. Yeah, he's pissed. He lost a fight. It's a character line. He's pissed off. He's showing, you know, that he's still in command by barking at his underlings. We're done. And then what do they do? They put a shot from Return of the Jedi of him arriving in there. They extend a piece of the score. Well, yeah, it takes three shots for him to get uh, three shots for him to get there. One, he has to like re say his line, <laughs> like and talk about his his uh, star destroyer. Oh, it's such a terrible line. And let my star destroyer to prepare for my arrival. Two, they have to show it in space, and three, they have to show the ship arriving because we can't just assume that the ship actually makes it to the star destroyer because it could have been blown up right then. We don't know. So bizarre. Alert my Star Destroyer to prepare for my arrival. Blah, 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 blah. I mean, you could trip up that line. Bring my shuttle. It's enough. It's absolutely enough. We're, we're moving on. And then there was there was the, the one version where Luke has that, that triumphant, I figured out how to get away from you face, and he falls down the shaft in Cloud City. And then they added him screaming in one my version. God. Hang on. Yeah. I'm taking this back. I can't watch the special edition. It's terrible. <laughs> I can't I'm watch now remembering this. Yeah, thank you for the reminder. But yeah, the scream. Uh, come on. He sacrifices himself. He knows what's going to... He knows he might die. He lets go. That's, again, a character thing. Just a hero's decision. It. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, completely. And he kind of ends up in another cave after that. I've always wondered how he survives that fall, but I mean, I'm okay with how it all happens. And I have to say the one moment that freaks me out every time I watch the movie is when he gets dumped out of that tunnel and then reaches back up and he's trying to pull himself in. And I'm just like, my God, move your hand. It is going to get, you know, you got one good hand now, kid. You need to move that (laughs) hand because it's going to get caught in that door. And it just looks like it would be really painful. I'm just like, no, 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 no. Pull back. I'm just going to be two minutes. I'm just going to cancel Disney Plus because I just remembered they changed Boba Fett's voice as well. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) In the long run, though, in the long run, I'm okay with that now. Because yeah, because it doesn't change the character. It doesn't change the intention or anything else. I did like the original voice, though. It was gruff. It sounded like he took a, a shot to the throat at some point, maybe. Jason Wingreen was his name. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I mean, and it's perfect that he doesn't say very much at all. We don't need him talking. You know, I think that that it fits in with that, like, what is his name? Blondie or Joe or whatever you want to call him from uh, the Man with No Name trilogy. You don't have Clint Eastwood say too many things. You don't have Boba Fett say too many things. And then, yeah, like at least Tamora Morrison doesn't change the lines they they weren't you know other than he's no good to me dead sounds really weird the way that he says it it's like uh, with that australian accent it just is like or new zealand accent i'm just like oh that doesn't sound right well what's wrong what's wrong if he was dead i kind of grew up with we had over here a lot of america uh, australian and new zealand soaps like soap operas here in the uk so that's why it sounds a bit off to me it doesn't fit in the star wars universe it feels like 3pm TV, you know, just after school kind of thing. Other than 3PO, I think everybody with a British accent is evil in the Star Wars world, especially in Empire. 
good character actors. Yeah, I mean, Admiral Ozzel, the guy who ends up playing Hitler in the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, he's famous for being uh, a, an awful headmaster at a school in a TV show called Grange Hill that ran for like 20 years here in the UK. Every kid knew that guy. Every kid knew that guy at the time. And um, So that was more of a cathartic thing for, for, for all the kids over there when he gets choked for being incompetent? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Mr. Bronson, his name was, this head teacher. He was a nasty piece of work. Yeah. I was just watching an episode of a British show called um, New Tricks, I think it's called, with um, oh, the guy who was in Crawl, Alan Armstrong. There was an episode that I just watched where I was just like, who is this guy? This guy looks so familiar. And then it ended up being um, one of the admirals or generals from Empire Strikes Back. And I was just like, wow, after all these years, because this show is out in like 2003, 2004. And I'm like, wow, he still looks very much the same. I think Dennis Lawson's in that as well, isn't he? Um, Wedge. I think Wedge. Yeah. Yeah. I was so glad to see Wedge show up again in the movie. It just... He doesn't get enough praise for like, you know, he's one of the few characters that manages to make it through all of these films, you know. We didn't even talk about the actual battle on Hoth. One of the best things ever put on film. Best use of stop motion animation I've ever seen in, in modern times. And really smart to do that at the beginning of the film, to have the big battle at the beginning rather than the end, which is neat. Yeah, it just didn't happen. Yeah. And the, the animation as well, as you say, is, is great because they were, there was a, an original intention to make like a robot that would move, that would kind of animate itself. But then, uh, Dennis Muren and Phil Tippett and the guys, Tom Sainaman there would, would say, you know, hang on, actually stop motion would lend itself to the mechanized nature of these beasts. Um, and the idea of shooting them not against blue screen, but in a miniature set with a matte painting behind them. You know, it just all works so well and using kind of gauze to make the, 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 the force perspective of the little attacks in the distance look further away than they were. And it's just a masterclass that in, in effect, um, stop motion. Yeah. You had so many things going on. I love to talk about the first shot on Hoth of the Tauntaun going across the snowbank and how they shot that with a helicopter, the, the real shot and then how they had to match the movement of the helicopter camera with the camera for the the tauntaun going across the snowscape i was just like wow it's incredible that yeah that shot should not have been possible at the time and for dennis murin and his team to think outside of the box and think actually if we plot the movement of the helicopter with the camera shake and everything you know moving in all those different planes of direction up, down, left, right, in and out, <laughs> all the diagonals at any moment. And they would manage to plot that stop motion. Uh, they rephotographed the stop motion, didn't they, I think, and plotted it in with that same movement as the helicopter. And a lot of shots began to be done that way. You know, they really made a rod for their own bags <laughs> um, in doing that. But it still holds up today. I mean, that when they did the special edition, they would have fast-forwarded straight past that bit. And there was no need to to tinker with it at all. The biggest thing that they did was cleaned up some of the mat lines around the snow speeders. But for me, it's still perfect. I don't notice the mat lines. I don't say like, oh, that looks terrible. There's, there really isn't, I'm trying to think. I don't want to make myself a liar, but I can't think of really any shots where I'm just like, ooh, that looks bad. You know, I really, I really like 
studied some of these. There were some shots where, like with the uh, Rebel transports and some of the snow speeders, because everything was so bright, some of the um, some of the vehicles ended up being a little transparent. And once you see it, it's in your brain. It's like those two TIE fighters in um, Return of the Jedi in the background that just pass through a foreground object. Um, once you see it, that's all you see. And they did make them more solid. Honestly, that that was the best thing that I saw them them end up doing because it, it just puts them solidly in the scene instead of, oh, look, I can see a little bit of rock through that thing. But that's just because I watched it like 200 times, you know, when I was little. There was one shot that always used to jump out of me, and it's not an effect shot, but it's uh, the shot of Luke in his cockpit. He's in his snow speeder, and he's, I think he's just delivered a line to Dak. And Poor Dak. Just before it cuts to the next shot, there are just these black scribbles on either side of the canopy roof. I used to spot it every single time I watched it. I think they got rid of it for the special edition, but it's, again, like as you say, Chris, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And that used to catch me out every time and take me out of the scene, you know, for a moment. But yeah, most of the effect shots in there are incredible. Some of the stuff with the asteroids, you know, that big loop, the loop the Falcon does and goes into the cave. The one where it does the the, the kind of roll over the cloud. Oh, that's my favorite one. Fantastic. Just yeah. so yeah. good. They really had got the hang of how dynamic you could make those shots move and how we as an audience could perceive them, you know, in a very short takes in very short sequences and understand the geography of it. You know, there's clever things like in the asteroid field. You wouldn't know what was up, down, left, or right in an asteroid field. So they came up with this idea of using like a, a belt of asteroids. So that's your kind of horizon line. Then you know where you are. Just really super clever people on this film. Well, that loop that it does as it goes down into the cave on the in the asteroid, that music cue is so great too because it's just so swirling before it goes in. And I, I remember a friend of mine had the, um, when they released all these things on Laserdisc, the definitive edition, even though like Empire was missing a few seconds of Leia welding, they actually didn't start the, the transfer on time. So we missed a little bit of that, but we went through frame by frame in that asteroid fight and the shot of one of the asteroids hitting a TIE fighter and you can see a little yeah. body on fire flying yeah. out. Yep. Oh man, yep. I was just so thrilled. <laughs> and it sort of fizzles and pops as well. <laughs> oh, it's so good. <laughs> yeah. I suppose if I had to pick on one shot, it would be uh, the pod mm-hmm. ship from Bespin. And when it comes towards the camera, it's really got kind of a black outline around it. Mm. Yes, but, yeah, yeah. But otherwise, I'm I'm all right. And they ended up, I think, removing that in the special edition. But I'm just like, just leave it. You know, this is, it's quaint. It's 1980, and you guys are able to do all these amazing things. Just leave it alone. Just just keep it. Except for the, the shuttle. I have to see the shuttle going to the Star Destroyer. <laughs> <laughs> I think the one... otherwise, we just don't know how he got there. The one scene that, that always bugged me, even from early on was when luke is um finally done with the battle everybody's leaving and he watches the falcon leave and he's looking like 200 feet ahead of where it is ah you couldn't have timed that just a yes, tiny yeah, bit yeah, yeah. better that, i know exactly what the you rest mean. of the movie is sorted that yeah. perfect 
Yeah, I think there might have been a, an occasion where I saw Yoda's eyeline not necessarily matching, or Luke's eyeline not matching with Yoda, I guess it might have been. But I was like, okay, again, whatever. I do like some of those. Um, I follow Deep Roy on uh, Facebook, and I never realized that he's in the movie, that he's in a Yoda costume. So when you see Yoda like across the way, walking away, I'm like, oh, okay, that's actually Deep Roy in that outfit. So they were pretty smart to yeah, I learned that. Like a year ago. <laughs> yeah. I had no idea. <laughs> did you not watch Building Empire in 2005 when I made it? <laughs> I think I mentioned that in there. I think I did. Did you? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, that's the great thing, though, about all of those Yoda scenes. You, just using the version that was needed for that scene. You know, there was a there was a sort of mechanical version as well that would go on, on the back of Mark Hamill in those backpack scenes that they could operate with remote control. And... Yeah, just just knowing what to use and where and where best to use it, I think was a real skill that, again, is just like the perfect storm in that movie. Everyone was just on their A-game. And Yoda is very inspirational. I do like all of his dialogue, especially when he, his explanation of the Force, you know, we had Ben's explanation, which is a good explanation, but when Yoda talks about it, and I love his lines about uh, luminous beings are we, and I was just mm. like, oh, that's nice. And I don't think that they, like, he does the backwards speaking in Empire, but it feels like they really laid it on thick for, like, the prequels when he would show up, and it's just mm, like, yeah. oh my god, can you try to talk forwards every once in a while <laughs> yeah they don't flow as well do they i like his lines too and you know when i spoke to the puppeteer dave barkley you know he said i know it sounds cheesy but he said i was 19 years old when i worked on the empire strikes back because his first film and he said i really took those words to heart do or do not there is no try um he said from then on you know i just jumped at the opportunities as they came to me so he was offered the job as chief puppeteer on, on jabba the hut and he couldn't really do it because he was working on, on, I think, what was he working on? Dark Crystal or something, I think. And he had to ask Jim Henson's p- permission. But he said, yeah, I'm going to do it. You know, I'm just going to jump in. I'm going to give it my best. I mean, he would have been, what, 22, 23? And he's he's the chief puppeteer of the biggest puppet ever put on film. <laughs> I, I, I think there's some great philosophy in Yoda. And, you know, it's been kind of rehashed and it's been in every kind of pop culture series and people take the piss out of it. But I think at its core, the Empire Strikes Back and Yoda's lines just tell us what we're capable of if we put our mind to things. And I think that's great. All right, let's go ahead and take another break. You're going to hear from J.W. Rinsler, the author of The Making of Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. I want to know more about you, too. I want to know more of like your history, how you got into writing, and especially how you got writing Star Wars books, because it feels like you've been doing it for a long time and just such a, a voluminous output. I was lucky, you know, people always say the right time, the right place. I arrived at Lucasfilm at the right time to a whole bunch of books. It was just the perfect time to arrive for a bunch of reasons that nobody you know, couldn't have planned for. But that's basically what happened. Before you got the Lucasfilm gig, what were you doing? What was your, your job, and how did you get into the writing field? Well, how I got into the writing field was really by accident, I guess. Well, I guess there's also no such thing as accidents. I was living in France. My wife is French, and I was teaching cinema and art history and things, and I was getting more into writing. I wanted to write a book about Spielberg, actually. And I was, you know, just sort of doing research and having fun, kind of like what you're doing. 
Then one thing led to another when he came back to the United States, and I was got a job as a managing editor at GamePro magazine, which was a big video game magazine at the time. And we had 500,000 copies a month at that time. The distribution was right before the Internet hit. I started working there in 90, beginning of 98, and my 2000s writing was already on the wall that magazines were in big trouble. So anyway, so but, but when I was working there, I wanted to work at Lucasfilm because I was living in Petaluma and I knew Skywalker Ranch was not far off and I just really wanted to work for George Lucas. I wanted to work for somebody who was really creative and for a really creative company. And I just sort of set my sights on that. I tried to get a job several times at Lucasfilm starting in, back in 1987 or 88. I wanted to be a matte painter because I was painting at the time. I was pretty serious about it, although I wasn't very good. And they sent me a polite rejection letter in 87 or so. And then and then when I decided to get back to try and get a job there back in the late 90s, early aughts, I applied probably five or six times and for different jobs and was rejected. So it was only when a job that opened up that was really right for me. <laughs> I was applying for, you know, I was just like, I want to get my foot in the door. I'll do anything. But when a job came that was right for me, then it was pretty quick. And uh, it was a job as nonfiction editor. And the person who hired me was Lucy Wilson, who was the uh, first employee of Lucasfilm. She started there in 1974 after graffiti. And she was the one typing. She was basically Lucas's assistant all the way up from 74 to 77 doing anything that needed to be done at Lucasfilm. She was basically the entire company, practically. Well, there were a few other people, but she was Lucas's assistant and uh, she typed up the scripts and... Uh, I had no idea about that when she hired me, but I found out subsequently. Since, gosh, almost the beginning that there have been books associated with Star Wars, and then as time went on, I remember much more fiction books, especially, you know, Splinter of the Mind's Eye kind of kicking off, or it might have not kicked off, but being part of that extended universe type of thing. What type of nonfiction books were you, were you editing in the late 90s? Well, I didn't start there until 2001, so I got there kind of in the middle of episode two. We were right smack in the middle of a big, it was the beginning of the publishing push for episode two. We were, that's basically why they hired me. They needed a couple people because it was the big push. And so they really, even though they called me the nonfiction editor, I worked right off the bat. One of my jobs was coming up for stories, coming up with stories for the Boba Fett Scholastic series. So I was, I was the first one to come up with the idea that Boba Fett should actually be annoyed at Mace Windu for beheading his father. <laughs> you know, nobody, we got to the point where his father's beheaded and he reacts, but there was nothing after that. So then we're doing this series and he's like, well, of course he's going to try and get revenge. So we, we were the first ones to come up with that storyline, which then was taken further in Clone Wars. So that was fun. And, and so then there were the DK books. It was basically uh, the, not, you know, the Visual Dictionary, the Cross-Section book. There was uh, the Locations book. It was, we had a big program of like 20 books. You know, there was Illustrated, there was Kids books. And of course, there was the Making of and the Art of books. And that, those were the books that I was more interested in as a film, more or less. And so that's what I was getting into. And that, and that led to a bunch of things, which when I first started was they said, well, you're the nonfiction editor, so you have to deal with Rick McCallum and all the episode two art of, you know, not behind the scenes books. And everybody was terrified of dealing with him because he had a reputation of being quite a 
abrasive at times. And that was his job. He was the producer. And so I went and talked with Rick early on, and he asked what I thought we could do for the episode three book. And I said, well, why don't we do a book that is more like the Jaws log that talks more about the whole sort of holistic idea of production and not just visual effects, which a lot of books were doing back then because you know, there was such a huge deal. The visual effects were so amazing. But I was saying, you know, there's all those other things still exist, costume design, you know, storyboards, script writing. <laughs> and uh, Rick, it was great. It was, so, it was so exciting. He said, yeah, that's what we'll do. And so we set it up so that even it was before episode two was even in, in theaters, they started working in episode three. We had concept art meetings, and so I started going to them. And it was just me and George Lucas and Eric Tiemens and Ryan Church and Robert Barnes. And I think and Rick was there, too, for most of the meetings. And then George just came out and said, you know, here, here are my ideas for episode three. You know, there's seven battles on seven planets. That was his first idea. Tell me about the making of books as far as Star Wars, Empire, and Jedi, because by that time, those things are, quote-unquote, ancient history. How much of that stuff already existed in the archive, and how much did you have to track down? I was really fortunate on the first, well, basically all three books. And basically the entire time at Lucasfilm, I was very fortunate. Things just kept falling into my lap, quite literally. I pitched the making of Star Wars to George, not knowing what was in the archives, because time is of the essence. And, and so it was just like, well, what do you think? This is this 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 is the 30th anniversary is coming up. We've never done a making a Star Wars book. Well, how about it? And he said, fine, because he was happy with the episode three book. And then I think Steve Sansweet, who was head of fan, fan relations at the time, and may still be, he's, he's at Disney. I'm not sure what his title is now. But he said, you know, I think there are these Charlie Lippincott interviews in the archives, and you ought to take a look, see if they're still there or something, because it could be good. And so I just asked Joe Donaldson, who was the head librarian at the time. She's since retired. I said, have you heard about these things? She said, oh, yeah, I think we have a couple boxes. Two or three days later, I went over to the archives. I was at Big Rock Ranch, which is basically just up the road from Skywalker Ranch. You can walk there through the trails. Anyway, I went there, and I just... She said, there you go, and you know, left me alone to look through the boxes. And there were just all these raw physical copies of typed interviews that Charlie Lippincott had done from of everybody, who was basically the, the key people, although unfortunately a couple interviews were apparently lost, one with Roger Christian, although Charlie Lippincott may have copies in his own files, but I, I couldn't find them in the Lucasfilm files. But anyway, I, I, they were just, and I thought, oh, this is fantastic, because at first I thought, John Williams, and I think I saw George Lucas right off the bat. And I said, well, it'd be great if they were the actors, too. And then I saw Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, Mark Hamill, just big, fat files of interviews. And I thought, okay, this is going to be good. This is, this is incredible. Because I saw also that many of the interviews were done before the movie was out. So that made the book even more sort of of its time and able to be not something done in retrospect. I was able to make it seemed like it was happening live, so to speak, so that there was all this trepidation and worry which really existed. You know, I, I talked to George many times, and whenever I'd ask him about something that was hard to do, he, he'd always compare it to Star Wars and say, for God's sakes, I did Star Wars, and then we move on. The amount of information in those making of books is just incredible. I can't even begin to appreciate just how much time it probably took you to put that together. 
Well, I was lucky, I guess, again, in, in the sense that I was working in Lucasfilm, and I had, you know, there was a trickle-down theory which worked in Lucasfilm, which you had an, an enlightened leader, and you had more or less enlightened department heads throughout the company, with a few exceptions. Anyway, so I was given my head of steam. As long as I got my work done, I could go over to the archives and do research if I, you know, if I had time. And I did, of course, as much as I could. And there were many archives at Lucasfilm, not just the Skywalker Ranch. And so I figured out where those were and just did the research and worked mornings, nights, and weekends for many years because it was so exciting. This is, you know, worth it. This is more exciting than a vacation. With you having applied so many times to work at Lucasfilm, I have to imagine that you were a very big Star Wars fan coming up. No, I know I wasn't, actually. I loved the films, obviously. You know, I was a big Lucasfilm fan and a big ILM fan. But it was more about their work in general. I, when I went to the interview, in fact, Lucy Wilson said, she said, what do you think of the expanded universe? And I said, what's that? Because I had no idea. I'd never read any of the novels or the comic books or the role-playing games or anything. So, no, technically I was not a Star Wars fan. I was a cinema fan, and I was a, and I was a student of Lucas's work. Because, for example, you know, American Graffiti would probably had a bigger influence on my life than Star Wars, because I'm a little bit older, probably, than your average Star Wars fan. And American Graffiti was a huge deal when it came out. And so I was just interested in the the person and the, this incredibly creative company that he founded with people like Dennis Murren and John Knoll and and Ben Burt and you know just doing very interesting things in in the arts of cinema you know all the different arts that go to support the movie I, I find all of that just mind boggling I just would I just loved the time that I got to spend at ILM I I'm so happy that I was able to see it before it vanished. It was like the Renaissance. That's what Lauren Peterson, the, the, the you know the head of the model shop, said many times. It was like being in Florence during the Renaissance, during ILM's heyday, which basically went from seventy-five to two thousand and five. But of course, they continue to this day. But now it's all digital. I was very glad to see that when you did the Empire Strikes Back book, that you actually went all the way back to even a little bit before Star Wars came out, just to get that snapshot of history and then those intervening years between Star Wars coming out and Empire coming out, just all of that activity. It's just, it's so difficult to even believe how small the company was in 77 versus how not big really that it was in 1980, that there was still just so much growth happening in those three years. Even when I was there, you know, whatever, 25 years later, it's still we people referred to it as a mom and pop shop. You know that it was, of course it was much smaller back in '77. There were maybe ten people, but we were only about Lucasfilm proper was only about two hundred people. It varied between two and three hundred people, maybe two and two hundred fifty. But it felt very small. You knew everybody, and that's you know doing this book with Howard Kazanjian. I don't know if you saw it, but I'm doing working with him on his memoirs. And he he was he was at Lucasfilm starting in '77, and uh, we would compare notes. And obviously, it was different, but there was still that same spirit going up up until the sale to Disney. It was a wonderful company to work at. Not perfect, but really a great place. 
It was amazing seeing one of those shots at Thanksgiving of just like the three tables of settings. Like you can fit the whole company in this one little room. There was Lucasfilm South too. Remember they they were they started getting bigger not in seventy seven but in seventy eight. There and there were roughly I forget how many people one hundred and fifty people or seventy five people. I can't remember what the number was. So there were more people down south. There was kind of a southern contingent as well. When it comes to a film, you've got so many different people that are working on something. Did you run across that when you were doing your Empire book as far as different stories not necessarily lining up? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, any book you do, people's memories are selective pretty much across the board. And I, I doing interviews and, and doing these books, you, you, you learn, though, that some people are more reliable than other people in terms of facts because you have to double-check everything. And when you can't, and when there's just you know different versions or different of a story, it was great because George just said, "Look, he didn't actually say it, but the result was he didn't care. You could have two or three versions of the same ver- of the story as long as his version is one of the versions, he was fine with it. He didn't. He wasn't you know adamant like this is the only version. This is the way it absolutely happened, except for a couple things. You know, he was pretty much live and let live." Yeah, I mean, there's some people I think who wonder who came up with the, you know, I love you, I know, but it's it's pretty clear that Harrison Ford came up with it. That was, for Empire, I was lucky for that book because Don Beath, an archivist, had kept all of Alan Arnold's tape recorder cassettes, and one of them had that whole conversation between Kirshner and Harrison Ford about the carbon freeze chamber, which went on through various locales, through dressing room, cafeteria, on the set. It was fascinating to listen to. What were some of the other things that you remember as far as doing the research for Empire? Because, I, I like I said, it's got to just be such a huge amount of information that you have to go through. You build up techniques as you go through it. The first one was murder. Empire was easier, but in fact, I ended up making a couple of mistakes, which we've since rectified on Empire, because it's one of those things where, for some reason, Empire, Empire was a really hard book to do, and... There was a lot of stuff to absorb, but you know, you just go through it. You just, you know, if you do it, you realize if you're able to do an hour or an hour and a half every day, if you're just disciplined enough, and that's really what it comes down to is discipline, or as George would say, willpower. You just get, you just get the work done slowly but surely. You know, you just hit hit your deadlines. Don't make excuses. I have to tell you, I was also very impressed with the sounds of Star Wars book that you did as well. Right, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, that was really Ben Burt's book. I, I was just kind of the medium. Ben talked, I wrote down, made it into legible English. And then I, I had to work hard on the design, but Ben, it is really just Ben's book. I mean, it was fantastic. He talked about people with good memories. That guy has an incredible memory, unbelievable. He could remember what went into practically every sound that I played for him. And a couple of things he wouldn't tell me because they were secrets like the sound during the asteroid chase in episode two. But uh, otherwise, he was just so forthcoming, and it was just so much fun. To, and, I, and and he had this incredible office, too, in Skywalker Sound, which you would probably just go, people would go insane. And there's a picture of it in the book. He has all these great sort of sound souvenirs, like the arrows, the kind of arrow they use for Robin Hood and the... Original synthesizer he used for R2-D2 in his office and just all sorts of amazing things just there in Skywalker Sound, which is in Skywalker Ranch. So it's just fun to work with him on anything. When you're doing your research through the archives, I say the archives, and I don't know, is this 
a big room, like the stacks at a library? What are you going through as you're looking for stuff physically? At the time, there were various archives. The archives that most people want to know and want to visit when they talk about archives is is basically is basically a giant room. Like a, it's a, it's disguised as a farmhouse on Skywalker Ranch, and inside. I mean, we shouldn't say that on the podcast, but there's a big room in Skywalker Ranch, and in you know, and it just has the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant is there, you know, the uh, the original Star Destroyer, the original Rebel Blockade Runner that Colin Cantwell made, and all of Ralph Aquari's paintings are there in drawers, and all of Joe Johnson's storyboards, and and all the you know American Graffiti, the Ewok movies. You know, THX, whatever they've got is in this giant room. And then, and then across the way is a huge costume warehouse where you have all of, you know, the original costumes, which is mind blowing, you know, Darth Vader and everything. And, uh, so that's just two of, that's just two of the archives. Then there's the production archives, there's film archives, licensing, marketing archives, legal archives, library archives. So it takes, it's a lot of research and you got to go through it. And uh, but it's fun. It's like a treasure hunt. Not only have you done these books about Star Wars, but then you also did Raiders of the Lost Ark, and then what? Two books on Alien so far. Two books on Alien, but that's all there will be. That Fox has made it clear they don't want Alien Three. I, I yeah, they didn't tell me why. They just said no Alien Three. But they were very nice and gave me one and two, which was <laughs> which was a lot of fun. And then there's Planet of the Apes. Yeah, so I've done an Indiana Jones. That was obviously Lucasfilm. But since I've left Lucasfilm, I've been lucky too. People that I've worked with that have asked me about various titles, and it's worked out. We we did a big two volume work on Rick Baker, you know, with Rick Baker. Yeah, your Planet of the Apes book is amazing as well. I, that one, you know, since I left Lucasfilm, I've had to do them much faster. Where I had a year before, now I have to do them in three or four months. But Whereas before I had two hours a day, now I have eight hours a day. So it sort of balances out, but it's a big effort. It's a big push. So Planet of the Apes was hard to do, but that was really a passion project. I just absolutely loved that movie, and I just really wanted to do the film, you know, proud, pay it the respect it deserved, because it was such an amazing, groundbreaking film. And and going through the Arthur P. Jacobs archives at in Los in Los Angeles. Near, near the airport, that was again. It was like a treasure hunt. It was so much fun, and, I, and the big treasure thing that I found was this binder that had it didn't have color, but it had all the black. It had reproductions of all the black and white concept art that guy had done. His name I can't remember, but he was a former Disney artist. But he was the one who came up with the Statue of Liberty idea at the end, and so I finally was able to give him credit for it in the book because it wasn't Rod Serling and it wasn't the producers. It was this guy who came up with it. Tell me a little bit about All Up. Well, yeah, speaking of passion projects, yeah, All Up is, I guess, the big, the biggest literary passion project that, I, that I've done in my life. It took about six years, and it was inspired, you know, as a kid, I was woken up by my parents to see the moonwalk, and so that was mind-blowing. And then later I went to the museum in Huntsville, and that was mind-blowing, seeing an actual Saturn V on its side is the F1 engine really quite amazing. I mean, I was fortunate enough just to be able to tour SpaceX through a series of fortunate circumstances. And 
I mean, it's the most exciting thing happening. I mean, we're, we're going to Mars in the next few years, possibly 2024, but they say very optimistically, or assuredly, 2026. And I, as a fellow human being, am very interested in the species perpetuating itself. <laughs> and the question is, can we do it? And who are we going to be when we do it? And where are we coming from? And so... I realized as I did research on the first space age that nobody knows anything about it, frankly. Only people who really study it know anything about it, including myself. So I went down that rabbit hole in a very serious way and just read, you know, upwards of a hundred books on it and many, many articles and just really wanted to present the story of Werner von Braun and his opposite, Soviet opposite, I'm pronouncing it the English way, Korolev, Sergei Pavlovich Korolev. Of course, in Russian it's different. But these were these two titanic figures, you know, one very controversial, the other almost purely heroic, but also controversial in his own way. And there's these just amazing stories, just incredible stories of how these rockets were developed through World War II and then the space race. And people think they know about the space race, but they don't. It's it's a hundred times more fantastic than anybody thinks it was. It was just so seat of your pants. So amazing. And and people thought the people trying to make rockets to go to the moon were so insane. But the the whole thing is just mind-boggling. And I mean, I can go on about it for hours and hours and hours. But the point was to write a really exciting book, a thriller, a true story based on true documents, you know, historically verifiable, but also throw in some of the things that, that you know, people talk about, which are not part of the official record, like UFOs and other strange space phenomenon, and then write something really fun that people can read and enjoy it. You mentioned Howard Kazanjian earlier, and you worked with him on his autobiography. Or is it biography or autobiography? Well, it's really it's really his memoirs, but it's kind of because I interview other people. It's closer to closer to it's like a memoir slash biography. And that's coming out what May of twenty twenty one. Yeah, I'm not sure. April, April, May. And there, and there's going to be a deluxe version. I believe Marshall Lucas is going to be signing a number of them. We're going to be doing some deluxe versions with like pages of scripts and, you know, progress reports and whatever doodads he's saved over the years. So I imagine you met him while you're doing this research at, at Lucasfilm and just had a sparked a friendship. Right. That's exactly right. And in fact, we have a mutual friend, Brandon Allinger who's the consulting editor, and he's good friends with Howard. He knows him better than I do, but I've gotten to know Howard, too, during the process, and he's just a very, very wonderful person, a very sweet man, and his wife is also a really wonderful person, and, and they've all, and they've remained really good friends with Marsha Lucas, so she, you know, she's usually adverse to any kind of long-form interview, but because of her friendship with the Kazanjians, she agreed to do it and write the forward. And so for me, meeting Marsha Lucas was like the meeting the, the sort of the almost like the hidden sun behind the original sun. You know, she she's very straightforward about it. She says, look, Star Wars is George Lucas. But she did help in a big way. And so it's nice to get her contributions sort of on record in one place, in one book, at one time. That will be very valuable. I also felt that she... Didn't and never got enough credit. Yeah, she did not get enough credit, and that's what I was talking to Sid Gannis, who was you know the head of marketing and also ran 
I forget. He ran a studio for a while. I think it was Columbia, but don't quote me. Maybe it was Sony. But anyway, so he knows what he's talking about, and he's been learning over the years. He told me how important Marsha was, particularly in the in the first film. You know, in terms of her contributions. You know, she 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 really didn't was not in the limelight and has never sought it, but she was very important. I think the best thing about Star Wars and probably Empire is that there were people around George to say, "Hey." think about this instead that having De Palma and I can't remember who else it was like rewriting the opening scroll and you know, the, the, the formation that the editing obviously was such a huge part of star Wars that I believe that she probably helped out a ton on. Yeah. She, she basically had like five great editors working on, on star Wars. You had George Lucas, Marsha Lucas, Paul Hearst, Richard Chu. And I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the third person. I think there's another person. The point is, she, she, you're right that she, that she was she really was key, and her spirit was key. You know, she was she was the one who was saying, you know, if we're, now that we're making money, we should and we're going to be financing the second movie ourselves. The employees should have profit participation. And George, to his credit, said immediately, "Yes, you're right, absolutely." But but she was the one who, according to her, anyway, thought of it. And, and, and so she, the two of them were really dovetailed quite nicely in many ways. Of course, obviously, in some ways it, it didn't work out, but it, it was, it was just very, very interesting hearing about it all from Marshall Lucas's perspective. Well, thank you so much. Good luck with everything. Thank you very much, Mike. And, and good luck, like I say, for the, your podcast. And I'm glad you're doing a service, you know, for people who love movies. It's really great. The destruction of the Death Star was a major victory for the Rebellion. But our battle isn't over yet. Darth Vader and the evil forces of the Emperor keep a stranglehold over the galaxy. But the Rebel Alliance must and will succeed in forever ridding the galaxy of their scourge. Even now, in our secret underground base on the ice planet Hoth, new strategies are being planned. See for yourself in The Empire Strikes Back. The Empire Strikes Back comes to a theater near you on May the 21st, 1980. The thing that I pulled the most from watching the robot chicken version of the Star Wars saga is the whole gag of um, Darth Vader and Lando. Leia and the Wookiee must never again leave this city. That was never a condition of our arrangement, nor was giving Han to this bounty hunter. I have altered the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. This deal's getting worse all the time. Furthermore, I wish you to wear this dress and bonnet. This was never a condition of our arrangement. I have altered the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. This deal's getting worse all the time. Here is a unicycle. You will ride it wherever you go. What? I'm not riding no fucking unicycle. I have altered the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. This deal is getting worse all the time. Also, you are to wear these clown shoes and refer to yourself as Mary. Oh, f*** you, man. I'm not doing it. I have altered the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. This deal is very fair, and I'm happy to be a part of it. I mean, there have been some good parodies and stuff. I've seen a couple things like you know, family guy, those things, but the parodies begin and end at uh, hardware wars. I just absolutely love that, which, you know, doesn't touch this stuff. Of course, it was put out before empire came out, but, um, and then, you know, getting, getting to see, uh, Mark Hamill 
in his Bespin outfit on um, the Muppet Show before the movie came out. I was very excited about that, too. It's hard to express how much we love this movie, though, isn't it? I mean, it's such a good film. It really is. I There was a period of time where I used to find the, the Dagobah scene slow, and I would kind of skip forward just to get to the Cloud City stuff. But now I love those scenes. I think they're so great. And Mark Hamill as well doesn't get enough credit for this movie. He's fantastic. I mean, you know, I talked about the way they'd rehearse those scenes with Yoda. Once they were on set, they, he would have an earpiece in and he would hear the lines being fed to him from Frank Oz because when they did the real take, he couldn't hear him because he was under the set, you know, and his head's down, he's looking at his monitors and things. So Mark is acting there against nothing. It's just done by rehearsal and rehearsal and rehearsal until, as I said before, it feels like second nature. And, you know, again, he was on the on the set on his own a lot of the times. You know, the only human character, it would say, on the call sheet, as he said many times before. And he'd see, he'd see you know, Harrison and Carrie larking around on, on another stage and just kind of the poor guy's on his own. What was it? I was just trying to remember. Um, there was a song that Harrison Ford would sing to him as he passed him in the corridors, it was like second unit guy or something. I can't remember what the I can't remember what the tune was, but um, it was from like a, from a musical, and he changed the lines. Yeah, just to kind of mock poor old Mark. <laughs> yeah, listening to Hamill on the audio commentary, it almost sounded like he was lonely. Like he's like, well, I would see you know Harrison and Carrie at the commissary when we would have lunch, but. Then I wouldn't see them. I would go over to my set and be there acting against nobody. Yeah. Didn't he at one point say oh, I had uh, Carrie had Harrison and I had lizards and snakes? And I do really appreciate how much Kirshner tried to bring more emotion and, and give more things to Chewbacca. I mentioned before, like the whole scream and stuff. That look that... Carrie Fisher and Peter Mayhew exchange when the um, hyperdrive won't start and that they look at each other and then they look at Lando. It's just like, oh, that is so good. It really elevates Chewie from like just like a bodyguard creature to a, a, a sentient crew member. Yeah, because in the first one, it's just like Luke can't go near him, can't touch him, can't put the manacles on him, of course, yes. you know, those kind of things. It really does feel like he is not necessarily a part of the group. And, you know, we go from Leia calling him a walking carpet to now when Harrison is like, you got to take care of the princess. It's like, oh, that's nice. And just the way that she looks up at Chewbacca, it's like, oh. Yeah, moves a little good. closer to him. Yeah. yeah. I would be remiss if I didn't talk about in the first movie, you get Star Destroyers, Y-Wings, X-Wings, all that stuff. But this has the most uh, the most amount of my favorite things designed by McQuarrie and um, Nilo Rodas. I can never – I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Jamiro. He's done some of my favorite stuff. Uh, I love the, the Probot, the Snow Speeders, especially the concept Snow Speeder that they made a toy of a while back. But Slave One was – the best and and the superstar destroyer like all of the all of the space sci-fi concept stuff just went up a thousand percent and i was just i was enthralled like what am i gonna see next what is gonna happen even the even the twin pod cloud car was like all right yeah that's neat sure an art deco ship why not i mean it matches with the the place that they live and those rounded edges really fit well 
it feels kind of ostentatious, doesn't it? It's like, you know, they've got the money to spend. Why not make a, a twin pod orange thing flying through the sky? Yeah, all it needs is a little bit of gold chrome and and it would be it would be absolutely perfect uh, in any Gatsby sci-fi party. But that's the really canny thing about what Lucas and Joe Johnson did in hiring Nilo because you know, Nilo told me in my interview with him that he was pulled in like straight out of college he was working for I think it was General Motors and he was designing stuff and he wasn't really into it. And then he got put in contact with Joe Johnston. He'd hunted him down. And he said in an interview with George Lucas, George Lucas said to Nilo, you know, do you like movies? He said, no. He said, do you like sci-fi? He said, no. He said, are you interested in designing a movie? And Nilo said, movies are designed. I mean, he was completely green to this idea. He had no idea. But he was an excellent industrial in, industrial designer. So Lucas said, well, look, don't worry. I've got the film side of things covered. You just design me things that should exist. You know, the Slave One story is fantastic that he would be traveling, commuting to and fro, seeing his mother in hospital. And he'd, he'd drive by this big um, satellite dish uh, research center. And he stopped off to kind of sketch it. And just because of the angle that he sketched it at, um, and then he kind of fleshed it out with the slave one kind of, you know, the domed top and the canopy. And just because of the angle that he'd done this drawing in, George thought it was like a, a tapered kind of oval and not a circle like a satellite dish would be. I remember seeing some concept artwork where it was a lot rounder than um, than it ended up being. And Lucas's eye had just seen that as a slightly kind of more oval shape. And that that's such an iconic uh, design. Um, you can't. It, it it kind of it's like those when you hear a song and you think this has always existed, you know. <laughs> but how was there a time when this didn't exist? And that's how it feels with his stuff. But really canny of them just to get somebody who knew how to design things and not somebody who was interested in Star Wars or creating spaceships or you know a sci-fi nerd. Um, I think that really counts for a lot. Yeah, and and as a as a kid and as a, a, with it as a toy with it landing. And flying in two different ways, that just set it apart from everything else. Well, it makes total sense. I mean, there is no up and down in space, and I really like that. It's the way that it takes off, the way that it changes. I especially like that Boba Fett is the only one smart enough to leave with the garbage. Like, he's already smarter than Han Solo when he gets jettisoned with the garbage. Every time I watch that, I'm like, I'm like, this is the time I'm going to see a tiny slave one floating in the garbage. And it's just not there. I know it's not there. It's not in that garbage. But I look every single time. What, in the original shot, the shot when they're sort of blasting the trash out? Yeah. I'm like, oh, in the special edition, they'll add him in. They don't. It's hiding on the other side of a piece of trash. Yes. I'm fine with that. That's fine. But, you know, that design has lived on and now we've got it in the Mandalorian and, you know, and and it still looks cool. It doesn't look 70s or, or 80s. I was thrilled last night. I was rereading uh, J.W. Rinsler's book about the making of Empire and I was looking at some of the sketches that I can't remember if it was Macquarie or Johnson did of um, Tauntauns. And before they were furry, they were much more lizard-like. And there was one drawing where it's just like, oh, this is what the Ugnaught is riding in the Mandalorian. I like how they would like recycle those things. Or like seeing, I mean, we talked about uh, Solo, a Star Wars story, and how one of the aliens for, I can't remember, the Enfys Nets people, that he is a Macquarie drawing from all those years ago come to life. And it's like those things still live on 
those works that he did, you know, 75, 76 going on still have legs today and we'll still see things that he or Johnston designed. Yeah, that's my favorite part about watching Rebels, Clone Wars, Bad Batch. In uh, Rebels, there was um, they they used um, one of the one of the early concept drawings of IG eighty eight, um, where he had like that that candy corn shaped head, and um, he was named R R M something 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 with numbers. And I'm like, that's awesome. That's just that's just great. He, all, pretty much any concept work that that you've seen either has been or will probably be put into a future project, which is really nice. Yeah, there's some great ideas. I mean, some of them were were done, you know, were not chosen because they couldn't do them at the time, or they were forced practically to do them in a certain way. And now that we've got that freedom. It's great to see them back, isn't it? And I, I love in The Mandalorian just seeing things like, oh, my God, that's the sketch that Ralph McQuarrie did of Dagobah with the white spider. And, you know, but my kids will watch it and just go, oh, what's that thing? <laughs> that still looks great because it does. It's a great design. I'm the person that sits there with the rest of my family. And when Mando's walking down a corridor and there's a pipe laying up against the wall, I'm like, oh, that's the same pipe they used to try to stop the trash compactor. And they're like, they're like, what is wrong with you? I'm like, no, it's exactly the same. That's the same bubble wrap wrapped around it, spray painted silver. Come on. We know this. I, I think it was the first episode of The Mandalorian. And I can't remember if he holds it or if it's somewhere in his ship or what, but that two prong thing that he used in that cartoon was part of the the show and i was just like oh this is so nice i was like okay true nerds have put this together oh but, definitely but, but you're not tripping over those moments they're not you know i, I hate the word fan service but they don't feel like they're jumping out at you and it's not like you know the special edition boba fett mugging the camera in in a new hope you know um i'll call it a new hope only because it's the special edition yeah, it's the right kind of fan service. It's just it's just there. Yeah, if you look, there's more layers. That's it. Yeah. If you invest in it, there's more stuff for you. And we get it. We're here and we get it. And we're you. We're, we're like you. Again, it's like poetry. It's sort of they rhyme. Yeah. If you get it, you get it. If not, we're not going to hold the camera on it for 10 seconds and hit and you And make you head. say, why is that such a big deal? Yeah. I got so mad a few years ago when there were articles that came out probably – Six months after Guardians of the Galaxy 2 came out, where somebody just suddenly realized, oh, there are similarities between Guardians of the Galaxy 2 and The Empire Strikes Back. And I'm just like, welcome to the party, pal. As I'm watching it, and Mantis is like, oh, there's something they need to tell you. I was just like, okay, C3PO, uh, the rebel, you know, the, the stormtroopers are at the base, right? Okay. I get it. I get that Darth Vader's behind that door. If I had to ask for one thing, it would be to see what happens during that dinner. I've always been curious what happens. Or, or what's served, yeah. Like, was it seafood? Is that why Harrison looks so bad after the torturing? You know? <laughs> Does Darth Vader eat? Is he just drinking milkshakes through a hole in the mask, or what? But that, that scene does so much for those two characters. You know, it's it, it, regardless of A New Hope, I'm not going to go into that whole mess, but... Han doesn't even, Vader stands up and Han's already shooting because he should be. And then Vader stops the bolts with his hands like nothing happened and then takes his gun away and doesn't even attack back. And it's just, it's such a powerful moment for Vader that, that it informs later on, you know, oh, Luke is totally outmatched. 
completely. And, you know, the, fa- the fact that we may joke about, I'd love to see what happened in that meal, Kasdan and Lucas don't allow themselves to be written into that corner where we now yeah. have to have them all sat down and what are they going to eat and <laughs> what are they going to talk Should about? You know, it yeah. serves its purpose, as you've just described, Chris, and then we move on to the next scene. Yeah, and I think it's kind of... I mean, I mean, it would be funny. It would definitely be a funny scene like Robot Chicken did. But, you know, they didn't eat. They just took Han and tortured him. (laughs) They're just like, all right, here we go. Because I think that ends there, doesn't it? Uh, I'm sorry, too. And the next is the next shot. Luke kind of hurtling through space towards Bespin, I think. Yeah. So we we immediately like, oh, shit, he's about to walk into something really bad here. Um we don't need that scene. I did like that Chewie knew something was up before it happened. Yeah. yeah. He's looking around like, everybody left. Like Smells like, like stormtrooper armor here. Like a dog would have, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep, like right before an earthquake. Like, uh, no, no, not liking this. I really appreciate that the battle between Luke and Darth Vader is really like a movement unto itself and that you have like three different places where they fight. And I especially like, I think it's the second time that they fight. It might be the third when he pops out and like, you can't even hear him breathing until he pops out. And then it's just like, Holy shit. Yeah. I showed it to my kids. Um, They know star Wars. They know the characters, but they've never actually sat down and watched the damn movie. So I, um, we watched them last year and yeah, they all jumped off the sofa at that moment because I had the sound. I knew this, it was coming. I put the sound right up. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice. That also plays really well with Vader, uh, in Rogue One standing at the end of that dark corridor with all of his chest panel and belt lights off to just scare the crap out of him. It, it was interesting. Some people pointing out online that he like sacrifices his life support functions. To, for fear <laughs> it's like wow yeah vader was crazy back then <laughs> you know a day before the death star blew up well thank god they closed that plot hole oh geez yeah but i can imagine vader doing this he's like oh this worked once i'm gonna do it again click 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 i think i mentioned uh back on the star wars episode how one of my co-workers couldn't stand the lightsaber battle in star Wars, because it's just so stayed. And I'm like, okay, but look at empire. Like they really went all out when it came to the lightsaber battle in empire and just how energetic it is, how, like I said, it goes through the different stages, how there are moments when Darth Vader's throwing shit at Luke. And I'm just like, man, this is like, he is beaten to shit by the end of that thing. He's yeah. Everything is against him, and it's yeah, he does that major sacrifice of himself just to get away. It really works, yeah, because visually you watch it, and it starts off, and he's on the top levels, and it's all bright and white. And the further down he goes, you know, the more angry he's making Luke because Luke's losing, so it gets darker and more industrial, more robotic, if you will. It's such a visual cue of, I'm turning you into what I am. Here we go. I'm going to keep pushing you down. <laughs> and then looks yeah. like, no, I'm going to go down on my own terms. Bye. Yeah, because the whole human element is just stripped away there, isn't it? For, you know, he's he's there with this man. He doesn't know who he is, if he's a machine, if he's a man. He's got all of this industrial stuff around him. He's kind of out in the open. He has nowhere to go. He's not going to scream when he jumps off. Give me a. Why would you even make that decision? I don't know. Why would you add Vader saying no when he picks up the Emperor? 
Oh, God. There was such, there's such emotion conveyed through one tilt of the head. The moment Vader fully turns back to the light side, when he, when he realized that's my son, he's electrocuting and he has a tiny little tilt and he's like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm throwing this bastard over the edge. It's that push in on, on his face, isn't it? On Vader's mask. And you know what he's thinking because there's no line there. You know what's going on. And he's like, right, I'm doing this now. Now's the time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he yeah. pulls he pulls a Ripley, you know, get away from him, you bitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to make a version of that now. Just uh <laughs> put that yeah, just cut YouTube. in the audio right over yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I've heard less clunky audio edits uh in the special editions. Maybe maybe then, you know, just you for the for the Gen Z out there, you could just have him pick the emperor up and yell, "Yeet!" and throw him off the edge. My kids would love that. I would love that, you know. And then, and then for the end credits, you can play the Seagulls "Stop It Now" song, and everything would be good. I have to admit, there's something about that. I love that song. That's brilliant. It's so good. We had a we went through a period of just listening to it endlessly in this house. Yeah, I can't watch the scene of Luke yelling "No" without thinking "Flower" anymore. That's how that's how good that is. It's ingrained itself in my memories of the film. I have to say, I absolutely love listening to the commentary, and I kind of wish that they would just let Ben Burt do a commentary on his own, just to talk about where all the sounds come from, because my God, it's like, oh yeah, well, I found the best thing for wind was to take a pencil and brush it along canvas. I'm just like, what the fuck, man? Where do you come up with this stuff? Like, oh yeah, the Tauntauns are these uh, Japanese otters that I slowed down and played backwards. I'm like, what? How did you decide that you were going to do that? I posted a picture of, um, there's a map on his wall in his uh, little studio that's the, it says handwritten like in a Sharpie, the official sounds of Star Wars map. And it's the map of LA and on it is these little handwritten flags of where he got each sound for each thing. So it's like, you know, the, the, uh, the towers where he was hitting with a spanner to get the laser sound. And then he's got like the bear that was chewy and the, the walrus they were teasing with food to get the kind of grumbles for, for, um, for chewy as well. It's a great artifact. I mean, I put it on Twitter and like instantly everyone's saying, Oh, why don't they reproduce this? I'd buy that, you know. But I've spoken to a couple of, uh, well, I've, I've spoken to a guy called Mark Mangini, who's a sound designer. He worked on Raiders early on, and then he did 20, uh, Blade Runner 2049. He's worked on Dune with Denny Villeneuve as well. And those guys just have to think out of the box to come up with these sounds, especially those ones who want to go down the organic route like Ben Burt did. You know, he, he could have used some of the electric synthesizing stuff that was out at the time, but he knew that by having these sounds that we kind of recognize as earthly despite their kind of fantastical setting right we know that oh he's an animal he sounds like an animal um and we and it kind of grounds us it puts us in that universe i mean a man is an absolute genius yeah the very first time i it was probably like 78 79 on pbs they showed a making of star wars thing and they showed him hitting that power line like you're talking about and i was just like holy cow because that was the first time i think i ever realized what sound effects were and i was just like wow i mean we talk about thinking outside of the box right i mean you, you look at the tie fighter it's a ship with a ball in the middle and two flat panels what would fit there i know an elephant's trumpet slowed down and the sound of a car driving down a wet road 
Right. <laughs> what? What? I mean, yeah. are these guys high every day? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that was another thing he said about, like, a different part of the snowstorm was that I was traffic noise. I was just like, really? Just slowed it way down and just added the ambience. And to hear him talk about the layers of sound that he would put together, it's like, wow. I've been put in touch with, um, with somebody who uh, works at Lucasfilm who purportedly can put me in touch with Ben, but for an interview, because I'd love to talk to him at length. You know, I just want to talk to him for two, two or three hours and just hear everything. Um, sadly, no reply yet, but I'm edging closer. I'm edging closer. I've got Gary Rydstrom on, uh, in, a, in, uh, tomorrow, in fact. Yeah, he worked on Jurassic Park and Terminator 2 and some of the later stars as well. And he's another guy who he kind of, benefited from the absence of Ben Burr. You know, Ben's not available. Uh, who are we going to have? Oh, let's go for this Gary guy. And that's kind of how his career started. Um, he was recommended by uh, Ben Burr. Yeah, I tried reaching out to Ben as well. And then I am so glad that you're talking with Joe Johnston because I've talked with Johnston before. And so I thought, and I, you know, I did what I thought was the right thing, which was to stay away from Star Wars completely when I talked to him, because I was talking to him about the Rocketeer. I was talking to him a little bit about uh, Captain America. And I was just like, okay, you know, I'll leave Star Wars for another day because I'm sure this guy's been asked a ton about it. And so then when I'm putting this episode together, I'm like, hey, would you like to come back on? He's just like, nope. No, I'm good. Thanks. I've said enough. Did you bring up the page master? I might have brought up the page master. Maybe that's why he didn't want to talk to me anymore. Could be. I mean... What is the deal with uh, Pagemaster? Is he just not oh, want to yeah, talk about it? it? Oh, okay. I think he had it a very bad wrong, experience, didn't it? Yeah. Ah. yeah. The cut was not what he wanted. He just had, yeah, just a very bad experience with it. Because there were two directors on that, weren't there? I think. Um, yeah, I don't really know the story. Because I do think I did talk to him about it a little bit. But it was one of those, like, it was so bad that eventually it's funny. But I think, yeah, he might still be didn't he not say, too I think happy did, about it. Maybe it was your interview I heard with him. Because didn't he say, let's never bring that up ever again? Yes. Yes, he did. <laughs> yeah. Hirsch, Hirsch was interesting because he did such a great job with his um, autobiography that it's just like there wasn't that much for me to ask about other than like, hey, tell me the story of this again. You know, it's just he's got these great stories and just, oh, man, his book is just wonderful. I really I can't recommend it enough. It is really good. And I was hoping to talk to him about Carrie a little bit, maybe in the fall. But at the same time, I'm just like. There's really nothing to ask. It's just like, it's all in the book. And he's not one of these guys who's just like, oh, well, let me sit down and tell you this story again. It was like, well, I wrote it out for a reason, so I don't have to keep telling these stories. Yeah, yeah. The biggest mistake with my podcast is that it's it's general. So I've got somebody on for maybe an hour and a half, maximum of two hours. And someone like Paul, who's worked on like 50 movies, you need to pick one and talk to him about that, you know, um, because otherwise you just end up with this kind of, I mean, really, my my episode with him was just a promotion for his book and that was that was why he did it i guess but uh, it's still a privilege I, i'd really enjoyed talking to him okay guys we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show it's a manhouse a manhouse charlton heston discovers a world turned upside down where humans run wild in the jungles and the superior beings are apes planet of the apes a fascinating civilization where apes build the cities and control the laws charlton heston roddy mcdowell kim hunter and morris evans star in planet of the apes beyond your wildest dreams now playing in color city wide oh yeah these goosebumps all over Gary. 93 K H J. 
That's right. We'll be back next week as Sci-Fi Month continues with a look at the original Planet of the Apes. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Chris and Jamie. So, Chris, what is keeping you busy, sir? A new job, which is always good uh, because not a lot of people have that opportunity right now. And, uh, you know, still doing Outside the Cinema with Bill. I almost said 18 years. No, it's uh, we're in our 13th year of uh, reviewing cult movies. As long as Bill's doing it, I guess I'll be there. And I still have my other show with Frank where it's just general, you know, what's going on kind of discussion called Are You Serious? A uh, little political, little movies, TV, stuff that's not covered on Outside the Cinema, that kind of stuff. The show was good until it got political. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that about mine, too, and yours. Because movies aren't political, are they? No, there's nothing in The Empire Strikes Back that is political at all. Not if you're a fascist. And Jamie, how are things across the pond? Yeah, all good. I'm still plugging away at my podcast, the Film Mentories podcast. I think I'm, what, 26, 27 episodes in. It has a very sort of general remit that I'm just talking to people who worked on movies that I love. And I'm really enjoying it. And uh, I'm also trying to set up some other video projects as well at the moment. I've decided I'm going to spend couple of thousand dollars just to get myself out to uh los angeles and interview a couple of people that have said yes to an interview and getting done on on videotape just keeping moving with all that stuff and you know i've had a lot of work fortunately uh proper paid work my 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 real job as it were so it kind of takes me away from my my hobby but i i can't complain after last year which was a bit of a disaster in terms of income so i'm, I'm taking it while i can we talked last time that you were on the show for Jaws about your filmumentary on Jaws, which is just incredible. And I just rewatched the one that you did for Empire. And that is one of those where it is required viewing. I mean, it is so in depth and you have so many good stories in there. So many behind the scenes things, but footage, you've got, you know, making of stuff. You've got some of the drawings, some of the script stuff. I mean, it just puts it all together. So if, people are listening to this and they want more empire strikes back and you probably do i would highly recommend checking out jamie's filmumentary about empire about all of the stuff i would watch any of the things that you've done over and over again i mean one of these days i want to do a raiders of the lost ark podcast and your filmumentary on that is wonderful and then taking that and then turning it into a podcast where you're doing all of these great great interviews i mean you're doing the lord's work friend Thanks, man. I, you know, and I'm following in the footsteps of people like you that have, you know, really paved the way to, for, you know, us movie nerds to be able to talk to these people. And uh, no, I always appreciate your opinion, your feedback, Mike. It's, um, and it's always great to come on your podcast and I'll happily do it again for Raiders. All right. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the galaxy. My head, not fun. I said, Seagulls, mm, stop it now. Everyone told me not to stroll on that beach. Said, Seagulls gonna come, poke me in the coconut, and they did. 
Now, 